It's the Pledge of Sode. Please give money. Go to davidfeldmanshow.com. Hit the donate button. We accept all major credit cards. This is a Pledge of Sode. We need to grow the show. We have a crew now, and I have to pay them, so go to davidfeldmanshow.com. We need to grow the show. We need to donate. Welcome to the mop-up for March 14th, 2022. On today's show, we're going to be talking a lot about the media. And as I said, this is a pledge episode. I do these every once in a while. So please go to davidfeldmanshow.com and donate. I accept all major credit cards. And all you get in return is an email thanking you. That's it. No tote bags, no box sets of Ken Burns' entire collection of documentaries. All of which, by the way, all of Ken Burns' documentaries are funded by David Rubenstein, chairman of the Carlyle Group, the world's largest war profiteer. Ken Burns' sugar daddy is David Rubenstein, chairman of the Carlyle Group, the world's largest war profiteer. He ain't funding me. We don't give you T-shirts. You get nothing. You just donate and you get a better show. So go to davidfeldmanshow.com, please, and donate. Help me grow the show. Every penny you donate goes directly into this show. And by that, I mean the infrastructure to keep it going. And now we have a crew that has to be paid. We're growing out the show. You're going to notice that the show looks and sounds better thank you leslie i would have preferred a coffee enema but this will make do uh, uh we're growing out the show and you're going to notice that the show looks and sounds better and better and better because of our crew i'll name them later that's because uh they're helping make the show better i can't do this alone. I need a crew and they have been very generous with their time and they need to be paid for their time. Every penny you donate goes into this show. We don't run ads. We do not run any advertising. Go to davidfeldmanshow.com. Hit the donate button. We accept all major credit cards. Now we are growing at the YouTube channel and YouTube does run ads. So I've been told and I've been making pennies uh, from the YouTube ads. I am not beholden to YouTube or the advertisers on YouTube because I have no idea who they are. Most importantly, it changes depending on who you are. You get different ads directed at you. So I have no idea who these advertisers are. More importantly, it's pennies, literally pennies. So we are beholden to nobody other than the listeners. There are super chats from YouTube from listeners in the chat room. So feel free to post one, do a super chat in the chat room and we will read it. And uh, again, there's a little ad money that comes to pennies and all the money goes into growing this show. All the money that is uh, that keeps the show going is from the listeners. So once again, please go to davidfeldmanshow.com, hit the donate button. We accept all major credit cards. If everyone who listens to this show 
donated $10 a month, I could turn this show into a major league news gathering operation, a major league college and university, and a major league comedy think tank, because that's what this show does. We're, we're a news gathering operation, we're a university and a comedy think tank. I could grow this out, but I don't have the money, so I need you to donate. What do you get in return? One of the best podcasts out there. Here's the latest from Ukraine. 6% of Ukraine's population, 2.5 million people have fled to neighboring countries, including Russia. The Red Cross today described Ukraine as, quote, nothing short of a nightmare. United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres said today that if fighting continues in Ukraine, then nuclear war is within the realm of possibilities. Ukraine's nuclear agency says Russian military has damaged a high voltage power line leading into the the Chernobyl nuclear plant. This right after Ukraine's energy minister, Herman Halashenko, said yesterday that Chernobyl's power grid had been taken back online after last week's attack by Russian military. Half a million Ukrainians are trapped inside the southern city of Maripol with electricity, water and food without electricity, water and food. Russian military has encircled the city, preventing humanitarian convoys from entering. Ukraine says so far 2,500 residents of Maripol have been killed. The Associated Press reported later today that for the first time in days, 160 vehicles were allowed to leave Maripol without being attacked by Russian military. Ukraine's Deputy Minister Ayina Varyshuk said on Monday that his country will try once again to launch 10 humanitarian convoys carrying food and medicines to cities like Maripol and Kiev, which came under fire once again this morning. The British Defense Ministry reports that the Russian Navy is attempting to block off Ukraine's international maritime trade by creating a blockade along Ukraine's Black Sea coast. NATO is reportedly conducting naval exercises off the coast of Russia near Finland. Turkey, a member of NATO, has agreed to block off trade routes between the Black Sea and the Mediterranean. However, today, Turkey's President Recep Erdogan said he was still thinking of purchasing fighter jets from Russia. Erdogan, who shares many of the same authoritarian impulses as Vladimir Putin, Putin has stood up to Russia by sending support vehicles to Ukraine. But in 2017, Erdogan angered NATO members by purchasing a Russian-made S-400 air defense system, as well as armed drones from Putin. Turkey is a member of NATO. 2% of the GDP has to be spent on weapons if you want to be a member of NATO, but not to be spent on Russian weapons. The money has to go to Western arms dealers. Last month, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz promised to increase defense spending beyond the 2% demanded by NATO, 2% of the GDP. You have to spend 2% of your GDP on weapons in order to be a member of good standing in NATO. Well, 
He's promised to increase defense spending beyond that 2%. And today he announced Germany would purchase 35 stealth fighters from the United States. The F-35s are manufactured by Lockheed Martin and cost more than $100 million each. So that's about $3.5 billion going to Lockheed Martin after German Chancellor Olaf Scholz today promised to buy 35 stealth fighters from the United States, $3.5 billion today for Lockheed Martin, which traded at $441 a share today. A month ago, Lockheed Martin traded for $386 a share. The price of U.S. oil dipped below $100 a barrel today. Last week, it jumped to 130 barrels, $130 a barrel. British Prime Minister Boris Yeltsin says he's planning to visit Saudi Arabia to urge Saudi Arabia to pump more oil to fill the gap left by economic sanctions against Russian gas and oil. On Saturday, Saudi Arabia executed 81 men, including seven from Yemen and one from Syria. Coke Industries is staying in Russia. Well, they never left. The, the father, old man Coke, worked with Stalin at the height of the, the purges, at the height of the mass starvation uh, perpetrated on the uh, Kulyaks in Ukraine. Coke Industries is staying in Russia. They never left. And the Kochs are working directly with Putin. There are reports that our friends from Coke Industries are using subsidiaries that will keep on going in Russia, somehow evading international sanctions. Kristalina Georgieva, the International Monetary Fund's managing director, warned today that economic sanctions against Russia may cause Moscow to default on nearly $120 billion of debt owed to Western banks. She said, however, that this is not enough to cause an international financial collapse. Our friends over at the IMF also warned today that Ukraine, that Ukraine is on the brink of a recession with the country's economic output expected to decrease by 10%. The IMF you know, has lent money to Ukraine. And today, with all that's going on, the good people from the International Monetary Fund issued a warning that Ukraine could be entering recession territory. Hmm. I'm sure that's of much concern to the 2.5 million refugees heading to Poland and Moldova and Hungary. I'm sure they're worried about the recession. The IMF says consumer spending is down, you think? And it's only limited right now to basic needs. Wow. The IMF warns that Ukraine's budget deficit, wow, as if Ukraine didn't have enough to worry about, the IMF, which lends money to places like Ukraine, is worried about Ukraine's budget deficit, which could increase by the end of the year by as much as 4% of Ukraine's GDP. You can't join the EU if your budget deficit is as much as 4% of your country's GDP. Get your, get your act together, Ukraine. Otherwise, the IMF 
isn't going to lend you more money. The IMF says, quote, increasing loss of physical capital stock and mass migration will result in a significantly more pronounced output contraction, an output contraction. That's what uh, Ukraine is facing right now. The IMF warns there could be a collapse in trade flows, further diminished tax collection capacity, and a greater deterioration in the fiscal and external positions. That's the IMF, which is worried about getting its money back from uh, Ukraine. That's how the IMF works. It lends money to distressed nations. They can't balance their budget. And then they privatize everything the oligarchs haven't taken. This is this is bad news for the IMF. And, you know, mass migration, 2.5 million people have left Ukraine. That's going to wreak havoc on their labor supply. They're going to have to pay more for to get a Ukrainian worker in Ukraine. What is the IMF going to do? Oh, my God. That is the most important issue facing Ukraine. The, the labor shortage, the, the price of labor is going to go up because everybody's leaving. You can't Ukraine. That, by the way, the IMF will we'll talk about the IMF and the World Bank, the gangsters for capitalism later tonight. Ukraine's President Vladimir Zelensky once again urged NATO to implement a no fly zone over his country. Here in America, a majority of Americans say they would support NATO creating a no-fly zone area over the humanitarian convoys in Ukraine. While American no-fly zones have worked over countries where America possessed vast uh, air superiority, this week in Foreign Affairs magazine, it was reported that America has never attempted a no-fly zone over territory patrolled by a nation whose air power was evenly matched to America's. This is uh, not so easy to implement a no-fly zone when you're competing with Russian MiGs who might possess nuclear arms. On Wednesday, Ukrainian President Zelensky will go on Zoom to address a joint session of the United States Congress, President Biden is under pressure now to increase military assistance by sending jet fighters to the capital city of Kiev. Mark Bernstein, one of Russia's top editors for Wikipedia, was arrested today for distributing fake anti-Russian information about the invasion of Ukraine. Some of the fake information he's been accused of spreading is calling it an invasion. You're not allowed to call it an invasion in Russia. Vladimir Putin is now threatening to make Wikipedia unavailable to the Russian people. A Russian airstrike of 30 missiles on a Ukrainian military base 15 miles from the Polish border, killed 35 Ukrainians and injured 135. Ukraine used the airbase so its soldiers could train with NATO advisors. Now, while Ukrainian officials say 35 Ukrainians were killed, the Russian government insists they killed 180 Ukrainian soldiers at that base. 
Russia today said it will increase airstrikes on all Ukrainian military bases and arms factories. Russia accused Ukraine of using cluster bombs on Russian separatists fighting in the Donbass region to the east of Ukraine. Russia's defense minister issued a warning today. He said, we urge citizens of Ukraine working at these enterprises, those enterprises meaning arms manufacturers, as well as the residents who live nearby arms manufacturers, we urge them to leave immediately. The Chinese government denies reports in the Financial Times and the Washington Post that Vladimir Putin has run out of military equipment and is asking China to provide some. Jake Sullivan, America's national security advisor, had a meeting with Yang Yichi, a senior Chinese official in Rome on Monday. He then went on to warn that China is entertaining the idea of providing military equipment to Russia. A pregnant woman and her baby that were trapped inside, who were trapped inside a maternity hospital Last week in the besieged city of Maripol, attacked by Russian bombs, uh, they died today. In northern Ukraine, uh, the Russians are bombing maternity hospitals. In northern Ukraine, nine people were killed, nine wounded after Russia launched an airstrike on a television tower. There are reportedly still more bodies to be removed from the rubble. Russia continues to bomb Kiev the capital city, Ukraine's capital city, with heavy artillery. A nine-story apartment building in northern Kiev was hit by artillery shells today. Two people reportedly died. The apartment building was 100 yards from an elementary school. As the war went into its 19th day, Russia and Ukraine continued peace negotiations on Monday. It was the fourth round and will continue Tuesday. NBC News reports that the peace talks are now taking place via video link. Last week, negotiators met personally in Belarus. Now they're doing it via video link. U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken and Dmitry Kuliba, Ukraine's Secretary of State, talked on Sunday. Our Secretary of State Blinken called the invasion, quote, Putin's war of choice. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken then said America remains steadfast in its solidarity with the Ukrainian people. Today, Russian President Vladimir Putin and Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett talked on the phone for 90 minutes. Israel says Bennett urged Putin for a ceasefire and made arrangements for Israel to deliver humanitarian aid. On Saturday, the Israeli prime minister spoke with Ukrainian President Zelensky. Uh, last Tuesday, there were reports that the Israeli president called Zelensky, uh, a prime minister, the Israeli prime minister called Zelensky and reportedly instructed Zelensky to surrender to Russia. A spokesman for the Israeli government, however, says this story is not true, that the prime minister of Israel, Naftali Bennett, never advised Ukraine to surrender. Meanwhile, Israel has asked Ukraine to stop asking Israel for military assistance. Israel says they're trying to serve right now as an impartial mediator in the dispute. The Israeli government today said they will build a hospital in western Ukraine 
to give care to refugees trying to flee the fighting. The Russian government says it has accepted 250,000 Ukrainian refugees who have fled Ukraine after Russia invaded. You know, there's a great way to uh, slow down the flow of uh, Ukrainian refugees into your country, Vladimir, and that would be to pull out of Ukraine. Russia says Ukraine has killed 20, injured 28 in a military strike against separatists in the Donbass region. They're accusing them of using cluster bombs. Russia is accusing Ukraine of using cluster bombs. One of Vladimir Putin's closest advisors, the chief of the National Guard, Viktor Zolotov, admitted on Sunday that the Russian war effort was not going exactly as planned. Zolotov blamed far-right neo-Nazi Ukrainian soldiers using civilians as shields. He made those comments during a church service led by Orthodox Patriarch Kirill. That's a, that's a good Easter service. Apologizing for how the war effort's going. Nothing speaks Jesus more than apologizing to the congregation for not killing enough people. COVID cases are beginning to spike once again in parts of Europe. While masks are coming off here in America, over in Shenzhen, a Chinese tech and manufacturing hub near Hong Kong has been ordered to go into lockdown after new reports of growing cases of Omicron among the city of 17 million. A lot of Apple equipment comes out of the city of Shenzhen through Foxconn. They have factories. Foxconn has factories in Shenzhen. There were 3,500 new cases of COVID reported across China on Sunday. On Monday, China's stock market dropped 7% as fears of a new nationwide wave of COVID stoked fears for those in the Chinese travel and gaming industry. We're, we're not out of the woods yet. What happens in China and Europe eventually happens here in the United States, where more than 968,000 people have died from the coronavirus, with more than 80, 80 million cases reported, 80 million cases of COVID reported. Joe Manchin said today he would vote against the nomination of Sarah Bloom Raskin to serve as the Federal Reserve's top banking regulator, thereby killing her nomination. And of course, the planet, Joe Manchin from West Virginia, the Democrat, said he opposes Raskin because during her hearings, she spoke of the importance of the Federal Reserve taking into consideration the effects of climate change when it makes its financial decisions. Do you think Joe Manchin wakes up every morning and asks, how can I be a, an even bigger asshole today? Joe Manchin, professional asshole. What an asshole. The wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, Virginia, Ginny Thomas, today for the first time admitted in public that she attended the January 6th 
2021 Stop the Steal rally, where Donald Trump and Rudy Giuliani encouraged supporters to storm the Capitol. Ginny says she left immediately after the rally and did not storm the Capitol. But that morning, the day of the attack on the Capitol, she posted to social media, quote, love MAGA people. God bless each of you standing up or praying. I, standing up would be uh, attacking the Capitol. That is the wife of Clarence Thomas. He is a Supreme Court Justice, they're supposed to be impartial. President Joe Biden attends a DNC fundraiser tonight in Washington. This will be his first in-person political fundraiser since he took office. Glad he's taking time to do a fundraiser for the DNC. What else does he have on his plate? Former President Barack Obama says he tested positive for COVID. Elon Musk took to Twitter this morning, challenging Vladimir Putin to a fistfight over the situation in Ukraine. Challenging Vladimir Putin to a fistfight over Ukraine. What is Elon Musk like, not stoned? Is he not stoned? What, what, what is he thinking? Smoke a joint, Elon, you're losing it. Although I would enjoy seeing a fight between Elon Musk and Vladimir Putin, because you just know Putin would kick that doughy ass. Elon Musk, where sexual harassment and the use of the N-word is prominent at his Tesla factories. Pay attention to the lawsuits that uh, very, you know, he's from South Africa, and apparently some of his factories uh, took along some... Uh, pre-post-apartheid behaviors from South Africa. If you were an African-American working for Elon Musk, uh, it wasn't pleasant, and the lawsuits reveal that. 65 corporations published an ad in the Dallas Morning News on Friday asking Texas Governor Greg Abbott to stop persecuting the LGBTQ community. They didn't say persecuting. They wouldn't go that far, but that's what, that's what Greg Abbott is doing. He's persecuting the LGBTQ community, but uh, these corporations ask politely to, to stop. The companies include Google, IBM, Patreon, Ikea, LinkedIn, Apple, PayPal, Microsoft, and Capital One. All right. How about economic sanctions? How about you stop doing business with Texas? What if we just stop importing Texas oil? How about we just declare economic sanctions against Texas? And I know the people who listen to me in Texas would agree. Meanwhile, our friends over at AT&T and Walmart have gone back on their pledge not to donate to any members of the U.S. Senate or Congress who voted against certifying the election of Joe Biden as president. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. This is a pledge-isode. I'm asking you to go to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com, and hit the donate button. We are trying to grow this show out. We have a crew. I'll tell you about the crew when we come back. Keep 
listening. The David Feldman Show. He's talking politics and comics too. To tell a dirty joke, he knows quite a few. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a human man with an Emmy for right. Some days he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. So get your ears all right, buckle in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. Yes, it's time right now on the David Feldman Show. Get your ears on right, buckle in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming away. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. Traveling light, got everything I need. Got a little bottle of wool light and a little bag of weed. Got to saw bellow novel, cause I really like to read. I'm traveling light. I'm a creature of the road, got no regrets. Gave up my postal code and cigarettes. I'm doing much better with a touch of Tourette's. I'm traveling light. Just need a clean room in a Motel 6. Not too close to downtown, but not out in the sticks. I need my pen and teller magic kit so I can do my tricks. Got my favorite pillow, which I call Mr. Fluffy. Four kinds of allergy pills in case I get stuffy. A pound of Epsom salts, cause my ankles get puffy. I'm traveling light. I got two pairs of socks and shorts in my little valise. A couple of passports and my sex doll Denise. I'm staying real quiet so they don't call the police. I'm traveling light. Sedatives and my antipsychotics. High speed parallax motor, cause I'm into robotics. And my little red speedo, I like to do aquatics. I'm traveling late. Got my CPAP machine and my George Foreman grill. A copy of Lolita and my little blue pills. A Navajo blanket. I'm traveling light Got my margarita mix And my rusty old blender A 50 tequila In case I go on a bender My attorney's number In case I want to change my gender I'm traveling light I'm traveling light 
Bike, so I have a place to hang my pants. My very valuable Hummel collection, a menorah made of fish heads, a Christmas tree. I like to keep my options open, don't you know? A shoe shine kit, a skill saw, a crossword book, a large supply of mechanical pencils, a year's worth of New York magazines I've been trying to get around to read, some scripts that I've been tweaking for those people in LA, and my enemies list. <laughs> We're back. Now you can hear me, right? Okay. Welcome back to the David Feldman Show. DavidFeldmanShow.com. Stumbling through another episode. This is a pledge episode. We have them rarely. We may be doing more depending on how well this pledge episode does please go to davidfeldmanshow.com we accept all major credit cards we have a a crew of people who are putting this show together there's dan frankenberger in the newsroom we also have the invisible ninja who is building out our youtube channel great job over there we have joe in norway who is keeping office hours going we along with the moderators we also have Andy Brown, who keeps our Discord going. We have Sarah Bush. We have Grace Jackson. We have Hannah Feldman. We have Professor Jonathan Bick. I left somebody out. Joe in Norway, Jonathan Bick, Grace Jackson, Sarah Bush, Hannah Feldman, uh, Dan, the Invisible Ninja. I'm, I'm leaving somebody out. I don't know who it is. And Andy Brown, I think that I think I named everybody. I think that is well. This show is going to keep getting better and better uh, as we grow out our crew, but it costs money, and I don't want to be a pain in the ass. But we need money to grow this show, so please go to davidfeldmanshow.com and hit the donate button. Please, we also have a Patreon account, and there's a way to. Do super chats if you're watching us live now on YouTube. We'll talk to Dan in a few minutes. I think he's got a Godfather quiz for me. So we'll do that and read the super chats if there are any. Thank you to the Invisible Ninja and Andy Brown keeping the uh, YouTube and the Zoom room chats going. They're moderating the chats right now. Lee Camp from RT America will be joining us a little later on. For those of you 
who are fans of Lee's, you'll be disappointed to know that RT America was shut down. I believe it was on the 3rd of March, so we'll find out about that. We're also going to be talking with Mickey Huff. He's the director of Project Censored. He's president of the Media Freedom Foundation, as well as co-editor of a brand new book, Project Censored's State of the Free Press 2022. He comes on in about 20 minutes. And his new book is Project Censored's State of the Free Press 2022. We're going to talk about freedom of the press. And then we're joined by our friends from This Is Revolution, who are going to talk about the state of American journalism as well. So we're going to be talking about the media today, especially independent media. This show is independent media. Please go to davidfeldmanshow.com, hit the donate button. We accept all major credit cards. We have no corporate sponsorship. We have no advertising. We have no sugar daddies. The Our sugar mamas are the listeners. It's entirely listener supported. We accept all major credit cards. Please go to my website, hit the donate button. If everybody listening right now donated $10 a month, I could grow a world-class news gathering operation, a world-class university, and a world-class comedy think tank. But it takes money to do this. We're on the verge of this, but you have to pay people. You have, not you, I have to pay people. And we give away a lot of stuff for free and we'll give it away for free always, no matter what. But some of you who are doing well and listen to this show, please step up and donate to this important program because there's no such thing as independent media. There's no such thing. We call this independent media, but I am dependent on the listeners. I depend on you. If anybody produces content in America, they are dependent on someone. There's no such thing as independent media. Print media depends on advertisers and subscribers. They have to answer to their audience and, of course, their corporate paymasters. And they like to think that doesn't influence their coverage, but it does. The same goes for cable and broadcast television. They are identical. And then there's independent media, which takes advertising and relies on donations. There's independent media. They call themselves independent media, but at the same time, they're taking advertising and donations. But here too, the content providers, while calling themselves independent, are in fact dependent in many ways on the same people print and cable journalists are dependent on. It's just a smaller, it's just a smaller outfit that they're running. It's not as big as MSNBC, but uh, you're, you're dependent on the same people. Uh, independent media isn't corporate run, but it does rely on corporate funding like NPR, which you should never give money to. They run advertising. Most of their money goes towards raising more money. People at NPR make 
six, seven figures a year. They're not independent media. They're not independent media. You cannot hear the conversations we have on this show. You cannot hear them on NPR. So we don't rely on corporate funding. We don't run ads. There are no sugar mamas. All we have are you, the listeners, to donate money. Go to davidfeldmanshow.com. We accept all major credit cards. This is a pledge episode. I'm sneaking in. Well, I'm not sneaking it in. I'm pretty blatant today. Go to David Feldman Show. This is a pledge episode. Go to davidfeldmanshow.com and donate. We accept all major credit cards. Or if you're watching us live right now on YouTube, a super chat would be nice. We'll read all the super chats out loud today. I am dependent entirely on you, the listeners. Again, I don't run commercials. Uh, I make pennies from the ads that YouTube runs. If I can get enough money from donations, I would love to stop running ads on YouTube, although I'm making pennies on it. I just want to see if we can do something with that. Uh, let me tell you where we're going with this show and why you need to donate. There's a staff, there's crew, and they need to be paid. I don't do interns. We have Dan Frankenberger, Joe from Norway, The Invisible Ninja, Professor John, Andy Brown, Sarah Bush, and Hannah Feldman. They work tirelessly behind the scenes to produce this show, and they deserve to be paid. If you go to the David Feldman YouTube channel, you will see the work that's being done. You will see that this is no longer a one-man operation. We are growing out the channel. Individual segments of each episode are now being carved up into smaller, digestible morsels for all of you to enjoy and share for free. That takes up a lot of time. That's really hard to do. I hate doing it. I won't do it. And it's laborious. It's tedious. We need people to do that for the show, like Invisible. As the days go on, you will hear and see slight improvements. There'll be new flourishes and touches. That's only because I'm getting help, but they need to get paid. So go to davidfeldmanshow.com and donate. We accept all major credit cards. Or if you're watching us live right now on YouTube, a super chat would be nice. I'll read your super chats out loud a little later on in the show. This is a great, great podcast because of the people who help get it going and the community, the community that shows up at office hours. Just because we're all left of center doesn't mean we don't need money. Well, let me talk about the media because we have uh, Lee Camp coming up at eight o'clock and we're going to be talking about censorship in about 15 minutes. So we're going to be talking about RT America. I want to go on record and say I believe in state-run media. I believe in state-run media. I wish we had official state-run media in America. We don't. I believe the BBC and the CBC 
are state-of-the-art news-gathering operations, and they are essentially state-run media, essentially. The best reporting that came out of the illegal invasion of Iraq and the illegal invasion of Afghanistan, it came from Al Jazeera, Qatar's news-gathering operation. Qatar, I don't know if it's Qatar's official state media, but it's funded entirely by Qatar. Now, Al Jazeera was demonized here in America. They were even attacked in Afghanistan and Iraq by our military. Journalists for Al Jazeera were killed by our military, some would say on purpose, on November 13th, 2001. A United States missile hit Al Jazeera's office in Kabul, Afghanistan, during the invasion of that country. Al Jazeera reporters were killed by American troops in Iraq. State media, state media is a good thing. It reflects the values of the state that is paying for it. The BBC and CBC straddle the values of its labor and conservative parties. That keeps things, you know, within the Overton window, which is not great, but it does make for something resembling objective journalism because the CBC and the BBC have to answer to both the Labor Party and the Tories. That, that is at least... Uh, a recipe for uh, objective news reporting if you only filter the news through the prism of left and right. Uh, we have no analog here in America. We don't have state media. We should. We should have state media. There is no greater news gathering operation than the government of the United States. And I'm not just talking about the NSA and the FBI spying on us. I'm talking about real news gathering operation that really goes buried and it shouldn't. We have inspector generals. Every agency in the federal government has an inspector general. That's what reporting is. They report on waste, on crime committed in the federal government. Inspector generals are a, a, a wonderful resource for news, objective news. The General Accounting Office, the Congressional Budget Office, we have committee hearings. Watch a committee hearing in the Senate or the House. You hear both sides. You're going to hear from Matt Gates, and you're going to hear from Ro Khanna. You're going to hear from both sides when there are hearings. There are reams of objective information produced every day by our federal government that is not just accurate, but reliable. It's accurate because it needs to hold up under the scrutiny of both Democrats and Republicans. American state media should just report what the government is finding out. America, American state media would reflect the values of America, which means it would be required to report 
both sides equally. We kind of see that a little bit on C-SPAN. A state-run news operation would report what the Republicans are saying, what the Democrats are saying. They would be held accountable to interview people from third parties. It would have to answer to all sides. Now, that's objectivity, which is a myth. There's no such thing as objectivity. Objectivity is a a product of journalism schools, which started to pop up in the early part of the 20th century when journalism became a profession and reporters were expected to be objective. But how objective could they really be when they're working for a capitalist? There's no such thing as objective journalists. Everybody has their own bias. And more importantly, when you are paid to write, you are expected to satisfy the needs of your employers. It's why John McWhorter, the linguist, has a column for The New York Times, but our friends from This Is Revolution don't. Now, before journalism schools here in America, you knew what you were getting when you opened a newspaper. You knew if the paper you were reading reflected the views of the Federalist Party or the Democratic Party, the Whigs or the Republican Party, because each party had their own newspapers. You knew what you were reading. And we're slowly reverting back to that with these information silos. And maybe we shouldn't fight the information silos. I think it might be a good thing. Uh, but just acknowledge that these are not fair and biased, like Fox claims to be. These are these are new silos. Look, elections cost billions of dollars every cycle. With all that money, you would think the Democrats would put out a national newspaper. They used to have Think Progress, which was kind of a Democratic, an arm of the Democratic Party. The Democrats should put out a, a daily newspaper and cover the news the best way they can. And the Republicans, you know, they have Fox News, but they should have their own newspaper funded by the Republican Party. You know what the bias is. The United Auto Workers used to have a chain of radio stations. When you tuned in, the Reverend Barry Lynn used to have a show on the United Auto Workers radio network. When you tuned in, you knew exactly who was funding the news and what their bias was. It was pro-union. That's a good thing. I would love to hear the news daily from a union's perspective. All the money the AFL-CIO raises, they should put out a daily newspaper. I would even love ExxonMobil to put out a newspaper. Instead of paying lobbyists to disguise the money they're getting from ExxonMobil and doing interviews on CNN and MSNBC, just put out a newspaper. They, you know, they, the ExxonMobil used to publish uh, paid they used to pay for op-ed columns on the New York Times op-ed page. And I would read those things, and I believed it was fair. You knew it was being paid for by ExxonMobil. It was bullshit, but at least it was honest bullshit. We need more news. Journalism, journalism isn't dying. Objective journalism is dying. And maybe we need to embrace this. Maybe... We need to be out front with our biases. Maybe unions need to step up 
and put out newspapers, have their own radio networks. Political parties need to step up, have their own newspapers, magazines, and political parties. Even universities need to step up and fill the gap left by corporate media, even though most universities are corporate-owned. Corporate media wouldn't be garbage if there were alternative forms of propaganda. The problem with corporate media is it tries to pass itself off as objective when it's nothing but corporate propaganda. And that's okay if they would just admit, if, if, if Rachel Maddow would just admit that she's a shill for the pharmaceutical companies, I would be okay with it. That would be honest. MSNBC, CNN, they will never challenge the corporate status quo. They run commercials. How could they? We need state-owned media with no commercials that's, that's owned and operated by our federal government. We need unions and progressive think tanks to step up and start producing newspapers, magazines, radio, and television networks that are funded solely by these these leftist groups, which brings me to RT, RT America, which shut down on March 3rd. Lee Camp will be joining us at eight o'clock to discuss this. I watched Lee Camp on Redacted Tonight. It's a great show. I watched uh, Hedges on, on RT. They had us great documentaries that were hypercritical of the United States. And I like that because I love America. I don't love Russia. I love America. This is my country. And we are not critical enough of this country. So I trusted RT to criticize America. Who better to point out everything that's wrong with America than Vladimir Putin? They tended to focus on income inequality and homelessness, something you don't really hear that much about on mainstream media. I was sad to see RT go. I don't know why exactly we can't get RT on YouTube anymore. They've shut down the, uh, I believe RT has been shut down on YouTube, not just DirecTV. So I'm going to speak to Lee Camp about this. Uh, DirecTV shut down RT. And the reason I think DirecTV shut down RT America is because there aren't enough legitimate news sources here in America to challenge Vladimir Putin. Here in America, we are terrified of somebody slipping in some truth about NATO expansion and promises and threats made to Vladimir Putin. If we had a, a vital press here in the United States, there would be plenty of room for RT's propaganda. Rather than open up the spigots and let the truth get revealed, we push for censorship. We, we, we push for shutting these things down and infantilizing the American people and destroying our democracy. You cannot have a vibrant democracy without news.
good, well-researched news coming from experts with their bias. I was sad to see RT disappear. When we come back, we're going to talk about news censorship with the author of State of the Free Press 2022, Mickey Huff. He's also the author of United States of Distraction, Media Manipulation and Post-Truth America and What We Can Do About It. We will be right back. Chairs in this Bessemer shop. The back and outdated don't ever seem to stop. A man went down cause his heart gave out. Get back to work, we heard them shout. They said the EMTs are common, that's what they're for. And life slipped away on the cement floor. The bookstores are all gone away Got me some books, I'll read them someday Right now I got to make my raid and all these extra shifts If I can make it to Christmas Eve The kids will have nice gifts And the big boss will have more money So he can go up into space But there still won't be no chairs In this Bessemer place Last year we had a meeting and they made us go. They gave us all pins and said, vote no. But maybe this year union can give us a little more and put some chairs on this Bessemore floor. I'm hoping the union might make things right. Some days I just don't have the strength to fight. This plant down here can take its toll. It'll break your body. It'll crush your soul. Feels like this packing ain't never gonna stop. And there still ain't no chairs in this Bessemer shop.
you, thank you, thank you, Professor Mike Steinell, AmazonLaborUnion.org. They're doing a fundraiser this weekend. Go yeah. to AmazonLaborUnion.org and support Christian Smalls. Mickey Huff is coming up in a second. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, DavidFeldmanShow.com. This is a pledge episode where I ask you for money. Please go to DavidFeldmanShow.com and donate what you can. We accept all major credit cards. We are commercial free. We have no sugar mamas, no sugar daddies. We are only beholden to the listeners and caffeine. Unfortunately, Starbucks, unfortunately. Our next guest is Mickey Huff. He's written United States of Distraction, Media Manipulation and Post-Truth America and what we can do about it. He's also director of Project Censored, president of the Media Freedom Foundation and co-editor of the new book, Project Censored's State of the Free Press 2022. Welcome, Mickey Huff. Thanks so much for having me, David. It's a pleasure to be on with you. Thank you. And you have a show on Pacifica. Yes, we do. The Project Censored show has been on since 2010. And uh, I do that. I started it with Peter Phillips, and now I'm co-hosting with Eleanor Goldfield. We do a weekly hour-long public affairs show that focuses on all things media, and particularly media censorship and propaganda, as well as critical media literacy. We had Professor Phillips on this show a few years back, and uh, and KPFA is part of the Pacifica Network uh I'm going to say uh, screwed up family. Is that a fair thing to say? Oh, that's more than fair. That's probably generous. But yes, you're right. It's a, it's a, but it's a fantastic historic institution, as yeah. you know, yeah. going back to the post-World War II pacifism. Yes. Um, so, but yeah, warts and all, Pacifica is yeah. a unique place and there's a lot of voices there that you will not hear in the corporate press or even at PBS or NPR. Right, exactly. So you've been following censorship in America since 1976. The Project Censored uh, organization has been around since 1976. That's right. I got involved in the mid 2000s and have been director since 2010. And uh, Andy Lee Roth, our associate director, and I do this book every year, uh, sort of the state of the free press that looks at underreported stories, but also analyzes what else is going on in the corporate media landscape the independent and alternative media landscape, as well as not just looking at problems, but we also try to look at solutions and we look at organizations that are really trying to make a difference in the media. Right. So let's, I don't want to talk about international censorship and I don't want to talk about journalists being killed overseas. That's in fact, we lost one today. Understood. I, yeah, I, I want to talk about here in America. We like to think that this is the golden age of investigative journalism, thanks to the internet. We have a free and open society, and we have one of the most relaxed. Our First Amendment allows some of the most relaxed speech. I, I think you. I don't think there's a country in the industrialized world that allows uh, the kind of speech that's allowed. We we. We have relaxed libel and slander laws. Are we seeing more or less censorship since you started? Well, unfortunately, David, I think we're seeing more, but we're also seeing, um, we also saw an explosion of many more outlets, right? 
uh, and we've seen sort of the not only the, the growth online blogs and etc but we've also seen a rise in podcasting right as a major media source or information source but back to the point about when I originally said more censorship, you know, what you just said is, uh, I would say, a pretty accurate statement about about the sort of state of free oppression in the United States. However, uh, this also can be true. Uh, the Press Freedom Index places the United States around 44th or 45th globally. So how can those two things both be true? Well, I guess it depends on the subject matter, depends on the topics, depends on the source, uh, and it depends on definitions, right? Um, nowadays in the social media landscape where many people go to get information, even though these are not journalistic outlets, um, we've seen in the last five years, six years, the whole fight against fake news and problems of misinformation. Um, and this has been the battle cry of the censors, the so-called fact checkers, um, the deplatformers and so on saying that, well, uh, we need to do this for the public's own good. There's too much misinformation and damaging information around, um, the whole fact checking is turned into its own cottage industry as it were. And it's interesting because, you know, on the surface of it, this, none of these things sound problematic. In fact, they sound like reasonable ideas. How do you, how do you, uh, how do you really police uh, information that gets out in a society like ours that mm -hmm. does have pretext of, of openness and the right to know, but as always, Dave, the devil's in the details. Um, so, Mickey, let me ask you, let me ask you about censorship and how we define it. As I see it, there are three types of censorship. There's government censorship, corporate censorship or self-censorship. And here in America, it really falls really under the category of corporate censorship. It's basically uh, all corporate censorship. Uh, what the government doesn't want us to know is pretty much what corporations, what they're doing for corporations overseas. What do you see as the uh, biggest problem here in America? Government censorship, corporate censorship, or self-censorship? Or is there a different type of censorship that I'm not aware of? I think I would subsume them all under the rubric of cultural censorship in a lot right. of ways, which is political, economic, uh, across the spectrum. You know, there are certain people that we just don't get to hear from. And there are certain people that you can't not hear from because they're on all the time. Right. And it's not just the people, it's the messages. Right. And I, I you hit the nail on the head. We're talking about corporate censorship here. But because prior restraint historically um, is something that looks at government First Amendment issues, that the government can't interfere with the reporting of information, but it historically has, and it historically has censored information. We know that from Daniel Ellsberg to WikiLeaks. So we know that that's still a challenge and a problem, but the far more pervasive, pernicious- Well, let me ask you about- me, I'm sorry, go ahead, I interrupt. No, no, go ahead. I'm sorry, no, no, go please, ahead. please, I interrupt. I apologize, go ahead. No problem. I was just going to get to the idea that what we're dealing with is a censorship of of omission, of distortion. And this is in the corporate news media. When you've got six corporations governing roughly 90 percent of a lot of these different outlets. And now you've got a handful of five tech companies that are you know curating all this kind of information. We've got a real bottleneck going on. So censorship at Project Censored is something that we define as anything that interferes with the free flow of information in a society that purports to have a free press system. But we also submit that free press systems should be submitting to Society Professional Journalist Code of Ethics when reporting. And when you kind of look at these two things together, 
um, that really kind of highlights what we think what, what an ideal open society or free press society would look like. And then when you take a look at what we actually have, it's a bit far afield from that. Let's go over some examples. I have a couple that I want to check run by you. When DirecTV pulls RT America, is that censorship? That's corporate censorship, right? Absolutely. 100%. I agree with that statement, although many will not. Um, many will say it's a private corporation and they have the right to decide what they what, what they're doing, who they're allowing to be on, who's heard, who's not. It's a it's a business decision. Um, and again, there's truth to that. And the courts have certainly upheld that. What we have argued, however, and as time goes by, this seems to be more and more the case. And we write about this in our new book as we write about censorship by proxy. And I just wrote another piece about this the other day about RT. Um, Russia Today, I've been on RT America. I've had friends at RT America. Um, I know people that just lost their jobs at RT America, including one Pulitzer Prize winning journalist named Chris Edges. Mm -hmm. The bigger question here, there's two things going on. Corporate, this censorship by proxy, because we have a lot of these big tech companies and corporate media ownership, um, they all can decide that these are their platforms and, and they are trusted with airwaves or the technological equivalent of the internet. Um, and so they get to make these decisions. Here's something that we've argued, however, about these new gatekeepers, as it were, right? We have fact checkers as information and narrative curators, but they're people that are like from the Atlantic Council, which is the PR arm of NATO. Which is um, run by David Rubenstein, who runs the Carlyle Group, the world's yeah. largest arms yeah. profiteer in the world. He also runs the Kennedy Center. The Atlantic Council is run by David Rubenstein. Isn't that amazing? It's pretty amazing that most people don't uh, aren't aware of these things because the corporate media don't really call it out. And they just look like fancy names over at Meta or Facebook of like, well, right. this looks like an institution that could judge what's true or false information. Again, we lack critical media literacy education and we lack that kind of asking of questions, the, in, the, uh, the inquiry of, well, who wants me to see these messages or who doesn't right. want me to see these messages? The big problem with the tech deplatforming is that all these tech companies, if you go back and you trace the technology to post-World War II during the Cold War, right? Feels like we're still in there. Um, these companies basically use technology that was all started with money from DARPA, money from the Pentagon. Uh, all this tech technology was designed under the Orwellian guise of defense, which we often know in U.S. history has been more offense um, for invasions, occupations, surveillance, etc. And so it becomes harder for these companies to say that they they don't benefit from from government ta uh, taxpayer money, from government support, from subsidies. DARPA is the uh, Defense Department's Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, right. and they've been involved in everything from GPS, drones, uh, tracking and surveillance programs, the Internet. The Internet. Yeah. We can go on and on here, but for these companies to act as if they're only private, they want it both ways. And given that they have essentially captured the public commons, right, corp our corporatist culture has basically subsumed what we would think of as the public commons in a way. And the, F and the FCC has long been captured, a regulatory captured body that does the industry's bidding. We really have real problems of censorship and omission and distortion. Right. Let me, let me ask you. Yeah. Maintaining the illusion of a free press. Let me ask you. So so if DirecTV bans RT America, 
you consider that censorship, as do I. I agree with you. If Spotify gets complaints about one of their hosts who they pay $200 million, they get complaints that he's spreading misinformation about COVID, telling people not to get vaccinated and uh, singing the praises of ivermectin, even though there's no scientific evidence to suggest that it cures or prevents COVID. Is it censorship when a, a corporation gets rid of somebody because they're spreading misinformation? Is that censorship? Yes and no. Who's determining what the misinformation is? Who's controlling those narratives? What's the desired end or goal of that? You know, there's another issue afoot here, too, that has been blurred by infotainment over the decades, is that who exactly is an expert? Who is a journalist? Um, last I checked, Joe Rogan didn't pre even pretend to be a journalist, let alone you know, claim he was one. Um, the, the bigger question well, here is... You know, I get, I get people complain that I do my own censorship by uh, by uh, interrupting people. But we have limited time and I hope you come back. Is it against, is it censorship if the Federal Trade Commission says to a company like Geritol, you can't say that it prevents colds? When, when the Federal Trade Commission sanctions a corporation for faulty advertising, is that censorship? Is it censorship? When the Food and Drug Administration says to Alex Jones, you can't, these boner pills don't work. This is, this is, it's dangerous to sell these boner pills. They don't work and they're, they're, they're dangerous and it's false advertising. Is that censorship? Joe Rogan's not a doctor or a medical care practitioner. So if someone's going to Alex Jones or Joe Rogan for medical advice, that's a literacy problem. But is and, it government censorship when the FTC and the FDA shut down? If they down? do it based on transparently sourced scientific evidence that's made public and they have the interests of public safety in hand, they have been able to successfully argue and claim authority to do such things. But with that authority, they have to be watched. They have to be questioned. They have to be investigated. And I mean back to the deep sense of who are sitting on these committees, who's writing these bills and these laws, where is Alec, where are the lobbyists, where's the money? You know, in the whole COVID issue, you know, the interesting thing is, is the more and more that you quote follow science, the more and more it flows to the top of all the major big pharma corporations. And look, these are some of the most corrupt corporations in the history of the planet. Pfizer alone uh, 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 has paid some of the, the steepest fines in the history of fines against corporations. But yet during the pandemic, someone's on team Pfizer, someone's on team Moderna. It's interesting how liberals and the left quickly embrace um, you know, some of these kind of corporations and conveniently compartmentalize and forget the many areas where they don't have the public interest in mind. And if they were really interested in, in, in mitigating a public health uh, emergency and a major pandemic, why would they be hoarding the miracle vaccines? And why would they be holding it over the heads of other third world countries to not allow them to have it if they were so benevolent? Right. So unfortunately, the issue of censorship is a gray and murky area. And it does require discussion and debate, which is why the solutions of trying to dismiss Russian disinformation and propaganda is to get rid of Russian news channel is overkill.
What you need is you need to have people analyzing, discussing, investigating. You need to have more robust discussion. You need to have ethical journalists that seek truth and report it, minimize harm, act independently, and are accountable and transparent. Those are the four pillars of the code of ethics from the Society of Professional Journalists. They should be nailed to every newsroom in this country, and they should be vigorously followed. And that's what we promote at Project Censored, along with critical media literacy education, to seek out sources that do these things and report in the public interest as a matter of regular course. Have you ever heard of the Geller Report, Pamela Geller? She's an anti-Muslim, far-right political activist, just one of the worst human beings. So I see a, uh, a, a retweet that Donald Trump is going on Joe Rogan. It's a tweet from Donald J. Trump that Pamela Geller retweets. She says, Donald Trump says, I will be on Joe Rogan's show this Friday. And I went, what? He's going to be on Joe Rogan? And I click on the Twitter link and it takes me to Pamela Geller, the, ant the anti-Muslim far-right Trumper. And she posts uh, the, the tweet. It says, Donald J. Trump, I'll be on Joe Rogan's show tomorrow. And I thought, what's wrong with this? And I go, wait a second, wasn't Donald Trump banned from Twitter? And then it says parody account. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, if you're anti-Muslim and far right, you're an ignoramus. And it takes just a little critical thinking that has to be taught yes. in our schools. Which when is you're what that the stupid. Did. TheGellerReport.com. You're that stupid. You're, 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 all you do is complain about Donald Trump being deplatformed on Twitter. And then you see the Donald J. Trump tweet and you retweet it. And how you, you stupid could you up. be? You can't make it up, David. It's, uh, it, the, the, the material is rich and it's out there in the real world. Um, so isn't you, it so can a, can a society function if half the people who live here are stupid? And by that I mean the, the the right wing is taking over our schools. They're showing up at these board of education meetings. Mm -hmm. They're creating. Uh, they're celebrating stupidity. You you can't have a free and open press if half the country lacks critical thinking. And the only way you could be a right winger is through lack of critical thinking. The problem is our schools, isn't it? It's part of it. And what's been happened, what's happened to the schools has happened by design. Like much of the public sector, it's been starved, squeezed out, and corporatized. We wrote about that in United States of Distraction. Ralph Nader did the foreword for that, of course, outlining the historic nature of the half-century-long backslide that took us to get where we now are. Uh, Nolan Higdon and I just finished this book from Rutledge, Let's Agree to Disagree, A Critical Thinking Guide to Communication, Conflict Management, and Critical Media Literacy. So we think that the antidote is education 
We think the free press has to play a big role in that for the general public when following ethical principles, when following critical pedagogical guidelines that we iron out, lay out in this book transparently. We look at many different sides and different angles of the challenges we face, not just from a left perspective, but from across the spectrum. This is what's at stake here. If we are not going to teach or educate people about how they can think independently and critically, someone else will gladly do it for them. Right. The Joe Rogans of the world, the Alex Jones, the whomever else's are there. Tucker's on Fox every night. Hannity's all over the radio and Fox every day and night. Uh, you got Rachel Maddow for the MSDNC over there cheerleading for that the corporate wing Democratic Party. We only have six minutes. You, you are also the author. Please, everybody, please go by Project Censored's State of the Free Press 2022. It's published by our friends over at Seven Stories. Please go by Project Censored's State of the Pr Free Press 2022. Buy it. If it doesn't light a fire underneath you, I will reimburse you. I will. Also go by Mickey Huff's book, United States of Distraction, Media Manipulation and Post-Truth America and What We Can Do About It. I have uh, uh, Go buy that book. If you don't like it, I will reimburse you for that. Uh, your book in uh, the United States of Distraction, was it published by Lawrence Ferlinghetti? That's City Lights. Indeed, it was with it, the great editor Greg Ruggiero. Yeah, it begins with a great quote from Lawrence Ferlinghetti. Our government is a bird with two right wings. They're devoted to the perpetuation and spread of corporate capitalism. Tell me about James Buchanan. We always hear about the Powell memo from the early 70s. Tell me who James Buchanan is and, and what did he do back in the 1950s? This is fascinating. It's in your book. Yeah, it is. Um, um, this has been the topic as some people have written about, you know, Jane Mayer has written about it, McLean's written about it. People that are interested in the history of, you know, dark money, as it were, and money in politics. Buchanan was a really influential academic. And, you know, if you take a look at that post-war period, there are several of them in, in universities of Virginia, Chicago, um, that they were unhappy about what the New Deal was doing to government, civic culture, um, putting too much power in the hands of people, per se, or voters, having the government grow and oversee corrupt practices and so forth. And, of course, that's going to explode into the 1960s. But before the 60s hit, there were there were you know, the John Birch Society, there were people pushing back against this that wanted to have more unaccountable private control. Buchanan is one of the architects of this that was very influential of this sort of privatized culture that is later more infamously described by the Lewis Powell memo. And Powell was, um, you know, really, really, uh, uh, he eventually is on Nixon's Supreme Court. Uh, but he, of course, is really close ties with the Chambers of Commerce and and finance. And, and he wrote in 1971 that the 1960s was off the rails. There was too much democracy, too much free speech, too much academic freedom. Um, and they needed to rein it in. And the way that they had to rein it in was by funding their own media funding their own educational programs and their own think tanks, right? That's where you're going to get things like the Heritage Foundation, the American Enterprise Institute later that spawns things like the Neoconservative Project for the New American Century. Um, 
Hoover Institute. You're going to have all kinds of these think tanks coming up in the 1970s, along with other financial kind of uh, financial bodies um, that you know are really abstract and obtuse to the general public, but they're very, very um, disciplined and targeted on controlling the economy, controlling competition, and controlling narratives through media and education. So this is not a conspiracy theory. This literally was a plan that was hatched in Lewis Powell's memo that later you know, becomes public. And if you trace it back to Buchanan, it's really a blueprint for where we are right now. And in the United States, a distraction, David, you'll notice that we started with a quote from Lao Tzu. If you do not change direction, you may end up where you are heading. And that's been our whole point is that we've been, we've been warned the trajectory has been here. We are heading where we've been going. And if we don't like it, we need to turn it around. How do we turn it around? It's taken a couple generations to get here. So I'm afraid to say, even though it doesn't feel like we have time to turn it around, but a couple generations worth, we've got to start with free press principles. We've got to start with having a more robust free press and open debate. And we've got to do it by having a curriculum in our schools that's based on critical pedagogy, critical thinking. And we need to learn how to agree to disagree. We need to learn how to have open discourse and debates. We need to help teach each other how to listen more empathetically and critically at the same time, such that when we're doing, you know, when we're listening, we're actually hearing people and trying to understand where they're coming from, even the Pam Gellers. Like, where where is the opportunity? Prove to me that this is happening. I mean, you just gave a great example of like, just pretty much sheer idiocy, right? And contradiction going on at one of those tweets. Who's sitting down with these people though and saying, where are you getting this information? Um, you know, in other words, we all have beliefs and opinions, right? And Mark Twain once quipped, get your facts first, then you can distort them as much as you please. We really need to rely on the press to help us figure that out, yeah. not hammer home whatever their ideological blue pill, red pill is of whomever's owning it. But we really need to have honest to goodness, open discussion and debate. And we really need to root out the serious dark money and corporate control over everything from our elections to news media and education. You know, it's really what's at the core of the challenge challenges we face. And in order to do it, we have to support a more robust infusion of public support, whether it be for a true public media, public education. We need to really move away right. from these privatized models, David. Yeah. I apologize for interrupting you. I get a lot of complaints that I interrupt, but we only have 30. We're at, like we're out of time and I want to cover so much stuff. Uh, last question. We know the enemy is corporate America. Is it possible to get reliable information from corporate owned media? Yes, it is. It's just not consistently possible and it's not consistently possible around certain topics like the plutocracy or like oligarchs. The corporate press has recently discovered oligarchy in Russia, um, but for some reason the oligarchs don't seem to live here. Uh, even though one of them owns the Washington Post, where mm -hmm. it's always raining billionaires over there. The billionaires right. can do no wrong. The Washington Post can't seem to find any reasons to tax billionaires. That's no surprise. And, and, this is and, why and the self-censorship over the Washington yeah. Post, I've witnessed it on this show. I've had Absolutely. people from the Washington Post who have called me and said, can you take that thing out about Amazon? And I went, wow, it, it's not explicit. It's just the self-sense. It just makes, if you're owned by Jeff Bezos, he doesn't need to tell you, don't make fun of me. Don't trash 
Amazon. You know not to do it. It's, you don't need a written memo from Jeff Bezos. You don't piss on the boss. We have to wrap it up. Will you come back? I'd love to, David. I'd be honored to do it. Thank I you. really appreciate the conversation and the topics that you have on the show. I know you have my uh, my friend Peter B. Collins on here later yes. today. And, yes. Um, maybe Lee Camp. Is Lee coming on? Lee Camp is coming on at 8. Just covered Lee the other day. So yeah. um, looking forward to seeing that, David. Yeah. Again, it's an honor to be here. It's, and uh, It's an honor to have I you. Let me, let me sell your book. Let me sell Mickey's book. Mickey Huff is the author of United States of Distraction, Media Manipulation in Post-Truth America and What We Can Do About It. He is also the director of Project Censored, and they have a new book out. He's co-editor of the Media Freedom Foundation's new book, Project Censored's State of the Free Press 2022. It's published by our friends over at Seven Stories. Buy these books and support him. We need to support people like Mickey Huff. And if you don't enjoy his books, if they don't light a fire, uh, I'll reimburse you. And here's something you should really do is buy 10 copies of these books and donate them to libraries. And don't buy them from Amazon. Buy them from projectcensored.org or your favorite local independent bookstore. Thank you, Mickey Huff. Please come back. It's great to have you. It's great to My have pleasure. you. My pleasure. Thank, Thank you. you so much. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. This is a pledge-isode. I do these every once in a while where I shamelessly ask you to donate money. We don't run advertising. We are not corporate run. We crap on everybody we want to except the listeners. We are completely beholden to our listeners. Please go to davidfeldmanshow.com and donate. We accept all major credit cards and we are growing the show. We want to grow the show. We are building out our YouTube channel. We are going to build out other things. We have a crew. We have the Invisible Ninja. Of course, Dan Frankenberger. Can't do anything without Dan Frankenberger. We've got Professor John, Joe in Norway, Invisible Ninja, Sarah Bush, Grace Jackson, Hannah Feldman. I'm leaving somebody out. I have it written down. Who have I left out? It's Andy Brown, Sarah Bush, Grace Jackson, Hannah Feldman, uh, Dan Frankenberger, Joe in Norway, and the Invisible Ninja. I think that's it. Nick, Nick. Who? And Professor Jonathan Bick. Do you want to do, when do you want to do, we have our guests. When do you want to do our Godfather tribute and community billboard, Dr. Dan? What, when do you think is a good time? Um, I'll, I'll be up till the end of the show today, and we were, we were missing uh, Professor Bick. He's not going to be here today? No, that's who you were missing in the... Oh, the I, I mentioned him. I did. Okay. Professor Jonathan Bick, Professor Jonathan Bick, Professor Jonathan Bick. So uh, let me, let after Howie Klein, let's go after Howie Klein. Who's on at 7.30? Who do we have? Paul Prescott. Uh, why don't we do 10 minutes before Paul Prescott? Why don't we do that? Sounds good. Thank you, sir. Good. Thank you. I'm going to bring Pascal Robert and Jason Miles in. They are the hosts of This is Revolution. Welcome. 
Pascal Welcome. Robert and Jason Miles. Always great to, to see you. And I want to talk about journalism with you and TV journalism. Is that okay, Pascal? Uh, absolutely and no problem i mean it's your show so you 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 uh talk about phil you. donahue talk about geraldo rivera possibly talk about a video essay that might be circulating around the internet that i really enjoyed how can people see that video essay jason hey uh, got you gotta unmute got him yeah go ahead yeah, mute. uh youtube so you didn't hear the youtube.com backslash this is revolution podcast there is a playlist of video essays it is literally says tir presents uh, this is revolution presents video essays and the latest one we have up is called we don't need another hero and that is about who and who is that about the we is us and who's the hero hero. and the hero is the hero worship that that uh, sometimes happens on the left and the right, it is definitely a bipartisan situation that we find ourselves in. Mr. Zelensky, is, is Zelensky a hero? He's been funded by a Ukrainian oligarch. He's been named, we talked about this, I think in either the Pandora, I think it was the Panama Papers. Is Zelensky a hero? Do we need a hero? I don't think so. I mean, the ability to think collectively is extremely important when you're trying to build out a stronger movement. This country in general is built on hero worship from George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, FDR, even a romanticized view of, of uh, you know, Stalin and Lenin in times past. Uh, where does this stem from? Why do we have it? And how is it toxic when it comes to building out uh, movements? Last, Actually, go ahead, Pascal, think, please. So literally, Jason and I had a conversation about this earlier, but I just had uh, something, an inspiration came in my mind when Jason said, where did this come from? And I'm going to, uh, this might be controversial for somebody, I don't think so. I think this comes from Abrahamic religion. Mm. I really think that the concept of the great man theory of narratives, prophets, and I'm not saying, I'm not trying to condemn those religions, but I believe that the con- the notion of looking for a central masculine figure as the hero of a narrative has a certain Abrahamic resonance that comes from the the religions that come out of that triad, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. There's a lot to be said about that. You know, Samuel, I'm sorry to interrupt you, in the Old Testament, Samuel, the, the Israelis were run by like a prophet, Samuel, and they they wanted a king. They they came to him and said, "Get us a king." And I think it was David. Uh, it's there's an it says in the Old Testament that there seems to be this innate desire for the mob to want to be ruled by a monarch. Well, I mean, part of I mean, if you know, uh, one of the things that you find is a, a trend in scripture, biblical Abrahamic Christ, uh, uh, scripture is the kind of uh, the role of the messianic figure, the deliverer, the one who shall come and and lead the masses, uh, who's pretty much almost always a man. And uh, the narrative of the chosen one, the people who were chosen, the ones who were chosen, and the kind of divine inclination to have a leader be brought down from God that will 
bring people to salvation. I think that's something that is, and I, again, you know, I'm someone who, you know, I have my own personal spiritual beliefs. And, you know, I come from a family of people who are very religious. My position isn't trying to denigrate that or to knock it, but from an analytical perspective to address Jason's question about where do we get this kind of position of always looking for a hero? And literally, and I'm not being facetious, just, in, just now when he said that, I said, you know what? I really think that this is uh, scriptural and it comes from, the uh, Abrahamic tradition in, in many, many, many ways. Jason, yeah. what do you think about that? I mean, part of what I'm writing, that, that is part of the, uh, the hypothesis is the messianic figure that people feel they need. And, you know, that, that comes in many different forms. Uh, in the video essay, um, I, I kind of put Clinton as a bit of a figure that was supposed to save us from the authoritarian regime of 12 years of right-wing rule. Obama. Obama, when that when the Bush Jr. doesn't pan out, Bush Jr. is kind of a savior, in a sense, um, after the events of 9-11. Um, save us, Daddy. Protect me, Daddy. There, there's a lot of that. I mean, let's remember, uh, a lot of people are, that, are, that are coming to the left now are, are, have gotten hyper-politicized, more so on the left, with the rise of Sanders and then the presidency of Donald Trump. But let's remember, hyper-politicization is a newer thing that really, really ramps up after 9-11, and it ramps up on the right, not so much the left. The we're anti-war too, we're movement. Too, we're too lazy. <laughs> We're coming out of an era of, of post-politics, of anti-politics, where anti-heroes are, are being exalted. Um, we're still kind of dealing with that, that moment right now. But if you think about the Bush years and the rise of, and, and this is definitely not a knock on you at all, but the rise of comedians as political pundits and that kind of pushback they constantly give the more serious they're taken uh, is, is kind of a real interesting point to me, especially when we talk about this era of, of anti-politics, especially in the States. It's a, I agree with you. I think it's a, a real problem with comedians giving the news. Well, I mean, one of the things that I think we also I'm have to talk about like John Stewart and, and Stephen Colbert, yeah. right. doing it in, in a fashion that it's, it's not, supposed to be serious and whenever there is serious matters like you know let's let's look at something like tina fey her satire if you will after charlottesville where she's saying all these things about the the horribleness of what's going on with charlottesville and the rise of a neo-nazi right with the authoritarian president and the answer is to eat cake exactly remember that let them eat cake and and it was funny for some some people definitely wrote you know 3000 word medium pieces on it but there's so many examples that we can give in this moment of comedians as political pundits what, was and, she doing a marie antoinette reference or she was just talking about cake no i don't really i wouldn't necessarily say it was a marie antoinette reference um and and even before that, you have John Stewart in this march, and Colbert had the march for something. I can't remember the name to of restore it. Restore sanity. Yeah. Um, did you want to say something, Pascal? I'm sorry. No, no. I, I, I think that you are very correct 
but I think that everything kind of should be put in a certain context. From the rise of the post-World War II period, right, with the advent of television, there's a pivot to a focus of American Americans needing perpetual entertainment. You know, the concept of perpetual entertainment really is a post-New Deal, post-World War II phenomena. You know, I mean, Dave, I mean, sorry, before your time, but like in your grandparents, our grandparents' generation, people sat around and listened to the radio a couple of hours and they got their news and, and that was, and they heard their music. I mean, let's understand for the majority of human history, there is no uh, digital or or analog entertainment at all. There's no records. There's no, you know, you don't hear music. Think about how much people hear music. You realize that basically in the 1800s and before that, music is something that you hear on rare occasions. Well, that goes a lot into, and I talk about it a little bit, but I'm getting more in depth about it in the, in the writing of the, of the, uh, of the article more so than the video essay, which is the deregulation that happens in the eighties and in the nineties. So when you have the ending of the fairness doctrine and definitely when you have the telecommunications act in 96, um, you start to have the rise of talk radio because music is becoming ubiquitous with the rise of apps, Pandora, Last FM, now Spotify, the ability and, and also the MP3 player. So the ability to have all of your music in your hand really started to hurt terrestrial radio. So the one thing that can keep people engaged and that's better at selling ad time becomes talk radio. And that's when you start to have the rise of, of definitely right-wing figures. And what's interesting with talk radio, and you see this, there's actually an interesting, really cool documentary called like the brainwashing of my dad. Yeah. We had her on the show. Oh dude. She's I would great. love to get, I would love to get her contact information yeah. and, and talk to her because a lot of, I, I did take some of her work and some of her references for what I did. Um, if you think about the radical sixties, these people that were radicalized in the 60s were hearing people speak so differently than what the news is. The news was a buttoned-down affair of adults. William Buckley is not Rush Limbaugh. Rush Limbaugh is antithetical to what right-wing propaganda was in the 60s, 70s, and even into the 80s. So if you are a person that got radicalized by seeing Abby Hoffman or the Black Panthers, when you hear someone yelling about your problem, you're more inclined to listen. So when we hear these stories about my father was this, that, and the other, and he was a hippie and he protested, and now he loves Fox News. Fox News speaks to those radical sensibilities. It's a fascinating point that Jason is making here, right? In terms of the mechanism becomes more important than the message. Mm -hmm. You know, you know, bluster, uh, uh, rhetoric, uh, 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 avuncular conversation, in intensity and passion becomes the draw 
as opposed to the substance of what is being said. So when you replicate that communication style with the right wing talking points, because it seems engaging, regardless of the fact that it's antithetical to everything you believed 30, 40 years ago, you're drawn into it. Right. The myth is that there's no audience for left wing talk radio. But the truth is radio is owned by Clear Channel. It is owned by companies that do not allow left-wing talk. If, if it was profitable, they'd allow it. No. Right? I don't believe so. Clear Channel is from San Antonio. Mm -hmm. They own iHeartRadio. Mm -hmm. They were instrumental in the election of George W. Bush. You weren't allowed. There have been some exposés on what you were and weren't allowed to say. Some of their debt ended up, one of the most underreported stories is that Bain Capital, Romney's, oh, uh, owns mm -hmm. some of Bain uh, Clear Channel. That these radio stations, what they did is they bought up all the radio stations in America, not just Clear Channel. Salem, religion, religious, ultra right wing religious companies bought up all these radio stations, racked up massive debt. They're no longer profitable, but they chill speech. Radio is very dangerous. You do not want to hear you and me on radio. It's very dangerous. What? Jason, you want to go? No, no, go ahead. Go ahead, Pascal. I think, I think there's some truth to what you're saying in that there is a version of, I think that the perspective that is allowed within mainstream commercial discourse is liberal and conservative. Conservatives can go as right-wing as maybe the alt-right, but liberal will include everything except a materialist analysis that challenges capitalism and imperialism. In other words, one thing I think that Jason will agree with me, and Jason, correct me if I'm wrong, is that we make a distinction between leftists and liberals. Mm -hmm. I do not consider traditional corporate Democrats the left. Mm -hmm. I know right-wingers try to wholesale, pigeonhole us all together, but I think that there is a difference between liberals who believe that the only thing wrong with America is that there isn't more inclusion in the participation of capitalism with diversity mm. and everything else is fine, and leftists who realize that capitalism is the problem because if the pie is shrinking, having a multiracial Death Star operating chamber doesn't help everyone else. In other words, if you take it to the logical conclusion of liberals, America will be fine if the ruling class is 13% black, 16% white, 14% Latino, X% percent Jewish, X% percent, uh, 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 Italian American, X percent, in other words, proportionally represented. The ruling class is proportionally represented by everyone proportionally and everyone else can be slaves proportionally represented and everything's fine right right in other words if you take liberalism to its logical conclusion that's what you get because the problem 
The problem isn't the distribution of resources. It's the capacity to participate in the already existing di- distribution hierarchy. It's why, that, it's that's why Obama this... said to Joe the plumber, I'm not about redistribution of wealth. Well, he should have been. Obama should well, have been about redistribution. Again, that's that's why the that's why the the video essay kind of starts with Donahue and that era of mid '80s daytime talk shows that really starts to eliminate a lot of soap operas. Not all soap operas, but there was even more soap operas and even more game shows. And with the rise of these talk shows, those shows started to go by the wayside, and they were they were started by serious quote unquote journalists. Geraldo Rivera was a serious journalist. Sally Jesse was a serious journalist at one point in time. Mori Povich was a, a quote unquote serious journalist at one point in time. Um, so that, that first wave of those shows was almost like news shows and they, they covered kind of liberal problems, right? The problem of the rise of a Nazi far right. And I don't even think we used the terminology far right at that time. I think it was just like the rise of the neo-Nazi. Mm-hmm. And it was always a black nationalist who probably had more in common with the conservative and a Nazi. It's just like, I don't like, I don't like you because you're colored. And then they fought. And that was the discourse. That was serious discourse until you get um, the rise of of Bill Clinton and the end of history because we no longer need the big bad, the big bad. I want to respond to someone, someone in the chat who was pushing back saying that no one makes the argument that I'm making about what liberals want. What is diversity, equity, and inclusion? You notice there's one word that's, that's omitted from diversity, equity, and inclusion. You know what that word is? Redistribution. Diverse, if you diversify and get equity and inclusion in a pie that's fixed in its size, what about the people who went outside the pie? All that means is that you diversify people at the top. Now, let me make this clear. Part of the problem when you have leftist talk like this is that liberals will say, well, you just want to have a world where it's back to the battle days where it's all this white man run everything. That's not my point. I'm not saying there isn't some value to having a, a diversified ruling class. Yes, there's representational value. But one of the things that Walter Ben Michaels does a very good job of demonstrating is that in the last 50 years, as we've had a diversified ruling class, the actual inequality between the top and the bottom has gotten bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Let me ask you a question about what what corporate America wants in terms of diversity. On Friday, I talked about this earlier, there was an ad published in the Dallas Morning News asking Texas Governor Greg Abbott to uh, take it easy on the LGBTQ community. The ad was taken out by 65 corporations. They include Google, IBM, Patreon, Ikea, LinkedIn, Apple, PayPal, Microsoft, and Capital One. Now, I would like Texas Governor Greg Abbott to lay off the LGBTQ community. And I agree with uh, these companies for taking that ad out. Uh, how many ads have they taken out uh, complaining about the government not providing food stamps for kids? 
Oh, they don't give it. Look, they don't give a damn about that. And and I don't know if you're friends with with Tom Hartman or if you uh, know Tom Hartman. I know a lot of younger people on the left don't don't pay him much attention. He's been he's been uh, he's supposed to be on this show, and we haven't. Unfortunately, I'm embarrassed to say, due to uh, staffing problems, we haven't been able to follow up. (laughs) He he's made some interesting points about how the infiltration of the far Christian right into things like Texas state legislature has really backfired on the GOP and is causing them to ignite the democratic party. So as we are kind of in this lull in the, in a midterm election, which don't usually get good turnouts. The one reason that you might get a decent turnout this time around is the rise of these ridiculously draconian laws on trans rights and abortion rights. It is firing up a base that was pretty dormant. Fewer and, people are going to church. I mean, few. we are not a religious country. Fewer people identify with organized religion. That's in the West as a whole. I mean, the UK has a, some beautiful empty churches. But Pascal, um, does that make the religious people more dangerous? The fact that they're cornered, there are fewer of them, they feel well, more mean, persecuted. They're going to. I'm going to probably digress from. I'm probably going to digress from a lot of our uh, comrades on the left. Is that I don't believe that religious people are innately dangerous. I believe that the way they are propagandized within their religious traditions makes them reactionary and dangerous. Because for me, as my time as a as a student of religion and as a as someone who had a faith, is that when you read the Abrahamic tradition of uh, of uh, scripture, right, except for one prophet. I would say it's probably King Solomon. You can make the argument that every prophet was a revolutionary. They challenged the state. They challenged the distribution of wealth and resources. And they talked about distributing resources to the poor consistently. But what happens is that when religions become the the property of empires and states, they become tools of oppression and extraction. And I would make the argument is that the problem with uh, Abrahamic tradition and religion is that they do not adhere to the message of their messengers and prophets, but actually adhere to the methodology of the empires that appropriated those those messages as a means to maintain social control and extract wealth and resources. Right. What about faith? Isn't faith a problem? Mm, I don't think so. I'm not. Again, I'm going to maybe diverse with some of our comrades. I don't believe believing in a higher power of divine influence that guides you to a kind of moral, humane worldview is innately corrupting or negative, or bad. I think it can be very, very good. But isn't it, anti, isn't it anti-intellectual? And when you, pl- when you put no. faith into the public square, 
if if you can believe in things that you cannot see and cannot prove, you end up promoting supply side economics. You well, end- my position is that okay, I I but we live in a, a secular society. In other words, I am not saying that religion should be made the state enterprise. I believe that people have the right to their individual faiths as people and should not be condemned because of that. Well, why? So you, as a as a Mar- are you a Marxist? I, I am not an orthodox you know, Marxist. You know, we're not in a gang. Okay. Yeah. In other words, I use Marxism as a tool to challenge capitalism. It's not like a fraternity t-shirt for me. Yeah, we're not we're not in a gang. And I would push back on the whole religion thing. I mean, look at Central America with people like Father Romero. Um, you know, uh, liberation James theology. I, I agree with you about liberation theology, but that's just not just, but that's a byproduct of a vacuum in politics. It would be nice if we didn't need the Catholic Church to speak for the poor. It'd be nice if we had a government that did that. There was a political I, movement in in Central America. If there wasn't, there wouldn't have been U.S. involvement. So I would push back on that and say, no, there was definitely a political movement in that area of Marxists. That's why the Reagan regime was in Central America trying to take them out. So there definitely was political education and knowledge of what Marxism is. You just have people like Father Romero, people like James Cone, hell, people like Chris Hedges, um, the, was it the Brennigans? Brennigans. sorry, am I saying their name right? The, the plowshares. There's a lot of religious figures that are very, very anti-war, that have been very, very uh, anti-racist. And, and, and ExxonMobil is investing some of its money into renewal, renewable energy. But for the most part, when, when you, I believe, when mm-hmm. you introduce religion, it's a one-sided argument. When George W. Bush says his greatest philosopher is Jesus Christ, you cannot then ask him, well, how can you call yourself a good Christian when you invade, illegally invade? It's, religion is off limits because it's okay for one side to, to, to say I'm a religious person, but then to question somebody's right. belief, that's verboten. That's so a very good I, point. No, the way you are framing it now makes sense. In other words, it's used, it's used as a one-sided bat. In other words, I right. invoke it to, 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 to beat down anyone who questions my integrity, but I can't have my religion questioned to question my actions. So, it so, can be used like that. Yeah, I, 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 it can be used that way, and I agree that that's the way it's used in general political discourse, and it's, it's ultimately hypo- hypocritical. And I, I understand why in a secular society there's a value to separating religious discourse from the public thoroughfare. I understand that, and I don't have a problem with that. We are in a secular society. But at the same time, I have a problem with people who are secularists or leftists who turn their own ideological beliefs into a kind of religion and make anyone who does not adhere to that seem like they're ignorant, stupid, and pseudo-intellectual, not a good person, beyond reproach, irredeemable. 
I hate to be rude. We're, we're keeping Matt West and Howie Klein waiting. I hope you're going to come back next Monday. I, I love having you guys on the show. This is very no, no, it's fun. It's fun. Uh, it's we're, we're we're digging it, and and everybody loves this is revolution, and they love uh, uh, these conversations. Pascal Robert and Jason Miles are the hosts of This Is Revolution. Plug away. Well, uh, later tonight, uh, what is it, uh, 9 p.m. Eastern time, we'll be doing our sports show, Beyond the Red Zone. We'll be talking sports from a left perspective. And tomorrow night, we will have Anna Kasparian and Ben Burgess on to talk about the merits of debating right-wing figures. Fantastic. And Pascal? Uh, I will be appearing on Ben Dixon's show on Thursday morning to talk about Eric Adams, mayor of New York, as the new trial balloon for the corporate Democrats as a means to neutralize, neutralize the Bernie Sanders faction of the Democratic Party. Right. Well, at least Eric Adams wants to get rid of chocolate milk in the public schools. That's a step forward. I mean, I'm not saying the guys, you know, everybody got two horns to coming out of his, his his head, but I think there's a reason why he's being right. promoted at the face of the Democrat. There's a political article who call, a political article that, that calls him the face of the Democrat. We gotta go. We gotta go. We gotta go. And next week, Jason will explain to me why there are no people of color behind you. It's all white. Ricky Henderson is behind me. Where? He's uh, to my, I don't know what side it would be for you to look, but Ricky Henderson is, is right there. And Jose Canseco is here. Oh, that's true. Okay. And Barry Larkin is there. So I have chocolatey figures all over me. Okay. I stand corrected. Thank you, fellas. I hope to see you next week. I hope so as well. Great. Peace. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Howie Klein is coming up. I have to play a song because my jack is busted and I got to go to the closet and pull out another jack. So we will be back with Howie Klein. But first, here's Professor Mike Steinell, who is a pig for love. I'm a poor scene gourmand of the art of romance. I'm a maestro of the boudoir when I take off my pants. All of this is true, all of the above. I wouldn't lie to you, cause I'm a pig for love. Appetite's rapacious, but my capacity is dim. I seem so audacious, some call me Gentleman Jim. When all is said and done, and the push comes to shove, I'm second to none, cause I'm a pig for love. Thank you. 
Some ladies claim that my lips are delicious. Others won't come close because they think I'm suspicious. Please pardon me if I'm somewhat repetitious, like a hand in a glove. I'm a pig for love. Yeah, I'm a pig for love. I wish I was Professor Mike Steinel. That's a pig for love. And Professor Mike Steinel will be joining us, joining us right now. Sorry to keep you waiting, Howie Klein, the founder of the Blue America Pack. Read him over Down With Tyranny, and he has a special guest with us. Hello, Howie. Hi, how you doing? Good. I, I'm sorry to keep you waiting. I, I lost a jack and I had to replace it. Okay, well, not a problem. So the special guest uh, that you were just referring to is Matt West, who is from uh, Oregon, and he hasn't been on the show before because I believe this is uh, that Matt's a first-time uh, candidate. But um, is Matt with us? Yes, he is. Hello, Matt. Hi. Um, yeah, that's correct. I'm a first-time candidate, and I'm really happy to be here. Thank you very much for having me. We're going to raise some yes. money for you tonight. That would be wonderful. Thank you so much. Go ahead, Howie. Uh, I hope we can raise some money for Matt. He's, he's on the, uh, he's an endorsed candidate of Blue America, so you could donate to him on the Blue America page. And uh, what's Matt's uh, direct um, endorsement? Matt West, let me, let, I mean, let me do the dirty work here. It's actually not dirty. Not at all. <laughs> not at all. Matt, I, I have no... I'm proud to tell you to go to mattwestforcongress.com, M-A-T-T, -T, it's two T's, mattwestforcongress.com. He's endorsed by ActBlue, the Blue America PAC. He's endorsed, most importantly, by Howie Klein. He's a Democrat, a scientist, and a leader, and he's endorsed by Howie Klein. That's all you need to know. Go to mattwestforcongress.com. This is an investment in in the country and in your own mental health. I promise you, you give $5, $500 to Matt West and you will feel better. You will have a spring in your step because there's too much negativity right now. And when people like Matt West come around, you give them money, you invest in people like Matt West. Go ahead, Howie, please. Right, and, and David's right. If it, it if it's uh, a lot of money, that's great. If it's, if it's not a lot of money, that's great as well. Uh, Matt's running a grassroots campaign, and grassroots campaigns are built on small-dollar donations, not on big uh, corporate uh, bribes. So, so, Matt, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that your district was the, is the new district that was created in Oregon after the census. Is, is that, am I right there? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Oregon got enough new residents in the last decade that we have a brand new district uh, wide open, and I'm very proud to call it my home. 
And it's south of Portland, is that right? Uh, it starts off uh, to the southwest of Portland, uh, just like the smallest sliver of it is in Portland Metro, but then it goes down to get, uh, you know, Salem, the state capital, and then out to Yamhill and Polk counties, home of some of the best Pinot Noir growing region in the world. So would you call it a district that's both urban and suburban and uh, exurban? Oh, absolutely. Uh, this is a very interesting district. Uh, or they make bourbon? As well as Pinot Noir? Just, oh, sorry. Sorry. Matt West for uh, Congress. There are some, but yes. Anyways, <laughs> sorry. Um, I'm very like, proud of the fact like that Zelensky, David, uh, you- and agricultural uh, as well. It's a really compact district for Oregon, but it's a wonderful cross-section uh, of people from all walks of life. And, and you're running on a, an overtly aggressive, progressive policy uh, agenda. Is that correct? I am running as a uh, very strong progressive, yes. I have been uh, a supporter of Bernie Sanders since he first announced. I remember hearing him uh, declare his candidacy, and I was so excited. I I jumped up and down the first time because I never thought in my life I'd see somebody from that uh, area of American politics declare. And I was so happy to see him actually have a good shot. Uh, I'm also a lifetime member of the DSA for that as well. Great. So I didn't realize that you were a DSA member, too. Well, congratulations. Uh, David is always like saying that uh, Blue America endorses uh, socialists, and here here you've proven them right. So <laughs> I view myself more as a uh, social Democrat, but I am very proud of the work that the organization does. Right. So, so, you're, um, so you're for Medicare for All. You're uh, a, a, a proponent of the Green New Deal as well, correct? Absolutely. Uh, Single payer Medicare for all is one of my uh, top issues. But the real reason why I got into this race uh, above all else was climate change. I have my uh, background in uh, my Ph.D. in chemical engineering, uh, researching renewable energy. I was always very focused on doing that to help fight climate change through my academic career. Uh, In many ways, this is me trying to get back into that fight from a governmental policy perspective, uh, as opposed to an academic scientific one. But the Green New Deal is really just a starting point. Uh, There's so much we can do, and we we really want to treat it like the existential crisis that this is. We need to move fast, and we need to move boldly. And when you say we, we need to move fast and boldly, let's take boldly first. What do you, where, where do you think we need to be going that's beyond what uh, has been proposed? Absolutely. Uh, the first and foremost, all the simulations I've played with suggest that the best and fastest way to drive down a uh, like our emissions is by putting an actual price on carbon via a carbon tax. Uh, that is the best way to ensure that the current large emitters move towards a system that they emit less because now they have a financial incentive to promote, uh, produce less carbon dioxide. When you combine that with a carbon credit system, uh, like rural agricultural areas, like much of my district could start to get, you know, paid for generating carbon credits in terms of, uh, you know, not tilling the soil necessarily uh, by not cutting down trees. If they own uh, private forests, there's a lot of opportunity here when you actually create an economic incentive to drive down our emissions. You know, we have tons of levers and knobs and buttons here with carbon, uh, with, global warming and sorry, fighting climate change. Uh, really the biggest issue is not which of all of these is the you know best or you know, silver bullet solution. It's 
just we need to start moving now. I, I hate do, to interrupt, Helis, but there some Democrats are calling to get rid of the gas task tax temporarily to because it's, you know, five dollars at the pump now. But I think we want gas to get more. I, I apologize to truckers who listen, but it's in the best interest of our children that gas becomes prohibitive. Mm, absolutely. One of my uh, top uh, goals is uh, we need to start transferring our current subsidies from the fossil fuel sector over to renewables. And if we do that over the course of 15 years, we can see a significant reduction in emissions while allowing people to you know, have electric cars without breaking the bank. Go ahead, Howie. Sorry for interrupting you. I was just going to say uh, high prices at the at the um, gas pump and, and here it's six dollars, by the way, not five here in California. But uh, I was going to say it's um, very, very tough for a politician. Uh, you know, people are not not just truckers, but just people who are finding that it's costing them one hundred and twenty or one hundred and forty dollars to fill up their gas tanks are really angry. And, uh, you know, it's the right thing to do. But. That you tell it, to, tell it to the consumers who are uh, who are flipping out. I mean, that's fair. This is a situation where we need to provide relief uh, to those who are struggling with inflation right now, but in a way that we're not actually worsening the climate crisis. So we should very much be sensitive to those who are currently paying higher prices at the pump, strictly because oftentimes those who are impacted by that the most are those who are already marginalized. Sure. Well, I, I'm thinking that's why. Uh, so many um, progressives in the Senate are going for a, uh, um, a you know, an excess profits tax uh, aimed directly at the uh, the gas companies right now. I was unaware of that, but that does. Uh, I would love to read more about that. Yeah, well, that's uh, that, that's been introduced already into the Senate in, 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 uh, last week. And the idea is is to shift the burden of these high prices from the consumers at the pump to the manufacturers uh, of the gasoline and the producers of the oil and gas. Yeah. So uh, I, it hasn't gone anywhere yet, but it's getting more and more, uh, um, in fact, it's getting more and more support. In fact, if I, if I remember correctly, I think one of the co-sponsors is Jeff Merkley, your own uh, Senator. Lovely. Then I definitely agree more about that before I uh, try giving him another call here in the next week or two. Uh, that's a great idea. What we've seen time and time again is that when the price of oil spikes, so too does the price of gas. But when the price of oil drops, it takes a little bit longer for the price of gas to drop back down. That's clearly a profit and rent seeking behavior from a lot of these large companies. So shifting the economic burden onto those who already have the most for sure. That's really uh, a great way forward. But like another thing is by helping to raise uh, more funds, we can start to work towards providing more investment into basic sciences, uh, like moving more money towards the actual production of green energy like solar and wind and just even funding those scientific researchers significantly great more so that they can produce even better technological uh, improvements. So another, there's a whole other uh, topic that I wanted to talk to you about, and, and I think it's going to take a little bit more explaining. Some of our our listeners will understand it right away, but I think a lot of listeners won't even know what we're talking about, and that is Web3. So 
you, so I know that you're, I mean, it's not something that most uh, uh, politicians and candidates are campaigning on, but, but I, I know it is an issue for you. Uh, I know you have a, a real understanding of it and know why it's important. And why don't you talk a little bit about that to our audience so that they can understand it as well. For sure. Uh, it's very clear that much of our financial system and internet system at the current moment are built on a way to not necessarily provide value to those who help generate it. Whether we're talking about uh, right now, there's about four or five major internet companies that scrape all of your data and then sell that to in, uh, advertisers without your consent, or whether we're talking about the amount of people who are currently underbanked uh, and don't have access to an easier, you know, an easy form of banking infrastructure. Like right now, Google, Amazon, Facebook, these companies specifically dominate the entire internet and much of the internet is built off of their infrastructure. Everything you do goes through their servers and they gather data on you. They extract value from you. And that's where I think web three provides a little bit of an interesting turn in that on with web three, you're in perfect control of your data. Other corporations cannot extract data from you without your express permission for them to do it. You have to sign like, and actually give them permission to take your data when we're talking about uh, like helping to deliver banking services to those people who don't currently have them about 60% of the people in the United States who are unbanked or underbanked have access to a smartphone. That's an immediate massive uh, market share of just helping to deliver people financial tools that have been in the realm of the wealthiest among us for generations. Uh, whereas, you know, now everyday people are able to interact with this. The basic idea of web three is that it's built on something called a blockchain, which can be run by anybody who uses it. So it's not a centralized company. It's a decentralized network of people all interacting with each other uh, in a way that they actually do, you know, provide express permission in that interaction. I mean, it, it sounds like you're describing um, cryptocurrency as well. I mean, that that comes into this, right? Yeah. Uh, yes. Uh, cryptocurrency, in some ways, it's a little bit of a of a mixed bag because when people think about cryptocurrency, they often think about Bitcoin, but much of Web3 infrastructure is built on other chains like Ethereum, which is where I've done uh, some of my work. Uh, Ethereum is significantly uh, more energy efficient and it actually allows for programmable, you know, executable contracts, which is, uh, <laughs> I, I see that I comment there, um, which is a, a fascinating aspect of actually being able to create decentralized uh, platforms that people can engage with together. Uh, you know, I am a strong social Democrat, full stop. And blockchain can be a great tool to help break the current internet, internet monopoly that we do have. And when you, when you talk about this to democratic voters or to voters in general, I mean, uh, or, or, or let me think, Oregon has, uh, does Oregon have a, a, um, a jungle primary or it's each party has its own primary? In Oregon, each party has its own primary. Okay. So let's talk about uh, your primary situation. Now you're, you're not the only Democrat running in that, right? Absolutely not. Uh, there are right. a few others, uh, some of which are uh, billionaire, billionaire backed, for example, actually. 
so when you when you're talking to Democratic voters now and you and you talk about uh, cryptocurrencies and uh, and Web three, I mean it's not usually something that progressives talk about. And you and you make a very progressive case for this. Do, are people getting it? Do they understand? Is it a is it a, a positive aspect of your campaign? Is it a negative yeah. aspect? Is it a wash? How, how does that how's that working? Because I keep thinking we don't need more money. We need more money going to the 140 million Americans who are living at or below the poverty line. What does cryptocurrency do for the 140 million Americans who are living at or below the poverty line? Good question. When I go talking to people uh, about uh, this technology, I simply tell them that, you know, it would have been great for people uh, who understood the Internet in the 90s if they were in Congress then, or people who understood social media uh, in Congress before Facebook and the larger companies blew up to the point where they've dominated the entire infrastructure. Millions of Americans in need currently do use the internet and they should be being paid for the value they help to bring to it. Like I mentioned, 60% of those people currently in the United States who are not banked or are underbanked have a smartphone and they are therefore able to interact with these networks and get value from said interactions and be placed in control of their own finances in a way that many banks right now won't do because the bank systems don't are not currently tailored for those people who are in you know dire need uh david does that answer what you asked yeah it's it's very it's confusing to me and uh it seems like we should do a half hour just on cryptocurrency so let's let's check how we Please change the subject. I don't want to get hung up on cryptocurrency. It's under. It's all right. People ask a lot of questions about it. And I mean, it's a new technology and it's constantly developing and there's tons of improvements being brought all the time. But that's part of why I think it's so important that we get somebody on the inside of government who does right. understand this stuff, because then we can start to regulate it in a way that currently it's not being regulated. The problem is crypto fascists right now. That's what, mm. I'm, that's what I'm worried about. Go ahead, Howie. I didn't understand what you just said about crypto fascists. Instead of cryptocurrency, I'm more worried about crypto fascists. Okay. Do you, all right. Let's move on if we can. <laughs> okay. So, yes, let, let's move on to... Um, to how you how in a crowded field where there's no um, uh, no incumbent how do, how do you, how is it that you're going to win what's going to what's going to make people say yeah this is the guy I want to vote for oh absolutely uh, the short version is I am the candidate on the left I am the progressive candidate in this race there are other people who are in the race but they all are you know. Uh, corporate Dems for the most part, or they're frankly fairly conservative, or they're backed by uh, a billionaire personal friend. Uh, when I'm going around this district, I'm often the only candidate who's actually been talking to people. I've been speaking with mayors and county commissioners, and they all like, almost always tell me that I'm the first person in this race who's reached out to them and talked to them. When I'm uh, going and talking with the actual voters, 
Basically, everyone in this district believes that climate change is their number one issue. But whether they talk about it as climate change or they talk about it as wildfires or droughts and water rights, they're all deeply affected by this. In my home just last year, we had an ice storm. That's like a once in a decade freak ice storm that left thousands, hundreds of thousands of people without power for a week. Uh, We also then six months later had a heat dome, which was now the hottest temperature of all time in Portland area. Portland's all-time high is now one degree less than Las Vegas's all-time high. These are things that no matter if you're on the right or the left, like the smoke, the wildfires, the heat, the ice is harming you in your suburban, urban, or even if you're a, a farmer out in the more agricultural regions. This is directly affecting you. There's basically like there is a billionaire who is attempting to buy this race, and I am the only one who's not accepting corporate money or lobbyist money uh, in this district. If it was a district by 2016, uh, 2020, Bernie would have won this district in the primary with about 63 percent of the vote. We do have a coalition in this race. Uh, I am very proud of what we've been able to build, but we do need help in communicating. And, you know, that's why I'm here. Who's the billionaire? Uh, that billionaire is Sam Bankman-Fried. Uh, he is a 29-year-old billionaire who lives in the Bahamas, uh, is associated with something called effective altruism, which basically means that he thinks, in my opinion, when you're reading it, uh, billionaires should uh, run the world. That taxing billionaires is actually morally wrong because then billionaires have less money to donate to charities of their choosing. <laughs> and and who, what's the name of the candidate he owns? Uh, Carrick Flynn is his friend. Carrick Flynn, and and he, and what? Okay, well, we don't have to get into what he's all about. Uh, but is he is he is he a conservative or a moderate or a liberal or doesn't stand for anything or what's his he's story? He's not really saying. He's a, he's trying to stay out of. He's not really running a real campaign. He's trying to just flood the market with his name and some very generic ads. Uh, he seems pretty mainstream, but I think he's just trying to win on name recognition alone. Uh, they've already spent about a million and a half dollars uh, just getting their ads out there in the last uh, two weeks. Wow. When you were talking a few minutes ago about uh, climate change and how it impacts uh, everybody in the district and everybody thinks it's very, very important, how, how are you going to connect that to you? Uh, I mean, you're not going to be able to talk to every person in the district. Uh, How are you going to make them know, and especially when everyone else is probably going to be claiming the same thing, how are you going to make the voters understand that this is something that you are serious about and that you're going and that you have solutions for? How do you do that? How does the campaign, how does any campaign do that? Oh yeah. I mean, that's uh, besides being present, talking with people, besides going to events and answering questions, Advertising, that's really the main aspect is advertising, being able to hire canvassers to go knocking doors besides getting volunteers to the same uh, staff, uh, TV ads, radio ads. Um, You know, these are the ways that we get our message out to the donors. Uh, You know, that's why I need donations for my campaign is so that we can have the resources to be able to connect to other people in the district and let them know what we're all about. You know, I'll tell them, like, I've did my research Specifically, I have a PhD uh, focused on ways to help combat climate change. I know, at least in that area, what I'm talking about. But in order for them to know that I know, that's all due to down to advertising and donations.
You know, I wore a, a gas mask last summer, as a matter of fact, to go walking my dog uh, due to the wildfires that we had. Uh, I got COVID at the very beginning of the pandemic and I was a long COVID sufferer. And with the smoke as bad as it was, I had to wear a, a painter's respirator to to walk my dog, the one with the little drum filters on both sides. Uh, it's that sort of thing. Like it is so like tangible to people in my home. I was a half mile away from the evacuation uh, boundary during last summer's uh, wildfire season. I, I need an ad to be able to show people, you know, that the gas mask that I wore to go walking my dog. Uh, This is personal. Like this is affecting people. They're losing their homes. Uh, The smoke has been keeping them inside. If they're a high risk or have breathing problems like asthma, it was deeply in it. So yeah, like people of this district already feel it. Uh, They just need to know who I am. Go to Matt West for Congress. It's two T's, Matt West for Congress, and donate money. Donate $5, $50, $500. If you're an American citizen or if you have a green card, give money to Matt West for Congress. Will you come back? There's a lot to talk about. Sure. Yeah, no, I'd love to come back. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, and thank great you for plugging the website and making the donation ask. Uh, you know, I know that we can win this. Uh, if we get come together, progressives need to come together and basically say that this district can't be bought by a billionaire. So thank you so much for having me. And I'm really looking forward to speaking with you again. Great. Thank you so much. Uh, Thanks, Matt. Thank you, Howie. We have Paul Prescott coming up. Uh, he's running for state Senate in Pennsylvania. You're welcome to sit in if you want. No, I'm going to meet uh, our, our old friend, um, uh, Tom West. I'm sorry, Tom Winter. Do you remember Tom Winter? Yeah, yeah, from Montana. He's running for That's Congress. Exactly right. He's in Los Angeles today, so we're going out and having Turkish food. He's never had Turkish food, and it's a nice restaurant with an outdoor dining area. I'm jealous. Thank All you. All right. Well, we'll see you next waiting- week, I hope. Yeah, I'll see you next week. Take care. Howie Klein, read him over at Down With Tyranny and follow him on Twitter at Down With Tyranny. Well, what we're going to do the Godfather quiz, Dan. Uh, what do you think? Uh, I see Paul Prescott has just joined us. What do yeah, you think? Well, we'll, we do, we'll do it between another, another segment. That's okay. Uh, I feel bad. Uh, Everything's good. You sure? Yep. Okay, and you're going to be here throughout the end, right? Yes, sir. Okay, thank you. I also want to thank Cal Crawford uh, for his super chat. RB, who asks if you have an FU tote bag available for purchase. I think we do. We have merch. Uh, and Midi Doctors super chat says, don't read this, David. Well, I just did. That's... Uh, Maybe I shouldn't have. Those are the people who are contributing via Super Chats to The David Feldman Show. This is a pledge episode. We do these every once in a while. We have to raise money to grow the show. Joining us is Paul Prescott. He's a candidate for Pennsylvania State Senate in District 8. Go to paulprescott.com right now and give him money. We're raising money for good people. Welcome to the show, Paul Prescott. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Now, you're a high school teacher. You teach history, correct? Yeah, that's right. 
uh, what grades do you teach? Uh, so I, I was teaching ninth and 10th grade. Um, and, you know, this year I'm taking the year off to campaign. I think I'd be a terrible both teacher and candidate if I tried to do both full time. Right. Um, but yeah, ninth and 10th grade, world history and African-American history, which is actually a required course in Philadelphia's public schools. Great. Paul Prescott teaches history in Philadelphia's public school system. He's running for office. We need more public school teachers running for office. He's endorsed by the Teamsters, the Philadelphia Democratic Socialists of America. Are you DSA? Yes, I've been a DSA member for a while now. Two in a row. You're, we have two DSA <laughs> candidates in a yeah. row. Uh, the American Postal Workers Union and pretty much every union. So all these union endorsements, in 2020, you worked with local labor unions in Philadelphia to pass the Essential Worker Protection Act. What is that? Yeah, so what this bill does, this is a municipal level bill in Philadelphia. Um, and this you know, was especially relevant at the very beginning of, of COVID. Um, basically protects workers uh, being able to speak out about uh, health and safety concerns as, as it relates to COVID on the job. Because we were having, as we still do, um, I'm sure in many places, a situation where a worker even just trying to speak up to say that, you know, there was not being proper precautions, protocols to be in place could get them fired. So this bill bans retaliation from any worker, whether they're in a union or not, from speaking up about uh, workplace safety and health concerns uh, to their employer. A state tax on endowments of the wealthiest universities. You want to tax the endowments of places like Wharton and Swarthmore and what are what are the big wealthy yeah, colleges? I mean, basically, the, the, uh, the Ivy League, right? Uh, Yale, um, you know. And for people who don't know, and this is something I only kind of recently learned about. I mean, the best example in my own backyard in the district I'm running is University of Penn. And check this out. They started uh, be before COVID, they had an endowment already of $14.5 billion. And that's what it'd be. Since COVID alone, it has grown to over $20 billion. And, um, you know, the idea is that these endowments can be used to help students in various ways. Clearly, that's not being done because Penn is still an extremely expensive school to go to. And University of Penn is deemed a nonprofit, um, like many universities, even though they have this $20 billion endowment um so you know i think it's it's very reasonable and would be good to you can change their tax status uh theoretically to make them not a nonprofit anymore so they have to pay taxes because you I mean think about what this does in a city like philadelphia you know we all fund our education uh, on based on property taxes which shouldn't really be that way to begin with but while we are doing that we can't allow these institutions that are billion dollar institutions to get off without paying property taxes because our schools suffer, city services suffer because of that. Yeah. And they destroy neighborhoods, universities. Right. They drive. Yeah, they're they, they're big they, agents of gentrification, you know, especially again, University of Penn in West Philadelphia, which is where my district is at. Um, you know, and, and there's been campaigns, which I support, you know, to make them pay what's called pilots payments in lieu of taxes. So these are voluntary payments. And many other Ivy Leagues actually do do this already. Penn has refused, um, but you know these can't be relied on. I think it, you know they have to just be able to pay taxes that we can count on, and and governments can actually calculate these things into their budget. The fair funding formula for basic 
education. Let me see if I understand this. It seems to me that all uh, state and local taxes should be thrown into one big kitty and you divide the funding for public schools equally and evenly among all the school districts so that the people who live in the wealthier parts of Philadelphia get the same amount of money for their public schools as the people who live in a less poor, a less wealthy neighborhood. It seems to me that that would be the most fair way. It's, the NFL does that. The NFL distributes all the TV revenue equally. Is it fair that a wealthy public school has a football team and they, they play a poorer public school's football team that can't afford the, the kind of equipment and training these rich bastards have? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and this is the problem with funding public education through property taxes alone, because I, I always say I think a fifth grader could figure out that if you're going to do that, then clearly those with more wealth and property are going to get more money and better schools. And we just can't allow this situation to um, continue that way. And of course, we're not saying those schools that have, you know, I think every school should have a great football field and every music program and everything that they need to be a successful school. So all we're saying is that everyone deserves that. And they, you know, there are some disagreements about, you know, how quickly at the moment there's a process through, it would take a long time actually to move all the funding through the fair formula. Um, I would support moving it quicker so that is more equitably distributed from the beginning. Um, but we got to do something about the situation. Um, you know, there really is no overstating the crisis, especially in poor school districts like Philadelphia, where we have, our buildings literally crumbling, you know, mold, lead, asbestos, 40 kids crammed in a classroom, you know, there, it, it all comes back to funding. Uh, if we're going to really fix those kind of problems in education. Plessy versus Ferguson. What was it? Brown v. Board of Education. I've been thinking about this separate, but equal Plessy versus Ferguson. The, the schools in poorer neighborhoods, that are primarily people of color, based on Plessy versus Ferguson, could sue and say these are separate but not equal. Uh, our schools yeah. are, are our schools are they an apartheid state right now? And is it as bad as it was when the Warren Court overturned Plessy versus Ferguson and, and Brown? the Board of right. Education? How bad is it in terms of yeah. apartheid? Yeah, and, and I think, I mean, in many ways they've shown that we really are regressing uh, toward, it's becoming just even more segregated and, and charter schools are also kind of playing a role into this in school privatization. Um, but, and you know, part of this is just, again, coming back to, we still live in vast residential segregation um, by race and class that's playing out in the school district. Cause obviously you're going, if you're going to your local public school and you're in an all black kind of basically segregated area, the schools is going to uh, reflect that. But yeah, I mean, apartheid really is one way to think about it. And I always use this example um, because I think it really hits home to people. You know, uh, there's a district very close to Philadelphia. Uh, and actually I was part of an action in the summer where to dramatize this, we walked from a school in West Philly to a school in Lower Marion District, which is a very affluent uh, district. 
and you could walk there, you know, it would take like 45 minutes to walk, uh, like 10 minutes to drive. And I mean, it's like you're like, it's like you're on two different planets, mm-hmm. uh, you know, based on the school in, in West Philly, which by the way, in summer was having big issues with asbestos and mold in the buildings. And then you walk to Lower Marion. I mean, it's like you're on a, a college campus. It's one of the best rated schools in the state. Um, you know, so what that, that really does remind one of apartheid kind of system um, where it's just so dramatically different and unequal. Um, and, you know, in that sense, it's no surprise that you're, you know, you're dealing with very different problems in an area like Lower Marion versus an area like West Philadelphia that, and everything kind of emanates out from schools, whether it's gun violence or poverty, you know, um, what's going on in the schools, I think is going to be a big indicator of what's going on in the surrounding community. Right. You have a district attorney who just got reelected in Philadelphia. Is his name Kramer? Uh, Krasner. 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 Yeah. Krasner. He ran saying, I'm going to lock fewer people up. Uh, kind of like uh, our new DA here, Bragg, who isn't mm-hmm. going to lock up Donald Trump. How is crime in Philadelphia? And do we need prosecutors clogging our prisons? Is that the way to uh, cut down on crime? When you say clogging, you mean putting more people in or? Yeah, or, clogging the prisoners yeah, right. with. Yeah. What, what's the solution? Is, is, is Krasner succeeding in uh, being fair to people of color right. in Philadelphia? Has crime risen since he's decided not to prosecute people? Right for selling Lucy's? <laughs> yeah, so I think there's many levels to answer this question. So I'd say, yes, he's being fair. Has crime risen? Yes, but not, I would argue, because of his policies. Um, and, you know, because I think this is a problem that cannot be solved just alone with criminal justice reforms. I think those reforms have to be paired with major investments in good schools, good jobs, affordable housing, um, that sort of thing. Um, and, you know, and this is something I worried about in his reelection was the timing was just bad because we saw all over the country, no matter who the DAs were, a spike in violent crime during COVID. But a lot of that had to do with the kind of dire straits that that situation pushed more and more people into. But what was encouraging in Philadelphia was despite that, you know, and it, it violent crime has risen. I mean, I don't think anyone should deny that. And it is a big problem. But despite that, he was reelected with an overwhelming you know, mandate which I think show that people were not fooled into thinking that he alone caused this crime wave or that the answer is just put more people in prisons. Um, again, the, the situation is becoming increasingly desperate and dire. And again, if you're going to keep defunding our schools and, you know, and where I really see the impact of this too, is like, it's not just the buildings. I mean, they, they're cutting also like career technical education programs. So think about this. It's like, okay, you're, if you're a kid who, you can't afford to go to college or maybe you don't want to, or maybe you just really have not been prepared academically. Whereas you might've thought at one point, well, maybe I could still get a good trade job, you know, and have a good living, living even, even if I don't go to college. Well, now they're cutting those programs too. So it's like, what do you expect is going to happen when people are now going out into the world with, with no options essentially, and things are just getting worse. Um, you know, living standards are getting worse. Wages are getting lower. Um, whenever this happens, we're, we're going to see a rise in crime, you know, and, and again, I'll go back to the lower Marion example. It's no mystery as to why, you know, violent crime is not as high there, 
again, people have what they need to, to live good and secure um, lives. So, yeah, I mean, the, the answer has to be like these criminal justice reforms, but they have to go in tandem with actually public investment and in improving people's lives if we're going to actually see the crime come down, um, you know, as a result of it. Right. You're a union member. How important yeah. are unions to you? Yeah, I mean, they're incredibly important, you know, that, and that's been my main, I guess, arena of activity is the labor movement. And I'm particularly proud of how many unions have come on board with this campaign um, because as you likely know, and I'm sure others, oftentimes unions will just back the incumbent um, for, during a race. And I'm challenging a 24 year incumbent. Um, you know, I think there's many reasons why they often do that. Some of them are understandable. Some of them I disagree with, but that's usually how it goes down, but they're not doing that in this race which I'm really proud of. Um, but, you know, unions are just essential for uh, people be, to be able to have good paying jobs that, you know, they can live a good life on, that they can retire on, that they can get good benefits on. Um, and, uh, you know, I think so many problems, I don't want to be too simplistic, but come back to if someone can have a good job uh, in their life that they can take care of their family with, I think that really gets at the root of so many problems. And I think, you know, if, if ever there was a time unions were relevant, it's even more so now than even 20 years ago, because look at where an economic inequality is. We all know it. You know, wages keep going down. More wealth goes to the top. Um, there's a great graph. I'm sure people have seen it where it's just a direct correlation between the decline of unions and economic inequality. It's a uh, it couldn't be more direct. Yeah. Uh, and also think about this moment we're in where I think COVID really woke people up to the idea of workplace safety and health. And that is another critical element unions fight on, you know? Um, I mean, even in the union I was in, the Philadelphia Federation of Teachers, you know, in our contract didn't just have stuff about wages and benefits. It had stuff that had to guarantee clean drinking water on every floor, which also benefits our students. Um, but many unions also, you know, we have clauses around safety and health and procedures that need to be taken you have some kind of resource to deal with these problems. And I think, you know, COVID-19 just really revealed that 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 is so essential to have a voice in the workplace. Um, right. So, you know, and I think if, if we're gonna turn this country around, um, again, labor is not the only thing, but I think we gotta be able to grow the power of unions again. Um, you know, we're on the, labor is on the back foot. No one would uh, deny that. We're at our lowest density since around before the Great Depression. Um, but you still see, even in our weakened state, you know, the unions that still do exist and those workers, you know, are, are doing far better off than workers who, are, who don't have a union. Um, right. And we're also seeing that uh, unions are more popular now than they have been in a yeah. very long time. I wanted to ask you about that. Yeah. Unions are more popular. Socialism is more popular than it's right. ever been. Starbucks is going union. Uh, but I was reading that union membership Last year, we lost 250,000 union yeah. members last year. Union membership in America is the lowest it's been in more than 100 years. So why is that? I, it's the war against unions. That the, it's Taft-Hartley. It's the Powell memo. Are the unions doing anything wrong? Or can we yeah, just blame, a, can we just blame the oligarchs? <laughs> It's a great question. Um, I think there's many answers to this. Um, I mean, yeah, so on the one hand, yeah, I mean, we can't deny the war on unions. And this takes many forms. You know, 
part of it is just simple offshoring. So part of it is the simple fact that they just literally physically removed the jobs that had union members and replaced them with, with non-union ones or ones that were much harder to organize. Um, so part of it is that, you know, part of it is just direct union busting. Um, I, you know, in it, you talk about the Powell memo, which came out in the early seventies. And from that point on, you know, the business world, especially in the eighties, they really came together and said, we're going to, we got to play hardball now. Um, we got to take an aggressive stance to, to eliminate unions. But I do think this question of, and this is where we really, I think have to, um, reckon with the idea of bringing back manufacturing jobs. Now they don't have to look like what they used to look like. And this is the promise of things like the green new deal. And one thing I've actually been encouraged by, I know things look very bleak on that score on the federal level, but increasingly you're seeing States, uh, figure this out in a way where labor is actually on board. Illinois recently passed what it seemed like a really great, uh, climate bill supported by every single union because it was very clear about, look, we're going to create jobs in public transit, retrofitting buildings, geothermal, wind and solar, um, nuclear. I know that's more controversial on the left, but at least like preserving certain existing nuclear plants. Um, so these are, I think to me, the manufacturing jobs of the future. Um, and you know, so that I think has to be a component is like bringing back, uh, the manufacturing sector, to this country in different ways. And, you know, and along with that comes logistics and transportation as well. Um, so that's, that's one of the elements I think that explains this. Um, and yeah, I think, you know, every union is different. It's hard to talk about unions as one big thing, but, you know, I do think labor, we also have to get our act together a little bit and, um, you know, be more aggressive in trying to organize new members. Um, yeah. But, you know, but this is, you know, this is where the PRO Act is very important because uh, as it exists, labor law makes it extremely difficult to organize. Like, it's just... Where do you stand you know, on single payer? Can this, California dropped the ball. Yeah. There was the political will to pass some form of single payer, especially now that California has a budget surplus. But Gavin Newsom completely yeah. crapped the bet on that. Could Pennsylvania have single payer? I think so. Yeah. Um, politically this, you know, this will be hard. I mean, an upward battle. Um, I mean, we're starting in a place with less supposed support than California had. Um, but yes, you know, and, and it requires, it puts the hard question on the table of the revenue and yeah, we could have it if there's a dramatic change in who and how we are taxing. Um, but Pennsylvania is ripe for it. I mean, we have, Pennsylvania is one of the biggest fracking states in the country. Right. Um, and the natural gas companies actually do not pay taxes to Pennsylvania at all. Um, so there's one place to start for revenue. Um, we also have a big problem. We call it the Delaware loophole where a lot of our businesses um, will set up a fake headquarters in Delaware to get out of paying taxes. So closing that loophole, um, but you know, Delaware isn't, we've learned from the Pandora papers that Right. Joe Biden's Delaware is an offshore tax haven, no right. different from Switzerland. Right. Yeah. And so we got to we got to go after this, you know, whenever they ask how are we going to pay for it? I mean, we have these answers um, and this is how you could get state single payer. And again, this is why I think these state races are really important, because even if the federal government is not where we want it to be, I think part of building support gradually um, building a majority coalition is coming up through the states and also having models of showing what can work. And again, this is where I go back to where I've been really encouraged on the labor climate front, states like Illinois, um, Rhode Island recently, New York, um, 
Connecticut are starting to move forward in a very good way of showing that we can bring labor and climate together. We can get real proposals on the table that are concrete. Um, so this is where I think the state level is really important right now. Yeah. Do you worry that unions are fighting Medicare for all? Because if we had Medicare for all, most people wouldn't join unions. So it is a problem, you know, and again, not all, there are some unions that have been champions of Medicare for all. Some of them are, um, and yeah, I mean, and, and it's a problem because, um, you know, and this is something Bernie brought up a lot and it's worth repeating over and over again right now. I mean, ask any person in the union who's especially been involved in negotiations, the biggest sticking point right now, especially is always healthcare. And usually what unions end up doing is giving up concessions in the area of wages or anything else to keep healthcare. And it's only getting harder. Everyone will tell you, it's just getting harder and harder to keep good healthcare plans in, in union contracts. Um, so, you know, if you took that off the table with single payer, I mean, that would really free up a lot of space and money to settle other things. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I remember the, the Nevada, that, yeah. the Nevada caucuses in 2020, uh, yeah. the culinary workers union attacked Bernie Sanders health plan. They, they right. said this is an attack against unions. We the hard won private health plans that we have negotiated at the bargaining table. And Bernie wants to take away our all our hard work to provide you with health benefits by giving everybody Medicare for all. And I thought, wow, we are really screwed when <laughs> when the unions yeah. want to hold on to their health plans, because that's pretty much all they're offering their workers, not everybody. Right. Uh, yeah, right. Yeah, but, and again, it's it's a flawed argument because um, again, there's there's so many other things unions currently and potentially have to offer. Um, again, in the realm of wages and again, workplace safety and health control over the work, um, a say in how the company is actually run. Um, you know, all I think about right now, nurses unions, um, their major battle right now. A lot of them is around staffing ratios um and that's been exasperated by covid but nurses unions in pennsylvania are fighting for safe staffing right. legislation but you know that's another thing that the unions are on the forefront of fighting for and uh, you know and again they're right these are hard fought gains i mean absolutely these the, you know union health care plans are hard fought um but again the problem is they're becoming increasingly harder to maintain and they have to give up so much and everything else to maintain them yeah. Um, and, you know, at any opportunity, the employers are looking to take that back. Um, so single payer, I think, would really actually empower the labor movement. And also think about this, you know, many people, let's say you're in a job that's kind of shitty, but, you know, the pay's not great, but it has good health insurance. And so let's say the opportunity comes to try to organize a union. Many workers are going to be afraid because they're like, well, I cannot lose this health insurance Again, imagine a world if they had that health insurance, I think they right. would feel emboldened to organize a union more or join a union, um, you know, because of that, they, you know, yeah. they would have a fallback in the realm of healthcare. Yeah, we, we have to wrap it up. I hope you come back. I remember Joe Biden launching his presidential campaign in Philadelphia in the offices of the, the number one union busting law firm in America. And one of his first endorsements was from the firefighters union. That was the, fir the first people to endorse Joe Biden were the firefighters union who oppose 
Medicare for all. I remember they opposed Medicare for all. The firefighters opposed Medicare for all. They said because they don't trust government to provide health care to the American people, to which I say, well, let's privatize firefighting. If, if yeah. the firefighters don't trust uh, the government, maybe we should uh, privatize firefighting and see how firefighters like working for corporations. Unbelievable how short sighted yeah, a lot of, a lot of greed. It's always greed. Go to paulprescott.com. Paulprescott.com. Do you accept any corporate donations? I do not. Um, yeah, only uh, been getting donations from ordinary people and uh, and unions. And um, I know everyone's saying this, but again, you know, raising money is just fundamental to these campaigns. You know, this is not going towards fancy shirts. This is going to paying staff a living wage, um, you know, the communications aspect. Um, so, you know, these funds are absolutely essential to any campaign. So, again, please donate what you can. Are you um, worth um, are you worth a million dollars or more? Oh, absolutely not. <laughs> um, yeah, they haven't raised teachers' salaries yet to that much. Um, Wouldn't it be great? But... Wouldn't it be great yeah. if uh, <laughs> we had more people serving in state capitals who uh, weren't millionaires? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you know, and this, I mean, this gets back to the structural problem. You know, why is it so hard for ordinary working people to run? I mean, again, it takes so much money to run a campaign. Um, you know, so if you're, a, you can self fund, that's a lot easier. Um, you don't have to take off work for a year. That's very difficult for a lot of people, including myself to do. Um, so this kind of gets at the structural problem of like, why do we keep only having millionaires in office? Uh, this is kind of how, how the system is set up right now. What would happen if you showed the last five minutes of Nicholas and Alexandra in a public high school, uh, would you be allowed to show that scene? Um, it's possible. You know, it's it's interesting. I found at least in the Philadelphia district, I uh, I you know, social studies teachers are not really surveilled or are prevented from teaching what we want to. Um, but I know in other parts of the country that is not not so. But I'd like to think that I'd be able to show that. <laughs> Every child of a billionaire should be forced to watch the last five minutes of Nicholas and Alexandra once a day and, and see what this what this leads to. Critical right. race theory and our public schools. What are you seeing in the Philadelphia? Are you seeing this insanity? That so again, for, fortunately not in Philadelphia. Uh, and again, this might be because, I mean, the majority of students and parents in this district are people of color. Mm -hmm. um, but again, I know this is not the case in other parts of Pennsylvania, but I am thankful at least so far, you know, we have not been clamped down in terms of uh, trying to control what we teach. Um, but, you know, this is another thing going back to unions is fighting for the right of, again, not just our wages, but the right for us to teach what we should be teaching. Great. PaulPrescott.com. Please come back. We need more people like you running for office and getting elected. Yeah. Thank, thank you. you so much. I'm glad to be back. Thank you. PaulPrescott.com. Thank you. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, DavidFeldmanShow.com. There is my friend, Lee Camp. Lee Camp is a comedian. And up until, I guess, March 3rd, was it March 3rd? He was the host of Redacted Tonight. Please welcome 
our friend Lee Camp. Hello, Lee. Thanks for having me, David. Been a little while. Been a little while. This is uh, anything going on? <laughs> yeah, anything going on in the world at all? Or yeah, in my life? No, not really. So I'm really excited that you found time to uh, come on the show. RT America used to be called Russian Television America. Got shut down early this month after the channel was dropped by DirecTV. RT America features news, commentary, documentaries featuring Chris Hedges, Larry King, comedian Dennis Miller, and of course, Lee Camp. It was funded by Russia. Some saw it as a propaganda arm for Vladimir Putin. Before we start, Lee, I just want you to know, I liked RT America. It was honest. You knew exactly who you people answer to, and it was real journalism, uh, touching on stories that very few news organizations funded by corporate America were willing to touch. I believe that RT America was a plus. Who better to hold America under a microscope than Russia? And uh, so I True, was- but I but I don't consider myself Russia, so- right. uh, you know, as as an American in America covering American news, I I kind of feel like I did my show and I I speak for my show. And you know, RT News is whatever it whatever it is. There were a lot of right wing recently past four years. There were a lot of right wing shows on the network that I probably disagreed with every word, such as Dennis Miller. But uh, <laughs> but so I speak for what I do. And ever since I was before I was at RT, I was I'm the same as I was then anti-war, anti-imperialist. And I found the one network on American television where you could actually be those things and uh, not be censored. I never I was never told what to write. I never was censored. I was n never told what not to write. Uh, and I wrote all my own words, which, you know, as as impressive comedy writer, David, you know, is pretty rare for a comedy news show. Yes. Can I ask you some tough, quick questions? Because there's a lot of misunderstanding about RT and you and the people associated with RT. Do you mind if I ask you some quick questions? Sure. I don't know how quick my answers will be, but if the questions are quick, I'm okay with that. Okay. <laughs> uh, in the past decade, Redacted Tonight has been on. I'm just going to ask you a lot of a lot of questions here. Uh, you've been on RT 10 years. Were you ever invited to Moscow? Uh, there was a kind of my first year there. There was a 10 year anniversary of RT, not RT America, RT in general, and uh, that was in Moscow. So I was there about three days, went to a couple parties and hardly remember much of it because the sleep deprivation was kind of impressive. It was, uh, I think, uh, 2015, 2015. And, uh, okay. 20, 2015 maybe. And, uh, so yeah, I was there the, the entirety of my life. That uh, those are the three days I was ever in Russia. Did you meet anybody from the Kremlin? No, not that I not that I know of. I don't think they would have any interest in meeting me. Were you videotaped at a hotel asking Russians to pee on the bed that I slept on? Yes, yes, that I did. Okay. Uh, I regret it now. Okay. Yeah. Any parties at the Russian embassy 
in Washington, D.C. Do you, did you ever attend parties at the Russian embassy in Washington, nope, D.C.? No, never, never been inside the Russian embassy. Not actually sure where it is. Columbia Journalism Review says that now their Columbia Journalism Review, no better source for news about news. Columbia Journalism Review says that Vladimir Putin spends about one point five billion dollars a year on international propaganda. I happen to think everything is propaganda, including this show. And I mean that. Do you think RT America served as a soft power propaganda arm for Vladimir Putin? No, but as I said, I speak for my show and I don't speak for RT News. You know, Fox News often has talked about this. There is, and I actually agree. One of the few things I agree with Fox News on, uh, there's a difference between, between the news shows on a network and the opinion shows. Uh, RT News, as they said multiple times is the Russian perspective of the world. Now you could have an RT news anchor on who said that's who maybe says that's not true. Ben Swan, who did uh, a variety of jobs for RT over the years as a contractor also was a anchor at uh, CBS affiliates, Fox news and NBC affiliates. And he said by far the most freedom he ever got was at RT. But I don't, I don't speak or answer for RT news. I had my personality show uh, in terms of it being centered around me, as did Jesse Ventura, Larry King, Dennis Miller, Chris et cetera. Edges. Chris Edges. And I, and, and I, I didn't watch RT, really, because I don't watch any cable news. So I can't, I can't speak for what RT News was or was not saying. I did my show, and I think expecting, and I'm not saying you are, but I'm saying some do, uh, expecting me to answer for everything that was ever said on RT News is kind of a misunderstanding of what a television okay. channel is. Uh, you were allowed to talk about anything you wanted. Yeah. Anything. Yeah. I was never told not to talk about anything. So we've had guests on this show who write for The Washington Post. They, It's just implicit that they don't want to say anything bad about Amazon or Jeff Bezos. One person from The Washington Post called me up and asked me to take out some a joke I made about Jeff Bezos it's implicit. There's no order coming but down. That's not implicit. That's them telling you to do that. No, 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 no. The person from the Washington Post, the writer, yeah. said, take out your joke about Jeff Bezos. He owns the Washington Post. This writer never got a, a memo saying you're not allowed to write, make fun of Jeff Bezos or Amazon. But, and I have seen articles highly critical of Amazon and Jeff Bezos in the Washington Post. However, there is an implicit self-censorship that I witnessed uh, over at the Washington Post. Is there an implicit self-censorship over RT where they don't tell you not to do something? You just kind of know not to do it. Well, again, I'll speak for myself. Um, I didn't feel that way, but I do understand. The one thing I will agree on is, yes, I understand that RT America picked me as opposed to picking, uh, you know, uh, uh, Trevor Noah or something to host my show on their airwaves. And that is because before I was at RT, I was anti-war, anti-imperialist, and critical of America. As an American viewing America as the largest power in the world, 
I felt like my time and my uh, understanding was better spent focusing on uh, America. And you're great and, at it. And you're great at what, it. You're a great oh, comedian. You. And thank Redacted you. Tonight, we are worse off without <laughs> Redacted Tonight. There was nothing like it. Uh, you know, mo all political comedy in America will only go so far as to state the problem. You tell us what the cause is. And that's why your show is so great. And that's why you're a great comedian. Were you- I appreciate that. Were you allowed, did you get a sense that you were allowed to say anything you want about America and American imperialism, but nothing about Russian imperialism? Were you, did you get a sense that it was okay to crap on America, but not Russia? And by the way, I'm okay with that. I don't tune into RT America to for them to do exposés on Russia. I wouldn't expect them to. <laughs> I'm expecting them to be hypercritical of the United States because we're not getting that here in the United. Somebody has to right. hold America's feet to the fires. But was it implicit that you should stay away from Russia and focus on what's wrong with America? I never felt that way, but I think it would have been weird for me to get the show and then decide, okay, I'm a new person now. Now I'm uh, now I'm going to pretend I'm Russian in Russia, criticizing Russia. So I get that they picked me to be on that network because You're I was truly anti-war and anti-imperialist. I also think it's important to note that uh, Russian imperialism is... A, of a far different uh, level than American imperialism. There's, you know, we have 800, 900 military bases around the world. Russia has, I think, 18, mostly in the former Soviet bloc. Uh, so I get that. And, and I, by the way, I said I was opposed to Putin's invasion. I said it uh, on my airwaves um, before, but that doesn't mean you can't understand the context of the world right. we live in and what's going on. But anyway. Do I, you believe I do think we're talking about we're talking about little league imperialism versus real imperialism. But. Right. Do you believe Vladimir Putin is an enemy of liberal democracy as fostered by Davos neoliberalism? Do you think he is an enemy of liberal democracy as well as an enemy of neoliberalism that, you know, Davos has spawned? Enemy of neoliberalism. I'm having a little trouble misunderstanding. I mean, understanding the question. Neoliberalism is, you know, very uh, significant in the American kind of takeover and destruction of the our, world. So. It's linked to our definition of democracy. Do you believe that Vladimir Putin is opposed to democracy? I mean, I may, yeah, maybe. I, I don't think he wants to like leave power in russia so i you know i'd say that's kind of anti-democratic is, is russia a democracy i mean ostensibly but i suppose we're ostensibly a democracy as well and we're not really a democracy right right i mean i'm surprised you get information about russia that it's you know a police state and there's nobody allowed to criticize. Well, you have Navalny, who, yes, he is a political opponent who has been locked up, but he's issuing statements opposing the invasion of Ukraine. You do have 
something resembling freedom of speech in Russia. However, journalists are getting disappeared and uh, they are doing right. And, 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 you know, I'm, I, I don't necessarily have to counter everything with what America is doing wrong, but we are the largest police state in the world. And we also are responsible for imprisoning one of the most impressive, most truthful journalist publishers that's ever lived, Julian Assange, who has never published anything incorrect in his entire career, which, right. you know, compare that to the Washington Post. Well, we haven't Post gotten them yet. We haven't gotten them yet. And the reason we haven't gotten No, but he's in prison because of us. Yeah. But but the no. British prosecutor won't send him to America because she says the American prisons are so bad she's afraid he'll <laughs> right. commit suicide. Uh, right. So yes, <laughs> so that's the plus. Uh, yeah. But would, but you do you would agree that America has more freedom of the press than Russia? I think so. I mean, <laughs> I, again, I don't I don't claim to be I don't claim to be a, an expert on Russia. I, I don't study it at all and I don't live there. Right. But I, I think we do. Yeah. Um, but it's it's getting pretty ugly. <laughs> right. So here's some things I'm hearing from certain members of the left. I'm on the left. I think you're on the left. Yeah, you're de you know, Democratic well, Socialist Bernie supporter. Uh, I was uh, I was mostly a Bernie supporter. I felt like there was no chance that the corporate oligarchy would ever let such a thing happen. But, you don't like uh, Tulsi Gabbard? Uh, no, no. I okay. I mean I can't claim to have known she was a fraud, but I knew there was something weird going on there. And now she's far right wing, basically. So let me ask you a couple of questions that I hear people on the left disagreeing with so let me get your perspective do you believe is this real left or is this msnbc left msnbc is, is that's as far that's far right that's like the azov battalion <laughs> okay. i'm glad we agree i'm glad we agree on that <laughs> that's c14 on this show uh do you believe the following do you believe Vladimir Putin meddled in Brexit, that he meddled in France's last presidential election, that he's a big supporter of Hungary's leader, Orban, and that anywhere there is an authoritarian leader in, say, Brazil, Syria, or here in the United States, like Donald Trump, any authoritarian leader who's out there has gotten some kind of funding and or assistance from Vladimir Putin. Now, I'm not asking if you think he's installed these people, but do you think he kind of helped them using internet trolls and their money? I mean, I think a lot of the things you listed are probably America did more of, but- uh, well, Like Marine I, Le Pen, I, yeah, like I, Marine I Le Pen in France? In, in terms of- or, Like, do you believe that Marine Le Pen got, got a bank loan? from America and not Russia or that Orban in Hungary is being propped up by, uh, I know Tucker likes him, but not the United States government. Aren't these people? I, I, believe, I believe you. If you I, look, I have no problem with believing you on those on those facts. I, I don't know those things, but I'm sure. But know, do you think you, that you Vladimir Putin, do you think Vladimir Putin wants to uh, prop up authoritarian regimes in in the west 
I don't know if it's specifically authoritarian or it's the ones that the it's it's leaders that are outside of the kind of uh, imperialist tentacles of the U.S. So they have so Russia has an alliance uh, or somewhat of an alliance with places like Venezuela and Venezuela is outside of the kind of capitalist tentacles of our government. So I think that would make sense for Russia to have a a desire to uh, to work with a country like that. Um, and meanwhile, we have the reverse. We have a desire to see how just how thoroughly we can crush uh, a country like Venezuela, where we, according to the U.N., we've killed uh, close to 100,000 people with our economic war on them. And if anyone thinks economic sanctions sound nice and friendly, it's basically stopping food, money and medical supplies from reaching, you know, who? Not the rich. It stops it from reaching the poor, the babies, the elderly. So we kill essentially babies, elderly in the sick in various countries, Iran, Syria, and uh, we view that as a win. It's a it's a political win for us to do that. And that type of thing I find repulsive. Yeah. Uh, what's going on in Ukraine, Maripol or the siege of Kiev that Putin is planning, this is monstrous. And what you do is you don't allow anything to come in or leave that town. That's a those are like military that that economic sanctions are slow motion sieges of of a town. And how many uh, Iraqis died uh, because of economic sanctions before the second Gulf War? Half a million, which Madeleine yeah, Albright thought was a terrific idea. Yeah, yeah. Madeleine Albright was put on the spot and said, you, you know, half a million children died from our sanctions. You know, what, what do you say about that? And she said it was worth it. Uh, that's the type of foreign policy we have. I do think in the discussion of Ukraine, we can walk and chew gum at the same time. We can admit that what's being done right. is horrible. And we can also understand that the U.S., Knowingly, I mean, you can look at, uh, uh, you know, think tank pieces and, and de Defense Department uh, reports, knowing that as they pushed closer and closer to Russia's border with NATO alliances, with missiles, uh, with with uh, funding and backing coups and putting in U.S. favorable governments, they knew they were pushing closer and closer to this day where Ironically, right now, look, what do I want as a as a peace activist, as someone who's anti-war? I want to see Ukraine and Russia sit down at a peace table and not leave the room till they've figured out what the hell they can do to end this. That's agree with me, you. who doesn't who doesn't want anyone more to die. Uh, what does the U.S. government seemingly want or the West in general? It is not that they they seem to want to to fund and arm as many people in Ukraine, which is just more death and destruction. They seem to want this to go on as long as possible. Amen. I believe the uh, I believe Biden could have stopped the invasion by reversing. What was it? The 2008 Bucharest summit where we invited Ukraine and Georgia to join the EU and NATO. And that just right. and, and Putin uh, through more than a hissy fit. Right now, do you think I I I don't know anything. I think all Biden has to do right now is guarantee Russia that the West will stop courting Ukraine uh, and Putin will stay out, that the, the West will stop courting the Eurasian countries that border Russia, not, not have them join NATO. I, 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 it, I like to think that's yeah. true. Yeah, if you look at if you look at Russia's demands as reported by Reuters, 
Uh, they were that Ukraine remains neutral, meaning never joins NATO, that no more missiles are basically sent to Ukraine, that Crimea is acknowledged as Russia's, and that the Donbass region is independent. The Donbass region, many people uh, don't know that, you know, I don't know if it's 50%, but it's it's a lot of people in that region view themselves as Russian and not Ukrainian. Right. Uh, many of them have Russian passports. They speak Russian and they've been warring since 2014, since we, you know, helped create a coup there. And there are outright Nazis. People, you, you can see photos of them with swastikas on their helmets. So these are these are not secretive Nazis. These are full frontal Nazis that are in that region. And that war has been going on for eight years and 15,000 people have died. And in the Minsk agreements, which were supposed to avoid war between Ukraine and Russia, they agreed to make that region independent uh, and they never did. So Russia's demands are not that insane if you're talking about walking back from the brink of nuclear war and not eliminating the human race. What is more insane than nuclear war? Yeah. When you say Nazis, uh, Putin says he wants to denazify Ukraine, and we've yeah. heard talks. We've we've heard talk about the Azov Battalion, C fourteen. The Azov Battalion is a right wing neo Nazi uh, militia that got absorbed into Ukraine's National Guard before Zelensky became president. The troll farms, as I understand it, the Russian troll farms want us to believe that. Ukraine is run by Nazis. That seems to be Putin's propaganda. What do you think? Do you think there's a, a neo-Nazi problem in Ukraine? I I think there's <laughs> definitely a neo-Nazi problem, yes. Uh, I think that there is a, a shades of gray argument here. Uh, I don't think I don't think the Ukrainian government is run by Nazis. Um, you know, as people will quickly point out, it's a Jewish president. But uh, according to I had, uh, you know, on my on my uh, Patreon dot uh, com slash Lee Camp, I had the former U.N. weapons inspector Scott Ritter, who everyone will hopefully remember, went on all the media outlets uh, before the U U Iraq invasion, said there was no WMD in Iraq and he was tarred and feathered for it. Um, so he is he has said and and I tend to trust him that it's not that the Nazis have, you know, the government is fully Nazi. It's that the Nazis are the ones to willing to do to use extreme violence. So these politicians uh, are largely answering to some of these neo-Nazi battalions, maybe not all of them, because those who don't uh, wind up dead uh, right. or wind up, you know, uh, threatened in some way. So his point was not that they own the government, but just that they are. Uh, making a lot of decisions because they are the power. They are the ones willing to kill to get their way. I ask tough questions on this show. I'm going to go on the record and say I'm anti-Nazi. Lee Camp, <laughs> are you pro or anti-Nazi? You make you make tough statements too. You're you're anti-Nazi. Let me you're ask you about uh, going back to what people say about RT. Russia, much of its economy comes from gas and oil. Yeah. Were you ever forbidden from linking gas and oil to climate change? Nope, covered it endlessly. I covered climate change and, and the harm we're facing, the disaster we're facing, and fossil fuels and the linkage. Uh, more than I'd, I'd say definitely any mainstream news outlet, but maybe more than any, than any independent 
uh, news outlet. And, you know, they, their fairness and accuracy reporting did some studies. You, you may, people may feel like climate change is talked about a lot now, but did some studies on our mainstream airwaves. And uh, one year, two years ago, Meet the Press mentioned climate change twice. And w- one of those times was just like a, a bare mention in a question that was unrelated. So essentially there is, is isn't the, you isn't know, considering the it's existential threat, it's like zero coverage. And here I was on a supposedly fossil fuel uh, funded network in terms of it being Russian, uh, talking about it endlessly. Isn't Meet the Press sometimes sponsored by British Petroleum and then sometimes sponsored <laughs> by Boeing? Not the way it <laughs> yeah, usually I think works. So. On September 15th, this is an area that I want to ask you about because I find it confusing. In September of 2020, Putin went into Syria to assist Bashar al-Assad. He's the leader uh, of Syria, and there's a civil war going on. It seems to have died down because he's killed everybody. Vladimir Putin sided with Assad, who has been accused of using chemical weapons on his own people. There are some people on the left who claim to be on the left who insist that Bashar Assad never used sarin gas, never used chemical weapons on his own people. There are people on the left who insist Bashar Assad did not gas his own people. Do you believe he uh, gas his own people? The reason I ask that is I, I suspect a lot of the people on the left get so, money from Russia or Syria <laughs> or Syria to uh, boost up Bashar al-Assad in, in Syria. <laughs> not, not to give you a, a loaded question there at all. So uh, Assad, you know, likely a monster. I mean, this is this is endless bombing. It's disgusting. War is disgusting, which is why I'm anti-war. Uh, so I'm opposed to all the bombing. I'm opposed to all the death. And it's immense. And the U.S. has helped fuel it. We've helped the quote unquote moderate rebels, which are not a thing. They are actually many of them are jihadists beheading people in the streets and we're helping fund and arm them. In fact, you can read, a, I think it was Washington Post or, you know, mainstream article about how CIA funded rebels were fighting at one point Pentagon funded and armed rebels in Syria. So that's how, you know, ridiculous our programs get. But uh, that doesn't mean I support Assad. You can be opposed to both sides in a war. Um, in terms of the chemical weapons, and and you kept saying uh, uh, people on the left, and then you added in uh, funded by Russia. But where or am Syria, I getting my information? Or Syria, or Syria, or Syria. But where am I getting my information? Uh, well, let me let me back up. I believe that no, of course the chemical weapons were not. Were I mean they were obviously staged. You have four OPCWs, the largest watchdog on the the uh, chemical weapons on the planet. Four whistleblowers have come forward and said that their reports were changed or doctored, showing that there were not chemical weapons attacks. You have Aaron Mate, who's not funded, a great journalist, who's not funded at all by Russia or Syria, uh, doing immense amounts of work on this. You have Seymour Hirsch coming forward and doing a report on. You have Robert Fisk. These are famous well-known journalists that have done incredible and extensive work on these things. And it would be laughable. I mean, just on its face for, so Trump, you can go back and look at the timeline. Trump announces we're withdrawing troops from Syria. Nine days later, supposedly Assad decides to use the one thing, considering he's winning the war, he has all the bombs, 
uh, decides to use the one thing that will ensure America stays in Syria. It's completely illogical. And it's uh, there's been so much great research on this that has come out that is not from, you know, the people on the left. It's not from Russian paid people. It is from impressive journalists that have done great work on this who who may be getting funded from syria do, do you believe what do you believe syria has a lobbying arm in washington dc and has paid certain no you think no? you think aaron mate and seymour i'm not saying that about aaron mate i'm not saying that about C, uh, seymour hirsch i'm just repeating what I've read and heard that, and I have seen evidence that Syria does have lobbyists and does pay people in the United I States have, to say I, honest, I honestly have no idea what you're talking about. To me, it would feel like if just because you're asking these questions, I go, so you could be funded by Raytheon. Is that what's going me? on? Here, I am funded by Raytheon. Okay. Their missiles then we, then work. we have the answer. Hey, no one's ever broken into my home. Uh, <laughs> let's get, uh, uh, Let's ask, I, got, let, I, got a, I got a few more minutes. Yeah, and I, I got to Okay. Uh, were you ever told to take it easy on Donald Trump? Oh, my God. That's hilarious. So not only was I incredibly critical of Donald Trump endlessly, but I was far in the lead up into the election, which, you know, but when he, at first he was kind of a joke candidate and then he started getting more traction. In that time, I was one of the most outspoken of any media outlet. I was I was photoshopping, literally, you can go back and watch clips, photoshopping Trump's head onto Hitler's body. And this is in a time when CNN was, you know, soft, you know, softly critiquing him, but not acting like he was a big deal. And you know, then all of a sudden he gets elected and we're told we were pro-Trump. And I'm like, this is hilarious. Like, no one was harder on Trump than I was. Do you believe this is my last area and then we'll wrap it up? But I hope <laughs> you come back. Do you believe that Russiagate had played some role in Donald Trump winning? Do you believe that Vladimir Putin wanted Trump to win and not Hillary Clinton? Do you at least believe, do you believe that Vladimir Putin would have preferred Trump winning than Hillary Clinton? That I don't know. And also considering the fact that if you look at the actual sanctions put on Russia, I'm not talking about Trump's dumb comments, but you look at the actual sanctions put on Russia that were far greater under Donald Trump than under Obama. But, but he wanted so to get rid of, what, but Trump wanted to get rid of NATO. Trump wanted to get rid of NATO. True, he did say some things about NATO. None of it happened, but... Um, well, he said the report but, is that he was, once he got reelected, he was going to pull out of NATO. And I think that would have been... Well, then maybe that, yeah, maybe that would have been a positive for Putin. But uh, to go back to your initial question, uh, it, it every tenant, every major tenant of Russiagate has collapsed hilariously. Uh, and and even the Mueller team who indicted uh, 14 or 16 people connected to a clickbait farm in St. Petersburg, uh, most of their ads appeared after the election. And most of them, if you actually look at the imagery, doesn't even seem clear that it's pressing anyone to vote one way or another. Uh, those indictments were all quietly dropped on a Friday when no one was paying attention because basically Mueller couldn't actually take these people to court because he had no evidence that they had been involved in some sort of large uh, efforts to impact the election. 
And at, like at every degree, Russiagate has fallen apart. And actually, I think a key thing that nobody ever mentions is who was blamed for Hillary Clinton's loss in the five days after the election, like immediately after. No one remembers this. Five days, 100%, who were the Democrats blaming? They were blaming James Comey and the FBI for reopening the case on Hillary Clinton. And that was who they said, oh, the FBI did it. That's why she lost. And then at some point, the Democratic establishment realizes going against the FBI, bad idea. That's not going to really long term pay out. So there was a sudden switch where it was, oh, no, it wasn't the FBI. It was Russia. And all of a sudden, James Comey is a national hero. And that switch is kind of very telling. Don't you think that they said it was the FBI, the reopening the case and then no, no. Better, better enemy is Russia. Right. I don't I, I, I'm not arguing. I'm just trying to find out what you believe. I believe that Hillary Clinton lost because she's Hillary Clinton and she didn't go to <laughs> yeah. the, the Rust Belt. And if you're looking for an excuse, blame Russia. But I happen to believe that Putin preferred Trump over Hillary because Hillary, when she was secretary of state, pushed Ukraine towards the West and ignored Putin's demands to stay out of Ukraine. I think maybe I, 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 don't I think know. Putin really hated Hillary Clinton for the Maidan. And and I know you're out of time. You don't see any evidence of Russia trying to help the National Rifle Association funnel money to Trump and Republican candidates. You don't see any evidence of Russia meeting in Trump Tower with Compromat on the DNC. I, everything that's that you're talking about has been just has just collapsed. I mean, yes, there was a Russian connected to someone that met with Trump at one point. I mean, it is such a reach to try and be like, this is clearly Vladimir Putin and made Trump do everything is it just every degree of Russiagate has just fallen on its face. And that's why you Paul see Paul Manafort no and Yanukovych, Paul, Mani what? Paul Manafort, the, the, his first campaign. Manager. Yeah, Paul Manafort was a sleazeball con man who was working for business people in Ukraine. But he wasn't if you actually what, what they actually said, he, you know, revealed to Russia or what. There's nothing. There's nothing there. He gave them poll like, number. I, I understand that. But. Yeah, poll okay. numbers in a, I mean, it honestly, it is yes. such a stretch. And that's why you end up in this spot where people are like, okay, maybe it's not that thing or that thing or that thing, but what about this little thing? Like, it, it's honestly amazing how people cling on to this rather than just saying what you just said. Hillary Clinton lost because she's Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton lost because of her history, her past, the things she says, the fact that she couldn't campaign in the Rust Belt because they found out every time she campaigned there, her numbers went down. <laughs> like, that's why she lost. Right. Lee Camp is a terrific comedian. He was the host of Redacted Tonight. Corporate censorship. That was corporate censorship. You don't believe it. I mean, I'm banned on YouTube. So, yeah, by definition, corporate censorship. And, yeah. and, and you're banned on YouTube. The, I uh, all I, the Redacted Night videos are now banned globally on YouTube. At the same time, my Spotify, my personal podcast, Moment of Clarity, was deleted from Spotify. Wow. And so I'm trying really? to do something on Patreon. Yeah. Spotify, Spotify deleted you? Yeah. Have you tried pushing ivermectin and saying the N-word 40,000 <laughs> times? Have I'm, you tried I'm thinking that? about it. I'm thinking about it. That might win back the hearts of uh, <laughs> Jesus. Uh, 
losing Redacted tonight uh, is a big loss for for media here in this country. As I appreciate that. Yeah, and RT America, you're a great comedian, and I hope you end up uh, back on the air somewhere. How do people support you? Patreon.com slash Lee Camp. I'm just trying to build that up. And if I get enough, you know, small dollar members, I can uh, create something that at least has the feel and passion of Redacted Tonight, even if it's not in a news studio. Thank you. I asked you some what I consider to be tough questions because uh, there's some misconceptions about RT America and you. And I wanted to clear the air. And and you did. I, yeah, I hope I, I hope I give you what you want. Thank you. And Lee Camp, it's Lee Camp on Twitter, right? Yep, at Lee Camp. Fantastic. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Friend me on Facebook. Follow me on Twitter. This is a pledge episode. We are raising money for, well, Paul Prescott and and uh, and uh, Lee Camp. We're trying to uh, take care of everybody here today, but we're growing this show. And when we come back, we're going to talk to Rabbi Michael Pollack. We go back to Pennsylvania and we're going to talk about democracy and the role religion should play in politics. We'll be back with Michael Pollack. But first, we support unions here. AmazonLaborUnion.org. Our friend, Christian Smalls, is about to form a union out in Staten Island, out by JFK for Amazon workers. Here's a song written in support of AmazonLaborUnion.org from our very own Professor Mike Steinell, who joins us in about 90 minutes. Chairs in the specimen shop. The back and outdated don't ever seem to stop. The man went down cause his heart gave out. Get back to work, we heard them shout. They said the EMTs are common, that's what they're for. And life slipped away on the cement floor. The bookstores are all gone away Got me some books, I'll read them someday Right now I got to make my rate and all these extra shifts If I can make it to Christmas Eve The kids will have nice gifts And the big boss will have more money So he can go up into space But there still won't be no chairs In this Bessemer place Now every day my life's controlled 
Last year we had a meeting and they made us go. They gave us all pins and said, vote no. But maybe this year Union can give us a little more and put some chairs on this Bessemore floor. I'm hoping the union might make things right. Some days I just don't have the strength to fight. This plant down here can take its toll. It'll break your body. It'll crush your soul. Feels like this packing ain't never gonna stop. And there still ain't no chairs in this Bessemer shop. AmazonLaborUnion.org. They're doing a fundraiser for AmazonLaborUnion.org here in New York City this weekend. Go to AmazonLaborUnion.org to find out how you can support Christian Smalls, our friend Christian Smalls, who is not Stuart Applebaum trying to unionize Bessemer. He's not a Harvard Law School graduate up in Connecticut who... Uh, has uh, who, who would like who thinks it would be nice to unionize have his union join uh amazon christian smalls is there uh worked at amazon Stuart applebaum i forgot I, I i don't even know the name of the union in bessemer that uh Stuart applebaum runs up in connecticut that he's trying to get uh them to vote for a union in bessemer uh, Christian Smalls worked at Amazon. He's out on the streets outside Amazon getting hassled by the cops. Christian Smalls didn't go to Harvard Law. He's the real deal. AmazonLaborUnion.org. One of the reasons today's show is so good, people have texted me, why is the show so good? For the following reasons. Dan Frankenberger, The Invisible Ninja, Professor John Bick, Joe in Norway, Andy Brown, Sarah Bush, Grace Jackson, and Hannah Feldman. I can't do this show by myself. And the way to help me grow the show is to be able to pay a, a staff of people. I can create a world-class news gathering operation, a world-class university, and a world-class comedy think tank all I need is to be able to pay people. That's all that's between me and our crew giving you the best podcast in the world. So please go to davidfeldmanshow.com. We accept all major credit cards and please donate and you will get nothing in return. No tote bag, no bumper sticker, nothing. 
You get nothing in return. Maybe a thank you note if I feel like it. My thank you is the show. My thank you is the show. Well, time to go back to Pennsylvania. I believe we're going to Harrisburg. I think that's where we're going. South uh, Philly. Where, where are we going? South Philly. South Philly, again with Philadelphia. Rabbi Michael Pollock. District. Rabbi, is, it, is that you, Rabbi Michael Pollock? That's me. He is the executive director of March on Harrisburg. They are a proud coalition member of the Pennsylvania Poor People's Campaign. Harrisburg, I believe, is Pennsylvania's state capital, and March on Harrisburg is working to bring real democracy to, to Pennsylvania by demanding, among other things, an end to prison gerrymandering, giving prisoners the right to vote, instituting rank choice voting, same day voter registration, and closing the revolving door for politicians so they don't end up as lobbyists. Please welcome Rabbi Michael Pollack. Hello, Rabbi. Hello, thank you very much for having me. And I am actually in your earlier guest, uh, future Senate district. Uh, and are you gonna vote for him? Uh, yes, um, and I told that to the uh, push poller that called me a, a couple of nights ago. What uh, were they pushing? They were pushing- uh, Pushing they, or pushing? Uh, some, Did you say push or uh, push? <laughs> uh, uh, pushing on on us, uh, pushing on the voter a very negative opinion actually of uh, of your previous guest, trying to really kind of uh, throw some some dirt some mud into the water um, on behalf of the other candidate who has taken a whole lot of money from some pretty nasty people. So um, what so would be what would be a question, an innocent question to get you to not vote for Paul Prescott? What, what do they? I ask? don't. I don't even want to repeat for your listeners what they said, but they they tried to tarnish his reputation by uh, linking him with something else that's not even, I don't even know what if it's real. Um, so, it was very obviously a smear job. So I want to thank Randall for bringing you on. He's also a lobbyist. And let's go through some of your uh, causes that you're trying to get past up in Harrisburg. Harrisburg is the, the capital of Pennsylvania, correct? Uh, correct. And we are in uh, Pennsylvania. We've been labeled the fifth most corrupt state in the country. We've been labeled a partly free democracy. Um, we don't have many uh, ethics laws here in PA. So uh, our top cause right now is fighting for the gift ban, um, because in Pennsylvania, you can give unlimited gifts to our state legislators, including cars, cash, vacations. Uh, you can walk into uh, your, your favorite Pennsylvania state senator's office and give them a brand new car and a trip to the Bahamas. Pens you said Pennsylvania is one of the most corrupt states in the union. You, did you write oh, yeah. Rudy Giuliani's speech in the parking lot of the Four Seasons? Boy, you know, there's a lot of absurdity that comes with corruption. You have to cover up the uh, corruption by having a clown show out in front. <laughs> uh, but you don't believe anything that Giuliani claimed about the voting. In oh, God, no. no. So, right. What is, the rumbling, hack. what is the rumbling sound? Are you touching... Ooh, um, did it stop? Yeah, I think you're touching something. I think so too. I, I have to use a microphone, and oh. uh, I think I was, I was uh, talking okay. with that. Yeah. All right, Rabbi, let's let's talk uh, Turkey, Pennsylvania Poor People's Campaign. What is the Pennsylvania Poor People's Campaign? 
Uh, we are uh, the Pennsylvania chapter of the uh, National Poor People's Campaign, which is co-chaired by Reverend William Barber, Reverend Liz Theo Harris, and uh, we're trying to end systemic racism, end the war economy, end ecological devastation, and uh, uh, take this, um, I'm sorry, and, and end the uh, distorted moral narrative of, of white supremacy and, and fascism in this country. Right. Uh, so here in Pennsylvania, we got about a dozen and a half or so groups on various fronts of struggle, all base-building organizations, all organizing to you know, uh, for a revolution of the heart. Okay. I happen to believe prisoners should be allowed to vote. Mm -hmm. I think something like 90% of people behind bars never even got a trial. I think they all plea out. Uh, you want to give prisoners the vote. Uh, what does it say in the Bible about giving prisoners the right to vote? And just make something up. <laughs> Nobody's going to check. Um, it definitely says that, you know, in, in Genesis and the early chapters that we are all created in the image of the divine. And, and therefore, you, you will, we all have a spark that needs to be expressed. And uh, in Hebrew, the word for your voice is also the word for vote, uh, kol. And uh, you cannot silence somebody's voice. And therefore, you cannot silence their vote. <laughs> what does March uh, on Harrisburg do? What, what is most of your yeah. what, what do you do most days of the week? Uh, we do a little a good bit of lobbying of going in and convincing legislators to make corruption illegal which as you can probably imagine is a pretty absurd activity a lot of the time uh, we do a lot of long distance marching we've gone from philly to harrisburg twice you know we're talking nine day marches um we've gone from lancaster to harrisburg once we do a whole lot of nonviolent direct action we disrupt fundraisers we disrupt uh we disrupt fundraisers at golf courses at hotels we disrupt uh session days we throw cash down from the house gallery um we we blockade the senate president's door we we do all sorts of direct actions and uh, we do a lot of education and, and base building organizing building the moral fusion movement to bring democracy to pennsylvania what is your website uh mohpa.org ml oh, i'm sorry uh, moh uh, march on harrisburg uh, pa.org mohpa.org mohpa.org moh PA.org. What is prison gerrymandering and why do you want to end it? Uh, prison gerrymandering is when you uh, reallocate the, um, I'm sorry, when, when you're doing the census, you count people in their prison location instead of where they're from, where they're going to be going back to after their sentence is over. So you take a snapshot in time when the census is done, and then you redistrict uh, with people in the prison instead of back home. So what you end up with is representation being shifted toward uh, oftentimes more rural areas that have uh, uh, higher prison populations. Um, so in Pennsylvania, you're supposed to have 64,000 people per state rep district with prison gerrymandering. You end up with these districts that really have 60,000 people in them and some districts that have 67,000 people in them and you just get that distorted representation. Uh, but there's all sorts of gerrymandering in PA. Um, we just also want to end, you know, regular gerrymandering, which is right. uh, quite absurd here, too. Right. Yeah. What does rank choice voting mean? 
uh, the way we vote right now, you go in and you say, this is my, this is who I want to win. And whoever gets the most votes wins. And uh, the problem with that is you can win a split election with less than a majority of the votes. So if you look at the 2016 uh, GOP presidential primary, Donald Trump was able to win in a crowded field with way less than a majority of the votes. Uh, here in Pennsylvania, that same year in 2016, we had uh, uh, two Senate candidates running against each other, one pro-fracking, one anti-fracking. And then all of a sudden, and a third candidate jumps in, says he's anti-fracking, splits the anti-fracking vote, pro-fracking candidate wins with 40% of the vote. Happens all the time. And with ranked choice voting, it's uh, also called instant runoff voting. You go in, you say, this is my number one, this is my number two, this is my number three. And if nobody gets a majority of first place votes, you have a runoff. The last place person disappears, their votes go to their second place person, uh, and so on and so on until someone has a majority. And where when you have ranked choice voting, uh, you don't have negative campaigning. You don't have people going out there slashing and burning away the rest of the field because you have to count on people's second place votes. Uh, right, so you have to stay on issues. Stay. You can't do personal yeah. attacks. Right. It's incredible. We've seen candidates in places with ranked choice voting filming commercials together saying if vote for me as your number one but if you don't put me as your number two the other person right. saying you know i like bill well, you know we're on the same page they have that in california now right uh in some parts of california they do in the bay area um, they do utah is actually where it's exploding right now um it's it's a red and blue state type thing it's it's picking up as, uh, steam everywhere right and they also are big on mail-in voting in utah Oh, boy, we brought mail-in voting to Pennsylvania in 2019. We passed it through a Republican legislature, and that was the first update to our electoral code in 75 years. That was a, a fun win. <laughs> Happy we still, did that before uh, Do you still have it? Hmm? Do you still have mail-in voting? We do. We do. We've been able to protect it ever since. Yeah. We passed it with a majority. Uh, I'm sorry, with unanimous Republican uh, support. Right. You're the Republicans. You have a Democratic governor, but what, your assembly, what, what, how does it work in the, in, in the, the Senate? And is there an assembly that's Republican? So we have, um, I mean, what Ben Franklin designed in 1776 just had a House and no Senate. But what we do have today has uh, both a House and a Senate. Um, and they're both Republican dominated by, by a good number, by a, a very gerrymandered, locked in uh, majority. Um, it'll probably even out in the next election because we have new maps, uh, but it's going to be a toss up in, in both chambers. And our governor is Democratic. New maps. Toomey is going. He said he wasn't going to run, but he is going to run, right? No. Is he really? No. I haven't heard that. I think he's he not going to run. I heard no. that he has second thoughts. Okay. No, Dr. Oz is running. And, oh, uh, and the hedge fund guy from Connecticut and then a couple other uh, clowns. It's, okay. uh, it's, it's quite a crew. Dr. Oz. Uh, Ted it's Nugent. Dr. Oz. Ted Nugent <laughs> is endorsing Dr. Oz. Closing the revolving door. How do you do that? How do you say to politicians, you cannot work as a lobbyist after you leave office? Yeah, it's, uh, it's the same question for all of our policies. How do you convince a corrupt legislature to outlaw their own corruption? It's, it's very tough, um, whether that be the gifts or the campaign contributions or the dark money or the future job offers. You know, in Pennsylvania, we also have a side jobs problem where legislators just 
also while being a full-time legislator, work a side job. Our Senate president is also on the board of directors of Old Dominion Bank. Our last speaker of the house was uh, of counsel to Fortune 500 corporations. And then he retired, spun through that revolving door and became a gas lobbyist. Uh, so how do you close it is through intense, intense movement building and intense public pressure. Do it's they make enough money, though, as lawmakers to support? Do you make enough money as a lawmaker to support yourself? Oh, yeah, uh, we have a full time. Um, we're the largest full time legislature in the country. It's a starting salary of 90,000. So 91,000 a year with a great health care plan, incredible pension, state car uh, per diem of $160 per day starting out. Right. Um, it's It's a. That's a good job. It'll be great. Yeah. <laughs> what, what's great about that is if you can't live on $91,000 a year, you shouldn't be doing budgeting for the state of Pennsylvania. That's the first step towards knowing how to balance a, a state budget is living on $91,000 a year. Yeah, that's that's. Yeah. Uh, our, our credit rating, uh, I think it got uh, downgraded again as a state last year. We don't know how to budget. Because um, we're, we're mired in scandal. $100 yeah. million dollars from the Turnpike Commission is missing. Again, this is like every generation, there's a Turnpike Commission scandal. And we just give away money. I mean, we're, we just signed off on a, um, a, a tax break for uh, cryptocurrency mining in northeastern PA. It's going to cost us $90 million a year. Is it mining or years. fracking? Do, do you frack for oh. cryptocurrencies in Pennsylvania? Maybe we'll get Josh Fox on this. Go to mohpa.org to find out more about March on Harrisburg. We're almost out of time. We're five minutes behind. Let me ask you about uh, rabbis. Uh, I was reading the obit of Rabbi Israel Dresner, who died in January born on the Lower East Side of Manhattan, served in the army. There were three rabbis who advised Dr. King. Rabbi Israel Dresner was one of them. He was the first rabbi to get arrested during the Freedom Rides. He championed the rights of the poor, the LGBTQ community. He opposed Bibi Netanyahu, as well as the Israeli settlements. As they say in Judaism, now that's a rabbi, Rabbi Israel Dresner. If you're not striving to be Rabbi Israel Dresner, you're a worthless rabbi. You're a stupid <laughs> rabbi. How do you put up with stupid rabbis? I like to tell the rabbis that they're stupid. Is that wrong? There are some stupid rabbis who waste their congregation's time talking about things that are not important. If you're a rabbi and you're not talking about the Poor People's Campaign and, and speaking out against white nationalism, what good are you? Yes. <laughs> the answer to that. Um, absolutely, 100%. I mean, the goal of Judaism, the goal of the Jewish tradition, and the goal of the Jewish people is to create a more perfect world, is to bring about, you know, in the... Sakuna Law. For internal, 
it's tikkun olam exactly to repair the world and if you're not engaging in that project you're you're, you're wasting a life and you're setting us back a generation in that mission of repairing the world um absolutely i believe that you know it's the job of the rabbi to afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted and if you're not doing that i don't know what what you're doing um i'm, I'm proud i'll just share i'm proud to be known in, in the state capital uh, as uh, that fucking rabbi uh, and called a militant hebrew school teacher uh, and i just learned that uh, for, uh some, some high-powered lobbyists call me the rabid rabbi which i, I really I like, that. I like that one um but yeah the goal is justice and if you're not pursuing justice you're 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 doing something else which is distracting from justice and the goal is not to be a chaplain of empire the goal is to destroy the empire and build something much more beautiful in its place yes i had a, a piece of work my kids had a rabbi who was a real i went to a showbiz temple in los angeles <laughs> beautiful temple and i had a rabbi who was a piece of work and i said to him you know are you going to speak out against the war on terror are you going to say anything about the Republicans running, uh, you know, being anti-gay marriage. He goes, well, you know, I've got a mixed audience here. I got to play to everybody. And I said, the Jews are not proud of you. You will not be remembered. Nobody will remember you. I'm not going to say his name, but I said to him, nobody will ever say your name with pride. No. Yeah. So Michael. much work to be done, and uh, it's not on us to finish it. But we can't desist from it any either. And if somebody's you know sitting this uh, the fight out, that's that's a shanda. That's a shame. Yes, and you're anything but a shanda, Rabbi Michael Pollock. Yeah. Will you come back? Absolutely. Plug Thank away. You very tell much. It, plug away. Tell us what to do, Rabbi. Oh, um, uh, mohpa.org. Uh, follow us on all the social media things. I'm, I, my mindset is like sixth century Babylon. Um, so I, I'm not quite sure how the social media work, but uh, <laughs> follow us on TikTok, TikTok and uh, Twitter and Facebook like and Instagram and all the things. I, I screwed over. Oh, we've been, we've been trending over. on TikTok. Say it all over. I talked over. I talked over you. <laughs> Sorry, we've actually been trending on TikTok lately. Uh, it's it's uh, uh, we have great videos of us disrupting fundraisers. And you give now. beauty tips, right? Sorry, you give beauty tips as well. <laughs> Absolutely. M o h p a dot org. M o h p a dot org. Thank you, Randall, for introducing us to Rabbi Pollock. I hope you'll come back. Thank you. Absolutely. And also, everybody, June 18th, 2022, come down to D.C. for the Poor People's Campaign Mass Moral March on Washington. Should be a good time. What is more important than the uh, 140 million Americans living at or below the poverty line? There's nothing more. If you're not talking about the 140 million Americans who live at or below the poverty line, what good are you? What good are you? I'm blocks away from the Liberty Bell, which has a quote on it from Leviticus chapter 25, which says, proclaim liberty throughout all the land to all the inhabitants thereof with the economic system described in Leviticus 25 designed to eliminate poverty. That is the goal. That's the meaning of the Liberty Bell. It's no more poverty. Great. Thank you, Rabbi. Thank you. You're listening to The David Feldman Show. I, I was I'm, it's a pledge episode, and I said I was going to say you, too, can eliminate poverty, but I'm not. I'm not going to do that. Go to David. Fe this is a pledge episode. We do these every once in a while to grow the show. We are put together by people like Dan Frankenberger, people like the Invisible Ninja, Joe in Norway, Sarah Bush, Grace Jackson, Hannah Feldman, Professor John, 
Bick, Andy Brown, they put in a lot of hours to keep this show going and they must be paid. We don't have corporate underwriting. We don't have sponsors. We are beholden only to the listeners. Please go to davidfeldmanshow.com. We accept all major credit cards. Hit the donate button and watch us grow. Watch the show grow as we bring on more and more people. That's why today's show is so good. If you notice something different about today's show, it's because we have people helping me. It's can't do a one man operation. Hello, Peter B. Collins, who brought you brought a very great writer from The Intercept. Trevor Aronson is here. This is exciting. Hello, Peter. Hi, David. Great to be with you. And uh, I just want to acknowledge that Rabbi Pollock is a, a great movement leader. I interviewed him a few years back when he was starting the Harrisburg protests, and I'm just glad you had him on the show. I was stuck on another Zoom call, so I will uh, listen to the segment later. Well, this is exciting. You've got Trevor Aronson here, so why don't you introduce him? This is fantastic. Thank you, Trevor. Well, tr Trevor Aronson is a man that I've known for almost 15 years now. I have great respect for his work as a journalist, and he has helped uh, inform my continuing bias uh, against the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Uh, that bias goes back to the 1970s when I covered the uh, trial that was uh, brought by the survivors of Fred Hampton, who was murdered by the Chicago police in a plot that was uh, designed and executed by the FBI. And Trevor wrote a powerful book called The Terror Factory, Inside the FBI's Manufactured War on Terrorism. Trevor, thanks for being with us today. Hey, Peter, thanks for the introduction. Thanks for having me. And you also well, have a piece in The Intercept entitled Echoes of FBI Entrapment Haunt, Failed Plot to Kidnap Gretchen Whitmer, who is the governor of Michigan. So I know we'll be talking about that. Well, and Trevor has been writing at The Intercept, what, eight or 10 years now? Uh, something like that. I think, I think I started there in 2014. Yeah, so getting there. Yeah, yeah. And you've done a lot of great work exposing uh, the various sting operations of the FBI, the vast majority of which were aimed at Muslim Americans, the vast majority of which uh, involved a paid FBI informant. Some 15,000 of those informants uh, have been on the payroll of the FBI in recent years since 9-11. Uh, the published public budget for these informants uh, exceeds $40 million a year uh, the last time I looked. So we have a history of the FBI using what I consider to be entrapment in many cases. Sometimes these informants are uh, you know, useful in breaking up uh, an intended terrorist plot. But those are, are you know, <laughs> a very small subset of these domestic terrorism investigations that really boil down to framing up individuals who really don't have any ability to defend themselves. So, Trevor, before we go to Michigan for the Wolverine Watchmen case, Give our, our listeners who perhaps uh, have not seen your work before an overview 
of uh, the FBI's role since 9-11. Sure, yeah. So if you look at the prosecution of international terrorism suspects or defendants since 9-11, and by international terrorism, I mean, you know, how the federal government refers to it. So, you know, someone who, you know, even if they've never left the United States, kind of affiliates or sympathizes with uh, an international terrorist ideology such as ISIS or Al-Qaeda or Hamas or any of a number of um, foreign designated terrorist organizations, um, you know, what, what ends up, what you know, I'm looking at over the last 20 or so years is that the, the government, the Justice Department has prosecuted a little more than 900 defendants in international terrorism cases. And of those, uh, just over 450, you know, roughly half of the total are defendants who are caught up in FBI sting operations. And, and what that means is that the FBI finds someone who, you know, they claim, the FBI claims espoused some danger or, you know, was interested in moving forward in some sort of terrorism plot. And the FBI, through the use of an informant, sometimes the use of an undercover agent, will pose as someone who can facilitate that plot. And so the the form it generally takes is that you have someone, you know, perhaps a loud mouth who, you know, has some really bad ideas about getting involved in violence, but on their own lacks the means. They don't have weapons. They don't know anyone who can buy, you know, they can buy weapons from. And even if they did know someone they can buy weapons from, they don't have any money. And so the FBI in the use of these sting operations basically solves all of those problems. They provide all of the weapons needed for a plot, um, oftentimes providing what are, you know, sophisticated bombs or in some cases like even surface to air missiles that, you know, even like the mafia would have trouble obtaining. And so, you know, what ends up happening is that you get the FBI through these sting operations, takes what can reasonably be described as a pretty hapless person and then transforms them into what seems like a really scary terrorist who was plotting to, you know, bomb a, you know, a building downtown or use a surface to air missile. And then what happens is the government then parades those arrests out to the public. It makes national news. And, you know, it appears that, you know, the FBI has foiled all of these terrorism plots. And I think, you know, if you look back over the 20 years since 9-11, you know, a big reason that you can kind of point to the Islamophobic hysteria that really kind of engendered in this country and in which, you know, Donald Trump kind of tapped into as a as a presidential candidate when he, you know, called for shutting down the borders to, you know, Muslims entering the country, you know, that hysteria was largely created by, you know, these, you know, hundreds and hundreds of sting operations where the FBI manufactured the threat and then portrayed it to the public as, as real. Um, and so a lot of my work is trying to, you know, pull back that curtain to show that, you know, these sting operations and these terrorism plots that the FBI has portrayed to the public are not all that they appear to be. In many cases, the defendants who are caught are utterly incapable of even, you know, minor crimes, let alone grand acts of terrorism. And in many cases, or excuse me, in some cases, you know, the defendants have been diagnosed with mental illness and have been easily manipulated by FBI informants who themselves stand to make, you know, six figures or more in compensation by, you know, bringing these people into, you know, prosecution. And so the informants have a reason to be aggressive. They have, they have a direct incentive to get paid by kind of setting these people up in terrorism plots. And this has really become kind of the bread and butter way that the FBI has found terrorists in kind of the post 9-11 era. 
and, and a way to think about it and explain why this is happening. And, and when I say this, I don't mean to suggest that there isn't a threat of terrorism. Obviously, there's a threat of extremism from, you know, or an array of ideologies, some of which, you know, some of whom, you know, may be quite violent and potentially terrorist. But that threat is actually pretty small, right? But the, the FBI is under enormous pressure post 9-11 or was under enormous pressure post 9-11 to find the next terrorist. And so, you know, instead of saying, OK, Congress, you gave us you know billions of dollars and we searched all around and we didn't find any of these terrorists, these sting operations allow the FBI a very kind of convenient mechanism to go to Congress and go to the public and say, hey, you know, you've given us billions of dollars in counterterrorism. Let us show you what we, we did with your money. And then it can create these sting operations. But obviously, the real question becomes how many of these people were truly threats. And, and, the, and the answer to that is that not many of them actually were. And Trevor, if, if I may put you on the spot, you've covered hundreds of these cases. But two stick out in my foggy memory. One is a kid from the Chicago area who wasn't old enough to drive or didn't have a car, I don't recall. But when he told his uh, FBI handler that he wanted to uh, blow up a courthouse, the handler said, well, why don't we start with something small? How about a shopping mall? And the kid said, okay. And then he said, but, you know, I don't have any money. And the FBI informant bought his stereo speakers or told him that he could trade his stereo speakers for a bomb. Uh, Explain that case a little bit. And then I'll just double it up. There was another one of uh, a, a kid, I believe in Arizona, who was groomed by the FBI until he became 18. And they gave him a phone, a burner phone, uh, because his mother objected to him getting phone calls from the FBI. And once he achieved the age of 18, they busted him. Uh, if you could thumbnail those two stories, please. Yeah, so the first is that you mentioned in, in outside Chicago is a, is a man named Derek Sharif. Um, and, and Derek was a, a reasonably new convert to Islam and had really fallen on hard times and, you know, actually was, was borderline homeless, was looking for a new place to live. And he meets this FBI informant and the FBI informant says to him, hey, you can, you know, live in my apartment. And to Derek, this was kind of a, you know, a feeling of God at work, you know, kind of verified for him a lot of what he saw in his new religion. And so he goes and lives with this FBI informant. And in conversations that the informant encouraged, Derek had these kind of wild ideas of, you know, killing a judge. He didn't even know the name of a judge. It was just kind of these, these fantasies of a somewhat deranged mind. And, you know, eventually the informant keeps prodding him and says, you know, maybe we should attack a shopping mall. And and Derek seems interested in it. But the problem was that even after the FBI, through the informant, introduces an undercover agent who can sell weapons, specifically some grenades, Derek didn't have any money. And so the FBI had to kind of think on its feet and figure out a way that they could engineer this plot so that, you know, he could get these grenades. And the only thing of value that Derek apparently had were these old stereo speakers. And so the informant tells Derek, he's like, well, my guy, the arms dealer, you know, he'll if you give him these stereo speakers and I think it'll, you know, he'll exchange them for some grenades. And that's what Derek does. He gives this undercover agent these old stereo speakers and the undercover agent gives him these grenades that, um, you know, were inert, but Derek didn't realize that. And he's arrested and charged with, a, you know, a conspiracy to bomb a shopping mall in Illinois. You know, I mean, the absurdity of that case is, is pretty obvious, right? I mean, I, 
I, I can't imagine any arms dealer accepting stereo speakers in exchange for grenades, but maybe, you know, maybe on eBay, maybe there's maybe, somebody, you never eBay, know. You know? Yeah. And, okay. And, and then the case in the Arizona that you mentioned is, is an example of where the FBI, you know, there've been a number of cases where the FBI has met an impressionable young man. And I, in many of these cases, I suspect had the FBI just gone to the, the family's home, knocked on the door and said, Hey, we're the FBI. We saw your son doing some stupid stuff online or saying some, you know, you know he was saying some, you know, uh, really kind of horrible things at the mosque, you know, tell him to knock it off. Right. And I think in most cases, like the family would have gotten involved. The son would have like realized that he was, you know, not doing what he should have been doing and kind of scared straight, so to speak. Right. But as the FBI, as FBI agents have told me, you know, over and over again, when I've mentioned that as a possible solution, they're like, well, you know, what's the FBI? We're not like a social services agency. That's not what we do, right? And so instead what they do is they kind of push people along into plots until they can, the FBI can do what it's meant to do, which is arrest people and, and result in, you know, criminal charges. And so the, the, the case you're talking about there is someone who was very much on the borderline, was actually a minor when he was first encountered by the FBI or when the FBI first encountered him, I should say, and ultimately kind of pushed him along into a plot that, you know, was questionable at best, but really you know, probably shouldn't have even gone as far as it did. Um, and I think the reason plots like that go farther than they should is simply the, the enormous pressure that the FBI is under in that, you know, you know, as I mentioned before, the FBI, the largest part of its budget is counterterrorism. And so you end up having this tier of pressure where, you know, the, the upper levels, the executive levels at the FBI are telling people running their local offices that they need to find terrorism cases that you know, pressure gets put down on individual agents who then put that pressure on informants. And so there is just this kind of direct incentive to try to make cases when those cases might not be cases after all. And Trevor, moving into 2020, presidential election year, uh, critical part of the uh, pandemic period, and also the FBI was under great pressure to deal with domestic white supremacy terrorist groups. And A.C. Thompson did a great job on Frontline and uh, in other outlets reporting on Adam Waffen, this uh, very militant uh, group that uh, uh, there, there was a guy murdered in uh, Huntington Beach, California, uh, in relation to Adam Waffen. So there was a lot of pressure to deal with these uh, militant white groups. And here comes the uh, Wolverine Watchmen in Michigan. They're all worked up because of Governor Gretchen Whitmer's uh, pandemic uh, responses, lockdowns, masking, uh, school closures. Every state pretty much experienced some variation of that. And this is a case where there were as many FBI informants as there were suspects. And the trial is underway right now. It's being kind of blanked out by coverage of Ukraine. Uh, we're not seeing a whole lot of mainstream media coverage. And the Associated Press, which is doing, you know, uh, at least an attempted job at covering the trial on a daily basis, uh, barely acknowledges uh, the exposure of the FBI in this case. They do note that the defense is using an entrapment argument. But I want to credit uh, uh, Ken Bensinger and uh, Bensinger and Jessica Garrison, who first published 
the backstory of this plot at uh, BuzzFeed, and it was last July. And it set off my bullshit detector big time, Trevor, uh, because the way this was played in the media with a takedown that occurred in October of 2020, just weeks before the election, it was played by Rachel Maddow and other anchors on television as a slam dunk case that these white extremist Trump supporters wanted to kidnap Governor uh, uh, Whitmer and that uh, they had various schemes to achieve this. So with that, give us your take on what you know so far from your investigations and from what the trial has covered to date. Yeah, I, I agree. The BuzzFeed has done some really marvelous reporting on this. And then I think what's made this this particular case um, really interesting is that unlike in a, a number of international terrorism cases, you know, the lawyers representing the, the Wolverine Watchmen or the alleged Wolverine Watchmen um, have been really aggressive in, in kind of getting documents from the government and questioning, you know, the extent to which informants played a role, which is something that you don't often see or you don't always see, I should say, in some of these international terrorism cases. Um, but to me, what's interesting about this, this Sting case is that it's it really is taking the playbook that the FBI mastered over 20 years and targeting you know, impressionable young Muslims and is applying it now to, you know, these, you know, domestic extremists. But a lot of the same issues are at play. You know, among the issues is um, among the issues are, you know, the, the use of paid informants who have a direct incentive because they're getting money from the government, often a lot of money from the government to build cases. And then the, the other being that the people involved, um, you know, while they did have weapons, which makes them somewhat different from some of the Islamist cases we've seen in the past, you know, these, these frankly were not the, you know, the brightest bulbs, right? These, these were people who were living on the fringes, you know, the, the main uh, the, the so-called ringleader, um, Adam Fox, you know, was was kind of living in an, in an apartment where there was no running water bathroom. He would use the Mexican restaurant next door. You well, know, he, he was living under a vacuum cleaner shop, right? Right. He was living in a trap door of his friend's vacuum cleaner shop. And, you know, it was just like and, and what, you know, he, you know, had so much trouble kind of remembering details of their plot to kidnap Gretchen Whitmer that other members of the Wolverine Watchmen would call him Captain Autism. And, you know, in addition, you know, it's since come out or he has since alleged that for a lot of the talk that they were involved in about, you know, this plot to kidnap Gretchen Whitmer, for much of that, he claims he was high on marijuana. And so, you know, getting back to the plot itself, I mean, the reason that this plot is so problematic or appears to be so problematic in the way that a lot of these plots targeting Islamist extremists were, is that it didn't appear or it does not appear to me that the plot could have happened were it not for the direct involvement of the FBI informants. You know, the, there was an FBI informant who went by the name Big Dan who took on a leadership role in the, in the plot. Um, the group of guys in Michigan um, ended up traveling to Ohio and Wisconsin for, you know, militant training. And those trips were paid for by the FBI, secretly paid for by the FBI through the use of informants and agents. And, you know, it was during those trips with the FBI informant and an agent's encouragement that the plot to kidnap Gretchen Whitmer kind of came into, in, into kind of uh, into view and was really pushed by, by the group. And so at every stage in this plot, including at the very end, 
when they were surveilling Gretchen Whitmer's vacation home in northern Michigan, you know, the FBI informants and agents were there. You know, the the government's involvement in the plot was so critical that were the, were the agents and the informants not involved, it couldn't have happened. For example, you know, they came up with this audacious plan where they would bomb the lead car in Gretchen Whitmer's, um, you know, security de- detail or motorcade, and then rush in and grab her from the car and kidnap her while simultaneously um, detonating explosives on a bridge that would prevent, you know, police from being able to respond and make a rescue. Well, the person who was responsible for the explosives to blow up that bridge, which was again, critical to their harebrained scheme, you know, was in fact an FBI undercover agent. So like there were, you know, there were the informants and the agents were playing these critical roles throughout in addition to encouraging them. And so the, the question that's before the trial now, and the trial started last week and has been delayed possibly until Thursday due to a, um, you know someone involved in the trial being diagnosed with COVID-19, but we expected to start Thursday or thereabout. Um, you know, the question in this trial is really whether this was all talk, which is what the defense lawyers want, you know, the jury to believe that this was all talk and this was entrapment or what the government is alleging is that even though these agents were involved, the, the informants were involved, that this was a real plot. And, you know, it's, it, it'll be interesting to see what happens. I mean, what's interesting about this case compared to Islamist extremism cases is that the record of conviction in Islamist extremism cases from FBI stings is, is almost perfect. There have just been a couple of people for kind of different reasons that ended up getting acquitted at trial. But the overwhelming majority of the more than 450 defendants who are caught up in FBI stings have been convicted. And many of those people argued entrapment unsuccessfully at trial. And so it'll be interesting to see whether the egregious aspects of this case um, you know, result in any sort of acquittal as a result of entrapment, or kind of more interestingly, you know, whether a jury is going to view this differently because it's domestic extremists involving white people versus kind of international extremism involving mostly brown and black people. And Trevor, you mentioned Big Dan. He originally was contacting the FBI as a sort of whistleblower because he was concerned about some people in the Flint area where he is based uh, who were, you know, talking about uh, violent action. And Big Dan was flipped to become uh, the kind of lead dog on the FBI informant team. And as I recall, he was paid more than $50,000 for his work in, this is my view, framing these schlubs who were loudmouths. They were the kind of people who showed up in Lansing at the state capitol uh, with an AK-47. But fundamentally, they didn't have their shit together uh, in any meaningful way that they could have pulled this off, as you've said, without the, uh, the deep support of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Right. So, so, so Big Dan was a, a retired, I believe he was a retired postal worker and he had formerly been in the military. And as I recall, he, he had come across the Wolverine Watchmen because they were recruiting people on, on Facebook to get involved in military training. And to him, you know, this was a way to kind of sharpen his military skills, which had atrophied over time. And then he starts going to the Wolverine Watchmen and realizes that it's more than just kind of like you know, practicing military techniques. It's, you know, you know, talking about violence against the government and he goes to the FBI and you're right. They sign him up as an informant. They pay him more than $50,000. 
And again, this, this reminds me of kind of a similar case, the case you mentioned in Arizona, where, you know, the, the FBI faces, you know, in, has information that someone may be involved in, you know, interested in getting involved in some sort of terrorism plot. And so instead of confronting the person and maybe asking questions in a way that would startle them and scare them and maybe stop them in their tracks, the FBI instead uses undercover operatives to push the plot forward, right? And so, you know, a reasonable question, I think, in the Wolverine Watchmen case, and this gets at kind of policy and practice of the FBI, is if, you know, had Big Dan contacted them, as he did, instead of signing up that guy as an informant and asking him to be an operative for the FBI, what if, you know, FBI agents dressed in black suits show up at the Wolverine Watchmen house and, like, are like, hey, we heard you guys are interested in plotting you know, we want to ask you some questions about these plots to like, you know, get involved in violence. You know, it's possible, and I'm saying, and I'm saying this would have happened, but it's possible that that would have scared them enough to be like, oh, wow, we need to back off. The FBI knows what we're doing. And that, you know, the, you know, obviously hundreds of thousands of dollars that the FBI, if not millions, invested in time and resources in setting up the Wolverine Watchmen may have been unnecessary because, you know, these guys that maybe they're talk, maybe they're not, but once they're kind of, you know, have have this, you know, get scared by FBI agents showing up at their door, it's quite possible that they would have stopped. But the FBI practice and policy is not to do that. The FBI practice is to go in and try to push the plot forward. And what I would argue is that the reason they do that is they have this direct incentive to build cases because they're under pressure to, to you know, create new cases. And, and that, that pressure was even greater, you know, starting in 2017, 2018, we began to see a rash of, um, violence that, you know, was, you know, allegedly inspired by Donald Trump and his rhetoric, right? The, the most famous example of this was the man, the strip club DJ in South Florida who mailed uh, small pipe, small crude pipe bombs to Democratic Party officials and CNN. His name is Caesar Syoc. And, and the, there became this like growing media narrative that, you know, Donald Trump was, you know, fermenting violence through his campaign rhetoric. And, and as a result, there was a lot of public pressure on government to do something about that. And in turn, the FBI was under increasing pressure to, you know, um, be more aggressive with domestic extremism in a way that it hadn't been during its previous, you know, 20 year focus on on international extremism and Islamist extremism. And so, you know, the, the this Wolverine Watchmen case is really born out of that, that suddenly the FBI, under so much pressure to combat domestic extremism, you know, really is able to kind of hang its hat on this particular case and say, you know, hey, we busted this really, you know, about as high profile plot as you can get, right? Like, you know, the kidnapping of, a, of an American governor. And, and that also is something that, you know, just, you know, created an enormous amount of media buzz and attention, right? I mean, I, note, I noted in my article that you know, when it was announced, there was there was actually a hurricane about to strike Texas, and that got knocked off the the front you know story of evening news, and it was this plot to kidnap Whitmer. And so, what this creates, and, and what we saw this create in the twenty years after nine eleven with Islamist extremism, is that as the FBI builds cases like this, it gets a lot of attention. The public, you know, throws up its arm and says, "Oh, we're really concerned about this new threat." That puts more pressure on the government to find these cases. And then we have this kind of like wag the dog effect where, you know, um, the, the government is kind of finding more and more of these cases. And, and one of the things I noted in my article was that you, you see this kind of questionable, these questionable numbers being thrown out by uh, Christopher Ray, the FBI's director, 
you know, I, I think it was in 2017, he said the FBI had 1,000 open investigations involving domestic terrorism. You know, 18 months or a year later, it was 2,000. And then the most recent number he had was 2,700, which is just an enormous amount of investigations. And it's like so enormous that it's that's really hard to believe. And, and I interviewed Michael Sherwin, who was the former deputy attorney general for national security under Trump. And, you know, he had pointed out that like, you know, these are, this is kind of a numbers play, right? This is how Washington works. You know, you're getting a lot of money to do this. And so you need to be able to, you know, give these large numbers. But what the FBI isn't transparent about is like, what does that number really mean? Like, you know, is it 2,700 like Wolverine Watchmen style investigations? Or is it like, you know, somebody called an FBI office and said, you know, my neighbor's a neo-Nazi and that, you know, initial assessment counts as an inquiry, right? And so, you know, we, what we're seeing and, and what I fear is that a lot of the dynamics that played out in exaggerating or inflating the threat of Islamist extremism within the United States in the two decades after 9-11 are, are being duplicated in this new kind of push to investigate right-wing extremism. And I mean, obviously, right-wing extremism is a concern. There have been a number of cases, including deadly ones, but the the but the fear I have is that, you know, these types of cases will end up kind of exaggerating that threat in the same way that we saw the Islamist extremist threat exaggerated in the previous decades. Trevor Aronson, thank you for your reporting. And I'll just add that we will never know if the coverage of the bust of the Wolverine Watchmen in October of 2020 had a material impact on how people voted. Uh, and, you know, I don't support any of the Trump bullshit that the election was rigged against him. But this media coverage and the operations of the FBI, I think, are, uh, you know, fair to inspect uh, for the impact that they certainly may have had on how people voted. David, did you want yes, to, please. Uh, Thank talk you. to Trevor? And absolutely. Trevor, could you you've been very generous with your time. Can you spare a few more minutes? Sure. Yeah, of course. Professor Marianne Cummings joins us. She was the first one to talk about the kidnapping conspiracy. What is what is your question, Professor Marianne? Yeah. Uh, and thank you. By the way, uh, Trevor, I have been reading your work for a number of years at The Intercept, you know, and it's been very interesting. So uh, one of the questions I had years ago when you were writing about this is, yeah, these uh, these investigations do grind up a lot of time, a lot of energy, a lot of money. How is that impacting the FBI's ability to nab real terrorists? And you know, I, I, I give the example before of this major um, Nidal Malik Hassan, Major Hassan. Right. He was he, yes, he was the doctor. I think it was at Fort Hood, Fort Hood that yeah. went on a rampage, and and it wasn't out of nowhere. I mean, he'd gone to Afghanistan, and I think he'd become radicalized. I believe he was an army psychiatrist. He was an army doctor. And he was coming back, you know, saying all kinds of stuff about what we're doing and, you know, like, and I thought, what, how is it that nobody picked up on this? And I'm wondering, and I'm also thinking in terms of this latest, uh, you know, case of the Michigan Wolverines. Um, there was a uh, case last year, I believe, where there was a guy committed suicide, but I think he had a, a truck full of explosives and it was in uh, Nashville. He didn't. He, he didn't kill anybody, but his girlfriend had been trying to call people saying, look, you know, my boyfriend has got some issues here. I'm really scared. So it seems like they're spending a lot of time creating these terrorists 
and they might, you know, they seem to not catch these other guys who really are dangerous. No, it's, it's a it's a it's a great point. I mean, because it, that is what's happening. You know, what's hard, what's hard to quantify is like how many you know cases maybe didn't happen as a result of FBI intervention and which ones they missed, right? But we can but you can kind of look at it in, at it in anecdotes, and and certainly there are a number of examples from you know the Boston Marathon bombing and others where you know the FBI had. Um, reason to, to look into these people and, and chose not to, or, you know, you know, mm. got very, you know, dangerously close, right? Najibullah Lazazi, for example, was very, very close to bombing the New York subway. And the, fortunately, the FBI stopped him, but they probably should have stopped him a, a whole lot sooner. Um, and so, you know, my, my assessment of this has always been that, you know, catching really dangerous and kind of operational terrorists, as the FBI would use the term, is really hard because these are people that, you know, know how to hide their tracks, are, are generally able to, you know, are, are, are smart enough not to go around talking to people who could be informants, basically, right? And so the way that the FBI stings are set up is that they're they're basically set up to, to catch the lowest hanging fruit, the people who are kind of dumb enough to, you know, be talking about what they want to do to basic strangers who could be FBI informants or are maybe not using encryption to communicate or as in the case of in many of these Islamist extremism cases, like people like posting to Facebook about what they want to do. Right. And so those are the people that the FBI is, 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 are largely catching because they don't and have to worry it, about them actually pulling off. Right. The yeah. So they're, they're able to pull it off only in the sense that the FBI gives them the ability to pull it off. But, you know, the so so in that way, you know, I think you can, you know, anecdotally make a, a pretty strong argument that the FBI is kind of catching the people who maybe have bad ideas, but don't have the capacity and in spending so much time and resources on that are, are missing truly dangerous threats. But could they lead? The, could the low hanging fruit lead to something bigger? You know, it could. I mean, that, that is the FBI's argument, right? When when I've asked them about this, FBI agents will say, "Well, we're catching them." You know, they're they're what the, the analogy that they often use is that there's a line from sympathizer to operator, and they want to catch them just before they they cross over that line. And so their their response to criticism such as mine is to say, like, you don't know what that guy would have done had we just let him go on for a year, right? And of course, that's a, that's a, that's an impossible thing for me to argue against because obviously I don't. Right. But at the same time, though, I think it's highly unlikely that many of these cases, based on the evidence of the case and who the person was and who they had contact with and what their capacity was to get weapons, you can, you know, argue that it's unlikely that that would have happened. Have they and ever, so I, I think, are know, there any stories of the FBI accidentally facilitating a disaster? By helping? No, I mean, that's always been the concern, right? So, you know, the, the concern they, is like- They would cover that up, the I would kind of, They would cover that up. I would assume the FBI would cover that up. I would, yeah. I mean, that, that's never been revealed. So if that that is something, that's not something we currently know about. I mean, the other thing to keep in mind too is that in all of the sting operations that the FBI has has done, you know, they, or, or any terrorism cases, they've never found the guy who you know they bust and they're like, we got a tip and he had a garage full of of bombs, right? Like they never find that guy. It's always the guy where the FBI provides the weapons, and so. You know, I think, you know, a reason, there is a reasonable question to ask about whether the FBI is spending so much time pursuing, you know, the lowest hanging fruit that, that likely isn't possible while missing the harder cases. Because the truth is, like, you know, ever since 9-11, the FBI has been both an intelligence agency and a criminal investigations agency. 
but it, it's, it measures its success through the same metrics that any law enforcement agency does, right? Like the number of cases. And so there's an incentive for FBI agents to kind of pursue easy to make cases because that's a number. And, that, and so, you know, there, there is this kind of direct incentive that the FBI has to pursue these easier cases. And, you know, the question that uh, I think we can debate about that can't fully answer, you know, is whether that's coming at the expense of finding these harder to build cases that represent much greater threats to, to people and safety. Before you go, I, I have one quick question that I see Mary, Professor Marianne has a question. App scam. I, I'd asked Peter B. Collins about app scam. This was where I believe FBI agents dressed up as fictitious oil sheiks and offered bribes to Congress people. I think it's called a honey trap. And they were indicted because they took bribes fake bribes is that entrapment is, is is there anything wrong with uh sussing out people who haven't taken a bribe haven't committed an act of terrorism aren't planning an act of terrorism but would <laughs> commit an act of terrorism if enough weapons were presented to them i mean over time i think the the, the both the legal uh, the, the the court system's willingness to accept these cases as not being entrapment and the public's willingness to accept these as not being entrapment has shifted to not accepting it, right? Like if you look at AppScam early on, there were cries by the ACLU, in, including members of Congress, saying this is entrapment, this shouldn't have happened. You know, not long after AppScam, of course, was the sting that targeted John DeLorean, the auto executive, who ultimately was acquitted arguing entrapment at trial, and, but then what ends up happening in the 80s is you have this explosion of sting cases involving drugs during the war on drugs. And over time, I think we began to kind of condition Americans and the American justice system to think of these cases as not being entrapment. And the legal doctrine that has kind of arisen around this is this idea of predisposition that, you know, it's, it's not entrapment if the government can, can prove that you were predisposed to commit this crime and predisposition is, is a really, it's a fairly low bar, right? Like if, if you're, if you're in a conspiracy with an undercover agent to rob a bank, you know, Googling bank robberies or watching bank robbery movies or, you know, surveilling your local bank, that's all predisposition, even right. if it was all done fairly innocently. And so I, I do think that if you look, I mean, what's interesting to me is for a project not so long ago, I was looking at the media coverage of AppScam and I was really struck by the outrage that existed. And that's an outrage that doesn't exist in cases like this any longer. I mean, you still have people like me and you and others who are talking about it, but it's, I think we've, we've kind of conditioned ourselves as a society to, to be okay with this kind of tactic from the U.S. government. I remember on Hill Street Blues, they always had the cops dressing up. The male cops like to dress up as prostitutes to arrest the Johns. And I think it's, it was more about the dressing up, I think, than actually cleaning up the streets. <laughs> Professor Marianne, and then, then we have to wrap it up. And I, okay, I can't no, thank I, you enough. No, thank you very much. No, I just uh, was wondering, too, that, you know, in, in order to really be effective in tracking down possible terrorism or trying to lower the terrorism threat in general, you need to build up some trust within a community. 
And I'm concerned that you have a case like what's going on in Michigan. Like a lot of people know these guys. And my sister lives near there. So I was reading a lot of local press. And, and like some of these guys are just considered stand up guys in their community. Like a lot of people like them. And, you know, and then suddenly the FBI comes in and this happens. Um, you know, I think that some kind of resentment might start building up. And I'm sure that, you know, the FBI or our government really wanted to get information from the Muslim community, for instance, 20 years ago. But the way that young Muslim men have been treated by our law enforcement, um, that would make kind of a disincentive for a community like that to be cooperating with people that are seen as fundamentally hostile. Do you see that? For sure. I mean, that, that effect has been dramatic in Muslim communities in the, in the decades after 9-11. You know, early on, I think there was a, a great willingness of Muslim communities to try to tell the FBI about people that they were concerned about. That, you know, they, you know, obviously Muslim communities were, you know, knew their communities better than anyone else because they lived there. And so when someone came in that they thought represented a danger, they're really the best ones to be able to identify that that person. Um, but what ended up happening in the, in the in the later years is that these Muslim communities began to realize that you know if I call the FBI and give them a tip, I'm going to become I'm going to get under kind of FBI scrutiny because they're going to want to recruit me as an informant, or that they're going to kind of you know come to my mosque more often with informants, and and so it doesn't benefit me in any way to communicate more openly with the, the U.S. government, with the FBI, for fear that I'm going to be targeted in some way. And so, you know, what ends up happening is that the, the, the community or the people that are most likely able to give you credible information about who is and who is not a threat, that kind of information exchange is completely cut off. And the FBI then starts relying on paid informants who, for, you know, for the very reason they are paid, are not offering the same the kind of credible information that community members are. And so what ends up happening is you have, you know, the, what ends up happening in, in these FBI stings, right? That, you know, the, the people who are mentally ill are the one who, ones who are targeted or they're particularly vulnerable and they're isolated from the larger Muslim community by the FBI informant who is concerned that if he, you know, this guy talks to the local imam, you know, he's going to be talked out of this plot that the FBI wants to do. You know, you can, you know, the for, for Muslim communities, this was particularly this 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 problem was particularly acute because there Muslim communities are very much an immigrant community still in the United States, and so a lot of these people who were affected were here on visas, and so the FBI was able to use immigration as a kind of leverage to recruit people who came with information, engendering further mistrust. You know, with um, the domestic extremist cases, and and you know, there's already you know that is, that isn't an issue but there is already mistrust of the government and so in some ways the use of these informants and these stings is just kind of confirming for people in these right wing groups that the government is out to get them right and so there i think there is this kind of question of you know in cases like this of like eventual blowback right like does the fbi's aggressive activity or do the fbi's aggressive activities in these communities you know end up pushing someone over the line that might not have otherwise been pushed over the line. And I, I think that's, you know, the, the kind of larger concern for me in, in, the, in these situations. And also I think, you know, now, you know, like what you're describing in Michigan, you know, these people who are concerned about someone, you know, may not be willing to bring them to the FBI for fear that, you know, what they want is just some sort of intervention. And they're afraid that the FBI will set up some elaborate sting operation that'll 
you know, put this person in jail for 20 or 30 years. Warren G in our virtual studio audience asks where the pressure is coming from to create all these cases. You know, really it's about money. You know, if you, if so Congress sets the FBI's budget and, you know, Congress, you know, allocates two divisions. We, we don't really get a, a great breakdown, but, you know, they, they allocate toward, you know, organized crime, terrorism and counterintelligence. And, and the, the largest portion of that budget is, is counterterrorism and, and, and counterintelligence, which, the, which Congress then sets. And so what, what ends up happening is that there's like a circular movement where that money goes to the FBI. And then every year, you know, and you can watch these testimonies on, on, on C-SPAN where FBI officials have to talk about how they spent the money and what they face. And so like any government agency, the FBI is looking to preserve the amount of funding it has and hopefully grow it year after year. And so it's absolutely in the FBI's disinterest to go to Congress and say like, hey, you know, we didn't find many terrorists, you can cut our funding on that. And so, so there's this direct incentive to, you know, build cases because that means future, future funding. And really where the, the safeguard is supposed to be is congressional officials asking the questions that we're asking in this conversation here, right? And, and questioning like, should the FBI really be focusing on that? But the problem is that it's a, it's a kind of political minefield for congressional representatives to question whether this is the, the appropriate policy or take because, you know, when they run for re-election two years later, their opponent can say, you know, John Doe, your representative is weak on terrorism because he's questioning, you know, the FBI spending. And so, you know, what we've seen over 20 years is just a political disinterest or inability to, you know, ask the type of questions we're asking tonight. And as a result, the FBI going before Congress and just talking about the cases that's won, kind of earning more and more funding. And so, you know, it really is kind of that simple. It's just kind of the answer is just money. Great. Thank you, Trevor. Thank you, Peter. Why don't you ask Trevor the important questions? How can people get in touch with you and uh, read your work, Trevor? And where can they buy your book? Sure. So uh, I write for The Intercept, which is theintercept.com. Um, I'm on Twitter at Trevor Aronson, and uh, my book is available at Amazon and, and most bookstores. It's called The Terror Factor. Thank you, Trevor. Great to see you. Thank you so much, Thanks, Trevor. Trevor. Thank you so much. Peter B. Collins is a Bay Area Radio Hall of Famer. Go to peterbcollins.com for a treasure trove of interviews like this and radio shows and podcasts. And we thank you and come back, Trevor. Peter, we'll see you next week, I hope. You will. Thank, thank you. you so much. Thank you. Well, Professor Marianne Cummings is a brilliant artist. She's also a particle physicist, as well as an elected official in Aurora, Illinois, Parks Commissioner of Aurora, Illinois, the only elected official on the David Feldman Show. We have candidate after candidate on this show. You are the only one who gets elected and comes on the show. You're the only elected official we want on the show because once they get elected, they don't really answer my questions. So welcome, Professor Marianne Cummings. There you go. Yes. How am I going to follow that? My God, how did you score these guests tonight? Well, <laughs> I saw you at Lee Camp. Wow. We're, we're stepping up our game here. So, you know, it's not I fair to guests are. like you to come on a show where we don't have an audience. So 
we'll we'll I'll talk to you later about this, but we're trying to get a a group of people. Well, uh, some Al Gore's, Al Gore's internet is forever. Oh, unless you're on YouTube or anti-war or anti-imperialism, and then it's down the memory hole you go. I cannot yeah, believe that RT America was shut down on YouTube, unless it's back up. Yeah. Is it back up? Oh, no, no. I know, not that I know of. I, 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 as of like yesterday, I don't know. But the idea, you know, that uh, Abby Martin, before she did Empire Files, she had a show on RT. And she said all of her previous shows are just gone from YouTube. So I, I asked her on her Twitter, uh, did you archive them anywhere else? I mean, is it, are they just gone? <laughs> Either are they just, you know, gone from the universe? It's, but it's just amazing. Um, the, uh, the BBC, well, the European Union, I think, shut down RT just, you know, completely from and YouTube. And I think they have regulatory control over that. And you just, without irony, the, uh, the BBC comes out and they've, they, they've criticized Russia because Russia is censoring like CNN or some worthless station. You know, it's like you, you guys are just, you know, beyond irony. Um, but, yeah, that's what happens, you know, that uh, both sides have to like gin up a narrative for their war. And, you know, it's um, it's hard to sell a war. It's easier to sell when people feel that they're not personally involved and that's unfortunately been our situation for a long time i mean even the wars we've directly fought it's only a very small portion of the population directly involved so it can be just kind of like the game i had a pit in my stomach two nights ago you know i say we need to bring back the draft and then i started looking at how this thing is unfolding in ukraine and how half this country wants a no-fly zone over Ukraine. And I'm thinking, you know, I could begin to believe that Putin is a monster, that I could see how they could start brainwashing us, that he's Hitler. And next thing you know, uh, then I, I start thinking, you still want to bring back the draft? And I think, yeah. You want to prevent <laughs> this from becoming World War Three? Bring back the draft. Suddenly, well, we'll, yeah. we'll, diplomacy will seem like uh, the side to err um, on. Maybe I'll look up that crazy lady Marianne on Twitter keeps talking about the Minx Accords. You know, maybe I, you know, Google them or something. Yeah, uh, that's what I, I mean. I I had listened to uh, about half of your interview with uh, uh, with Lee Camp. Uh, well done, by the way. I got criticized. Yeah. People, I got emails said I was rude to him, and no. I was trying to clear the, the air about no, RT. Yeah, he's a comedian, and he's always been. And anybody who's on RT America has swimming has been swimming against an ocean of like propagandistic nonsense, right. And criticisms. Oh, you're a Kremlin stooge, or this and that. So I think he's toughened up. If he's been on, he did a great job. Yeah, he did a great. But I asked him. He's new to the show. I want him to come back. I want to ask him all the stupid questions that he gets asked. So people, because some people saw that I had him on, and they had, they were concerned 
about RT. I'm stunned by people I really respect who see RT as a danger to the United well, States. I used to get RT because I used it used to come through my Roku box. And I didn't even have cable, but I could hook up my TV to my Roku box so I'd get RT. Um, Tom Hartman had a show on RT or what was, was it called? The Big Picture or something. And he had a show for seven years. on, And then he handed it off to his very good friend. I can't remember the name, but, you know, he was urging everybody to watch. But it was, uh, you know, a kind of long-range show that he couldn't quite, he would do sort of more edited versions of it on his radio show, what he was talking about. So it was the kind of show where you could really get into a topic. Um, when this uh, defense assessment came out, was it in early 2017 about Russian interference in our election? And it was actually kind of surprisingly thin, 13 pages, very readable. The last page sort of gave it away. It said, this, you know, we, they, they put, this is not an assess, this is an assessment. This is not to be taken that anything here is proven to be true. So, okay, we know what assessments are. We went through all this weapons of mass destructive nonsense. You know, they make assessments. They stove by, I mean, we all, we understood, at least some of the left understood this, what Dick Cheney was doing to the build up to the Iraq war. And we seem to have learned nothing, but, uh, but uh, Tom Harmon talked about that, and he said he was very disturbed that of the 13 pages, like seven were about RT and RT America. And, you know, he says, you know, this is kind of, we're treading on some very dangerous soil here because, you know, I can tell you that RT America is run by Americans. Nobody tells me what to do. But he says even more than just my show, the idea that you can't trust Americans to get a different viewpoint on something. And this has been ripe in our culture for decades, by the way. I mean, um, I had a friend who was a professor who was a Marxologist, um, not a Marxist. He was a historian that studied Marx, and I, I think he was pretty sympathetic. He wrote, I, I proofread his biography of uh, Alexandra Kollontai when I was an undergraduate, but he was telling me that during the Cold War, he came, he was a, he was a Jewish German. He both, he and his wife left at age 18. They met over here. He went in the army and then he went straight to Harvard, like the graduate school. And now he's at University of Michigan as a professor, but he remembered the Cold War. And he said, University of Michigan was one of the few universities that had an intellectual culture of protecting people from this Cold War nonsense. I mean, we were getting purged of people who were experts on China, who had studied China, who studied Chinese culture and language. And, and they were purging people who understood the history of Russia and the Soviet Union. And it was, you know, we have a fear. We have a knee-jerk fear that if you hear something else, you're going to be convinced. <laughs> If, like, if you go to Russia, you're going to like Russia so much that you'll never come back here or, you know, or some such stuff. Well, that might be true in some cases. But nonetheless, it's, it's, a, it's a fundamental like insecurity that we have about our own, you know, our, our, our own justification for our still kind of you know, premium slot and the, you know, the totem pole of world powers, which is probably pretty shaky. And yeah. we've done nothing to, we've done everything to kind of ensure that 
we would eventually get toppled by somebody else. So I don't know. I'm very, uh, I'm very distressed that people are, they're doing exactly the kind of things we used to make fun of during the Reagan years when the Soviet Union was a much bigger threat. But people's like Cold War fears and exaggerations were laughable. We don't seem to have even that sensibility anymore. So anyway, you know, unlike Saddam Hussein, Vladimir Putin does have weapons of mass destruction. Uh, yes, so we... and so does uh, and so does North Korea for that matter. Right. I mean, yeah. a so... nuclear arms society is a polite society. Apparently, you don't get bombed. Maybe unless somebody's really crazy in your State Department. Anyway, so the way it seems to me, Joe Biden is doing a fundraiser tonight and he has sent out the pawns. He's back home. He's got Bennett, the prime minister of Israel, talking to Putin. He's got mm -hmm. he's got uh, Macron talking to Putin. I think Schro, uh, who's the head of Germany? Is it Sh oh, Schultz. I think it was Schultz. Schultz. Who replaced Angela yeah. Guy just replaced They're all right. on the phone with Putin, 90-minute conversations with Putin. Biden's not talking to Putin. It's beginning, I'm beginning to understand he's trying to create some currency to his conversation with Putin, that when he gets on the phone, he's going to make an offer. But... Uh, are there people who want to go to war with Russia, who just want to have it out? Well, yes, there are, unfortunately. And there some of the more extreme neocons from the Bush administration. There are Wolfowitz, there's Cheney, there's even Henry Kissinger, and there's Victoria Nuland, who not only thought that the, this we should be using American might to get our way in the third world. They truly believed at the time. Oh yeah, and I forgot about Ziggy, Zbigniew Brzezinski. They were all like focused on the idea that yes, you can use American military might to crush not just Russia but China and establish dominance in the world, and we should do it. And, but is know, Henry? We, I mean, Henry Kissinger should be frog marched or frog waddled because he's a, such a pig. But uh, he's not calling for war with Russia. We, Bill Crystal, Wolfowitz, they're not saying they're not pulling a Frankie Five Angels and saying we got to go to war, Michael. While we still have the muscle, they're not saying. Uh, that I don't think they're saying that aloud. No but they've been saying it in their memos and their emails and their writings from like 20 to 30 years ago. Right, but right now, when when we could have a nuclear war, are they, I would assume they've, they're blinking. I don't think those guys are talking. I was, I was hearing about two or three days ago, some admiral is saying some crap about, you know, about taking out Russia. And I'm going, you know, Biden administration put the, should put the muzzle on a couple of these guys that are kind of shooting their mouths off. I mean, it's not, as I said. Um, but I mean, just in I, defense in of the Biden administration, hang on for one second. Yeah. In defense of the Biden administration, 
when Russia went to high alert with the nuclear yeah. weapons, we dialed it back. We were going to do a training exercise and we said, we're yes. canceling this. We do not want yes. to provoke anybody. I think I told you that last week. That was the one thing, little bright spot that it seemed like there's still some sane people. And, you know, I don't know what they were doing, but people from hardened cold warriors to Noam Chomsky have been writing for years that this push, this aggressive NATO push eastward is kind of unnecessary provocation. It's going to end up in, in not a good way. There are problems we have to solve on this planet that we aren't solving. I mean, I was just had an interchange with Peter Kalmus, who was on our show yeah. a couple months ago. And it's like, are, are these people insane? I mean, everybody seems to have, you know, completely dropped the notion that climate change is anything to worry about. And instead of like, doing the conditions of heightening tensions for war, we should have had been 20 years developing cooperation, conflict resolution, giving something to Russia that they're like, that there are players in the world, like everybody wants to be a player in the world, but it would be toward the benefit of everybody. But, you know, that's, that's not happening. We're not worried about, we're not worried about climate. We're not worried about the next plague. Hell, we're not even worried about nuclear proliferation, which is, you know, everybody thinks we dodged the bullet. When I've read Chomsky over the years, who was writing about declassified documents showing just how close we came, how tenuous it was during the, the Cuban Missile Crisis. One, one nuclear commander on the Russian side, after Kennedy lobbed bombs, the Kennedy administration lobbed bombs at the, the submarines, one of the three held off for launching their nuclear-tipped missiles. We have it. we have they some we it. have some news here. Ju uh, Julian Assange's fiance is oh. reporting that the United Kingdom Supreme Court has refused permission to appeal Julian Assange's extradition case, and the oh. extradition decision now moves to UK Home Secretary Prit Patel. Oh, yeah. One of Boris Johnson's guys. Yeah, that's that looks promising. I don't know. I mean, there's been a lot of people protesting there. It's not getting covered either, but there's been, you know, steady and building up protest in the UK about this whole situation, which is insane. I mean, what's he guilty of? He's guilty of publishing evidence of our war crimes is what he's done. <laughs> it's just... You know, even though even the Obama administration decided not for any not on any principle like he was a constitutional lawyer or something, but they decided not to prosecute Assange based on what they called the New York Times problem, because major news outlets for years have been using WikiLeaks as a source for a lot of their major stories. So if you if you nail if, if you nail Assange and WikiLeaks, you're going to have to nail the editors of the New York Times and the Washington Post and, and their friends of theirs. But apparently that's not, you know, that's not an issue anymore. Right. The, the Washington Post and the Times, they serve empires. So Julian Assange does not. It's really, um, it's distressing. But um, anyway, we had a very interesting, I thought um, Falco had a very interesting segment on office hours last night or uh, last Friday. And God, I, I really, I, 
I'm, I'm trying to make an effort to put myself to bed before 4 a.m. on a Saturday because it's like Harvey J.K. says, it's like your weekend goes up because the conversations still get continue to get interesting. But right. he was actually showing war films. Uh, I mean, films from what war looks like. And I think Anne, Professor Ann Lee made a comment, this should be playing on MSNBC. And I thought about that. Yeah, why aren't they? And I'm like, no. The real war footage they don't want to play because if you were subjecting people to real war footage, people would just go, we got to stop this. Right. You know, it's not fun. I mean, it's like, you know, the little kids and the human interest stories and all this kind of stuff. That That's fun. That's interesting. But the actual war, I by the way, I did find one journalist. I've been seeing his work on and off for the last two or three months. His name is Patrick Lancaster. He's a, I think he's Irish, even though that's kind of a British name, but I think he's Irish, but he's uh, been covering the Ukrainian civil war for the last several years. He was posting from Donetsk today, a city that it's, it's in the Dunbar region. Um, and there was a major bombing of the heart of a civilian city with absolutely no military, you know, armaments anywhere from the Ukrainians. And again, you know, I think I'm kind of hardened to watching really bloody scenes. Right. Um, he was just going around showing, you know, what the carnage was. There, the dead body there, a couple dead bodies over there. There's a dead body over in that bus. So he walks up. But he, we're prepared, right? Because we saw the picture of the dead body. And he walks into the bus. And then he sees all these dead people on the floor that he didn't know were there. And he goes, oh my God. And it's like, then he gets off the bus. And he said, I can't believe there's nothing here. Why are they bombing? And I said, well, they're bombing because it's war. And no one, even if people think that they're going to be a clean war, just have military targets, it never works out that way. If you are at a war, if you're waging a war, you're going to kill innocent people. Yeah, the truth is a casualty. It's innocent people who are a casualty. We need to be strong-arming everyone to the table, back to, you might want to rename them, but basically what the Minsk Accords were trying to do, which the Ukrainians and the, uh, and the rebel provinces signed on up to, but the Ukrainians never quite lived up to. This current president was, like I said, last just late last fall, trying to get them to, you know, to disengage and move back and so we can have elections in this area. But um, they've got a problem over there. Um, I think the camp mentioned it that, yeah, I mean, Bolsheviks weren't a majority either, but they were the most radical and they are the people that are willing to do bad things. So, so our current, our, our, our diplomat, Anthony Blinken, Secretary of State, Harvard Law, Harvard undergrad, I believe, was a proponent of the 2003 invasion of Iraq when he was serving of he was. as the uh, he was serving as a staff director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. So he was for the war in Iraq when the Democrats held the majority in the Senate in 2002. He, so he and Tom Daschle could have stopped the invasion, but our 
Secretary of State Anthony Blinken was for the war. That's who you put in charge of diplomacy. Never served no, in the military. Never served in the military. Ironically, our uh, what was his last name? Austin, our Secretary of Defense, seems to be more of a diplomatic bent than our Secretary of State. But then, you know, he's a general. Again, again we're back to the uh, original sin. Of, I mean, we're back to the kind of the root cause of the last eight years in Ukraine. Um, under the Obama administration, Obama somehow allowed John Kerry's undersecretary of state to override him publicly on events in Iran, uh, in Ukraine, Iran, Ukraine, Iraq, you know, it's just, uh, it's just a litany of just unfortunate, I mean, unwise decisions. And, you know, we're now not, we're not allowed to like have these opinions now anti-war we're not allowed to like question the whole thing I, I did feel somewhat the same way after we got attacked 911 it was a horrible attack after a while though i felt very angry at my fellow citizens even my even my liberal ones we all got a band together and i said look look this shoe was going to drop sometime sometime or other i mean look what we've been doing out in the middle east for the last two decades back then you know, I, I just, yeah, it's, it's frustrating. People are just wanting to get on a team and get behind war and give up our civil rights because, you know, to, to get freedom, we have to give up our rights or some nonsense, of, you know, that people spout. But, Jake uh, Sullivan, America's national security advisor, graduate of Yale, never served in the military. Never served in the military and holds a grudge against holds a grudge against Putin for breaking in to the DNC servers because he was deputy chief of staff uh, to Hillary Clinton. Be nice if you had some people who've seen what war is like before mm -hmm. they. Uh, you know. Do you, yeah, you don't, but well, you don't think that... you don't think. We're going to try a no-fly zone over Ukraine, do we? I actually yeah. saw it was the U. It was a YouGov. I mean, I get YouGov surveys, so I saw a YouGov CBS poll, and they asked people about a no-fly zone. And so the majority of people in this country said yes, no-fly zone. Right. However, when they asked the question uh, if a no-fly zone meant direct war with Russia, it was flipped. You know, you had you had thirty percent saying yes and sixty percent saying no. So there is a little bit of sanity. It's just that people don't understand the implication of no fly zone. And it's, we've never yeah. tried a no fly zone uh, up against an enemy whose air power was equal to ours, unless we have you know people in the Pentagon who say, "How dare you suggest that Russia's air power right over its border?" is equal to ours it's you know it, it's it's kind of maddening that um you know why that people who should be grown up and know better and understand conflict and understand that doesn't matter i mean look any any president of a country that matters on this planet is going to be one m effer you know that <laughs> it's and if bernie sanders was president he'd probably be making some horrible decisions too 
we think that he wouldn't. But the pro- but the point is, you don't get to be a leader of countries that are surrounded by hostile other countries and are not and are a nice guy. So you have to put that aside. You have to under you have to accept that, but also understand countries have legitimate security concerns. That's what adults do. All right, you know, and maybe if we get this, you know, if we don't provoke this guy into a war, his own people will eventually, you know, get rid of him. But well, that's what they said know. about Saddam Hussein. <laughs> and then, and for all of our money, we got one excellent snuff film. Right. We actually got two snuff films. We right. got him and Gaddafi. Jesus. Right. Yeah, that was a peaceful NATO operation over there, wasn't it? That was benign. Putin. Uh, anyway, Putin learned. Putin learned how to survive in Syria. Any reasonable person who studies history would look at Assad in Syria and think, well, he's going to go. There's just it's this is he's just got to leave. This is Mount Assad got in his mind. This is a dangerous neighborhood. And if I'm not here, it's going to be worse. Let's just start killing them all. And Putin kind of helped and learned it is conceivable that Putin is as big a monster as Assad. Yeah, no, Godzilla versus Mothra. Well, this is Mothra. But, so you know, what do you do with a monster? I guess, I guess a monster, going, I guess with huh? a monster, you, you try not to provoke a monster, right? Well, no, you, you try to understand that you, this is the core of conflict resolution. Now, divorce lawyers just learn this, you know, over the course of doing their business, right? When there's a fight breaking out over, you know, if the kid get, if who gets the kid on which weekend, it's really not a fight about who gets the kid which weekend. There's something else going on, you know. So right. People, and so when people are feeling insecure, like you know, NATO is actually fairly easy to understand. Do you want missiles? you know, air to surface to air missiles, an array of them within a hundred miles of your border. No, you don't. That that should be kind of easy to understand and easy to grasp. But, you know, we have policy people that, uh, you know, they, they have a, they, they have an ideology and they have a mission and we don't have enough people in a conflict resolution. Hey, look, I've, I, I love Dennis Kucinich's idea of having a Department of Peace, and that wasn't some airy-fairy nonsense thing. That was hard-nosed people who understand conflict resolution, who understand we're on a finite pl- planet with finite resources, and that you know we need to figure the hell how to coordinate, even if certain groups hate each other. And there's kind of a you know, I wouldn't even say chessboard, more like go. <laughs> there, there, there are. Uh, there are ways that you can achieve that without people killing each other. You know, it is. We, we have to wrap it up. Uh, yeah. I had a dog, a rescue, who, when I raised my voice, he would pee all over the place. So I quickly realized I can't even be the alpha male in my own home. I had to always whisper because then if I raise my voice, Cody would pee all over the carpet. Did he get over it? Were you enough, a nice enough dad no, that he felt, I, ended up feeling safe? No, I had to use my indoor voice. 
around. Well, that's all I do. And I made a decision. I said, okay, I'm the most powerful person in this home. I'm stronger than my kids, my mm -hmm. ex-wife, and all the animals. And I don't have to lower my voice if I don't want to, but I don't want to clean up pee. So well, I, I so I lowered pee. my voice and I had mm -hmm. a pee-free carpet. We are the most powerful planet, powerful army on yeah. the planet. But and, we're acting like betas. And we're going to be cleaning yeah. up pee. No, but we're acting like betas. Look, if I've seen it in dogs and I've seen it in cats. The alpha dog isn't the most aggressive. As a matter of fact, the alpha dog is the dog that barely, you know, barks. But if anybody gets out of line, they don't hesitate. Well, so I've seen the smallest dog in a group be the alpha dog. I've seen cats be alpha cats. And they're just, you know, well, they don't even, they don't have to yell. They just make a gesture and everybody just kind of, yeah. you know, all right. We, we have to wrap it up. Uh, but if you ever go drinking with me, I am an alpha male in every bar. And if I get beaten up in a bar fight, I immediately come back the next night and pick a fight with the biggest guy sitting at the bar to prove that I still have it. I haven't lost my yeah. step. And we just yeah, lost yeah. Afghanistan and we just <laughs> lost Iraq. So we're picking a fight right now to prove that we haven't lost our step. Professor Marianne Cummings, Parks Commissioner, Aurora, Illinois, and uh, amazing art, amazing artist, particle physicist. Follow her on Twitter at Razor Girl. Are you a Godfather expert? Who here is a Godfather expert? March 15th is the 50th anniversary of The Godfather, and Quizmaster Dan wants to play Stump the Hump, but I need a challenger. Is there anybody here who thinks they know more about The Godfather? Robert? Professor Mike? Okay. Uh, why don't we... I'm not your huckleberry. Sorry. <laughs> okay. And Dave and PA doing our... ASMR for the eyes. What are we making there? And I don't see Chad. What happened to Chad? Your helpful assistant. Dave and PA, what are we making? Well, Chad gets in the way, but I was just, uh, I don't get to carve enough. It's a skill that I feel I lack in, so I'm just taking this opportunity. I'm just carving a sunflower. And I have to make more of these for a certain client in Brooklyn named Fartman, something like that. <laughs> oh, Miss <laughs> Fartman. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I've heard of yeah, a certain lady in Brooklyn wants a bunch of these just ah. the blanks. Ah. But I just thought I'd, I'd try carbon. Okay, a sunflower for fun. And what is That's Chad dangerous. wearing? What is Chad wearing tonight? Well, Chad's always sporting. Uh, what is it? Slavo Ukraina. It's got the flag, but I think he needs new pants. I mean, yeah, the helmets. The helmet's been keeping him safe, but now, did you take his shirt off are... to please Davy Mammal, or is that just Chad's? clothing well oh you know what we need we need a lucha libre mask yes for chad. <laughs> yes we do to challenge davy mammal That's that what would we be need. good how's your knowledge of the godfather 
Mine? Yeah. Um, pedestrian, but I'd play in a panel. I'll kick your ass. You never know. All right. Well, let's probably. All right, Dan. I'm one guy. Oh, 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 I just muted him. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. There you want to do the Godfather quiz after uh, Mike and Robert do their uh, music segment? Yes. Okay, cool. Yeah. Okay. Okay, that'll be bit. good. I think I think Rob has a time issue, and he would oh, like to uh, talk to us about the Fred Ross project. Okay. How's my How's my uh, uh, audio? Too loud? Uh, that's your bumper sticker on your car. How's my audio? Call one eight hundred. audio? Hey, by the way, I I got some new. Uh, I I have some. I, got, I bought some new uh, digital currency. Yeah. It's called. Can you see it? Oh wait. What can you what? It's called Leprechaun. Yeah. It, wow. That's weird. It isn't green. It's supposed to be green. That's, oh, it's green scheme. Oh, that's great. I just, I just got it. That's great. You can't see it. Look at that. It goes, you go right through it. That well, is weird. Have we kept Rob waiting? <laughs> I, we're a little behind. Yeah, we have. I so, apologize, so, Rob. You I want really... me to introduce him? Yes, please. Um, this is Rob Everts, and he's from uh, Massachusetts, and uh, I met him at the organizational meeting for the uh, Fred Ross project. And he's part of the, are you on the board, Rob? Uh, no, but I'm uh, one of the coordinators behind the effort to uh, make this real, make it right. Happen. And uh, a week ago, I uh, talked a little bit about Fred Ross and uh, we just got into it a little bit. And it was, I yesterday that meeting was so impressive because I felt like I was in, uh, a group of uh, organizing warriors, like labor warriors, that, and everybody knew each other. And I just kind of came in and said, hey, I'm on this show, and could somebody come and talk tomorrow night, you know, last minute? And uh, we're certainly um, pleased that you're here. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your background? I know that you uh, are retired from recently after working with, uh, what is it, uh, I forget the name, but uh, Equal Exchange. Why don't you tell us a little bit about Equal Exchange? Equal Exchange uh, is the pioneering organization that created fair trade in the United States, uh, which speaks to the relationship of importers, in our case, coffee roasters, uh, with small-scale farmers and their cooperatives around the world. And it's a set of relationships that enable them essentially to stay on the land. And so 35 years ago, we created this before anyone was had ever heard of it in the United States and uh, took quite a while for the popcorn to start popping. But um, we, we, we really built something and have helped reform the whole coffee industry such that they really feel a more uh, responsibility to people on the front end of the whole supply chain and coffee. We've expanded to other products, cacao, you know, chocolate, it's all organic under the brand Equal Exchange. And then the the organization itself uh, believes really strongly in workplace democracy. And so it was structured from the beginning as a worker-owned cooperative business. So I was Fantastic. a for 20 years, had the same stake of ownership, no secret founder shares, executive shares, and just the same, the same piece of the pie as someone who got hired into the warehouse a year ago yesterday and was voted into the co-op. So... That was my most recent gig for the last um, 25 years. <laughs> uh, and uh, But before that, uh, and I'm, I'm in Massachusetts now, I've been here for a long time. I'm from California. 
I got the bug when I was in high school about this with the strikes going on with the United Farm Workers Union. Uh, I picketed liquor stores every weekend in my senior high school. I was on the college track, let that get in the way for a year, decided that's not where the passion was, and left and joined uh, Chavez and the United Farm Workers full time for the next seven years. And I could go on to refer into the Fred Ross situation, or you could ask me a Is question. Is that where you met Fred? Yeah. So I was 19 years old, green, uh, full of passion, uh, but no skills in this department, actually quite shy. Uh, and that's where I first met this legendary organizer who I didn't know was a legend, Fred Ross Sr., who was the person who a generation or and a half earlier had discovered uh, Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta and trained them and, and uh, took them under his wing and trained them to organize in his finely honed technique of house meetings, meeting by meeting by meeting by meeting, linked one to the next to the next and building organizations from the ground up. So I got trained by Fred um, and worked um, with the UFW for many years and I, I, I remember one of my most vivid experiences was was when I was that age, and he took us all, the, the headquarters of the United Farm Workers had moved from Delano in the San Joaquin Valley just up to the foothills of the Tehachapi Mountains near Bakersfield. And one day we went out and uh, did a tour of some of these towns in the, in the San Joaquin Valley, and one of those towns was Arvin, California. And it was the labor camp that uh, Fred, before he became an organizer, was running uh, that uh, that camp in the 30s in the Depression and during the Dust Bowl era. And, and it turns out it was one of the most democratically run uh, camps of its kind in, in, in the state. But we're walking through this camp, the actual camp, which was the scene where the Jode family ended up in the Grapes of Wrath. And there's Fred this walking history book, walking around and pointing. And that's where Woody and Will used to sing to the migrants. And I'm like, oh, my God. You know, wow. Woody got free wheel gear. And I'm, I'm, I just felt like I was living, living history with this man. And um, I felt privileged to know him. I took up the guitar myself after that point, ended up playing Joe Hill at uh, Fred's uh, memorial service after he died. So, yeah. You know, um, I think what I've learned in the last week, uh, my good friend Kenny Snodgrass sent me a book. It's not about Fred, but it's written by Fred. It's about Cesar Chavez. And then I'm going to get, uh, it's Gabriel, I'm, I'm blanking on his name. Um, yeah, and that's, uh, it's called uh, society, uh, Social Arsonist. Social Arsonist, yeah. And the the thing about Fred, just what I've picked up, is that he was one probably able to recognize who could be a leader, and then he somehow was able to make push them to lead. He was and and uh, someone one of the lines in one of the bios says he he pushed himself out of the history books because really it's he's kind of an uns the true unsung hero. Um, and uh, the, one of the things that your group is trying to rectify is is uh, by uh, doing a, a documentary, um, and there's that's in process. Things are 
as I understand, uh, interviews are being accomplished and and they're raising money. Um, how can people donate to that if they would like to do that? What really inspires me, and you were part of that meeting a few nights ago, and you saw, yeah, there were like 50 people, right? And we all seemed to know each other. And there was like, you know, 500 years of organizing experience on that call. People have continued for decades to do great stuff. We are the living legacy of this man, Fred Ross. Um, I'll put I'll put the um, uh, the website for it in the in the in the chat. Yeah, uh, great. And uh, and that'll show you how you can make a donation to be a part of making this a success. We need to raise six hundred fifty thousand to make the documentary. We've raised two hundred thousand very quickly just through our network of people who knows people and this and that. Um, but the goal of this um, is not merely uh, a nostalgic look back at a real hero, a, a giant, right, of social change in this country that no one's heard of, you know, right. so that people can appreciate what he did, but rather make this thing compelling and relevant, really speak to today's young organizers, young and not so young, but today's organizers who are covering some of the issues you've, you've talked about tonight, and many other, whether it's climate change or voter suppression or preserving democracy itself or racial equity, there are going to be uh, there's going to be a lot in this book that is going to be user friendly and usable. And so for people now, that's going to resonate and they'll be from voices that people recognize, not just people who who are you know our age or even older who knew Fred personally, um, but also. After the six hundred fifty thousand we're raising to produce the documentary, which is under has has begun, we we need to raise another probably half million for an impact campaign to actually, you know, organize people to watch this thing together with a specific goal and purpose, and then take action coming right out of those uh, viewing parties and things like that on whichever issue in that community is feeling the most. You know, is where the action is in that community. So it's going to be a, it's going to be organizing a training tool as well. Tell us about two things. First of all, people to people, actually three things, people to people, 30 for 30, which I heard about, which is brilliant. And the axioms for organization. Yeah. I think by people, you meant neighbor to neighbor. I'm generic. sorry, neighbor to neighbor. Right. They both are kind of generic sounding. I'm the first one to say that neighbor to neighbor was a, cutting edge uh, organization that Fred's son, Fred Ross Jr., close friend of mine for the last 40 years, uh, a co-founded. Um, I was in on like, you know, day 72, so practically co-founder uh, to help end the atrocities that were funded by the United States government in Central America in the 80s. And so we, we um, had you know, many former UFW, you know, veterans uh, who were recruited into neighbor to neighbor because they were seeing what what U.S. tax dollars were doing, first funding the Contra War in Nicaragua and then funding death squads in El Salvador. And we weren't actually seeing an effective uh, national organizing strategy to change the policy. So that's what neighbor to neighbor did with Fred Jr. and myself and many other veterans of the UFW, and it was ultimately really effective, uh, actually. Um, uh, 
the next one was uh, 30 for 30. So one of the one of the strategies we're using to raise money to, to make in, to ensure this documentary will see the light of day is asking people to think of 30 just people, friends, coworkers, colleagues, friends from the past, whatever, who might, you know, if they knew about this, kick in 30 bucks to make sure this uh, can, can get produced. And so from that website that I put in the chat, um, you can find out more about that and more about just what this undertaking really is, because it's a whole organizing campaign itself. And then um, Axioms for Organizers is a great handbook uh, of things that, that over time, Fred Sr. just coined so many phrases uh, that made sense um, for for people. And that's where the social arsonist um, moniker came from for the title of that other book, because one of Fred Sings was an organizer, like a social ar arsonist who goes around setting people on fire to do things they never thought they could do before. Right. Uh, and, and there's, you know, some other... Can, can people get copies of Axioms for Organization? Uh, for organizers. For uh, organizers. I, I don't... Uh, I think that I think they could. I think I'd send in a question to the website about... Okay. ...getting that. Yeah, yeah. Are those similar to, what is it, Rules for Revolutionaries by uh, Saul Alinsky? Rules he for was trained by Saul Alinsky, wasn't he? Yeah, he worked. He was a, he worked in Rochester, New York, for Saul Alinsky. Was sent out to California. Uh, yeah, he he he, he was. Um, that's a whole book. This is more kind of a, crisp, a pamphlet. Uh, what one liners that that really resonate when you when you uh, when you think about it. Uh, and so many are you know really compelling. You know, like sh shortcuts. You know, don't take shortcuts. They lead to detours, which lead to dead ends. You know, there's just no no. You know, it's just, it's just a font of like really things wow, that your head nodding. That, that that makes sense. That's right. You know, <laughs> that's fantastic. Yeah, David, you probably have some questions. Let's you give that, let's do. give out those addresses, those web addresses again. Yeah, I'll plop that back in the in the in the in the chat here for Good. people um there's people might want, listen to this on their podcast so they would so that the actual uh, it's the fred ross project dot com dot org um it's uh fred ross project dot org correct fred ross that, that's right if you're listening on on your just just uh audio you're not going to see it yeah fred ross one word f-r-e-d-r-o-s-s project all one word dot org and, that and from take there, you can there's there's links to other things. Plus, um, I was able to, uh, I think, to able to contact somebody. There's a contact page there. And yeah. Uh, yeah. And yeah it's, it, by the way, it is dot org and not dot com. Fred yeah, Ross. Org. Yeah. Yeah. It's dot Fred or Ross. Fred Ross Project dot org. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Well, you've been a fantastic guest. Do you, do you speak to Dolores Huerta? Um, yeah, I haven't for a while, but, um, how's your health? I, I know, I know didn't San Francisco police destroy one of her kidneys. Yeah. They beat her up once she was at a protest protesting Bob Dole, like 25, 30 years ago or something. I think it was when he was running for president and she got, she got jammed. Yeah. Right in the ribs. Something, something oh, awful. No. It was very, very touch and go and dangerous. Her, her, her health. 
But God, she is a fighter, and uh, she's 93. She was our special guest at the meeting before this one that uh, uh, Mike uh, was at. Um, and she hasn't lost a, a beat. I mean, she's 93, and she's pushing the edge. Uh, and, 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 and she had something really interesting to say about Fred, because she, Fred you know, recruited her from being a, you know, a, a teacher, you know, a, a damn good profession, right, but saw – a lot of potential in her. One thing Fred always said early from early on was like, go for the women. They have more courage than the men. And wow. two, two things that Dolores said was Fred did not have a racist bone in his body. And she said, and he didn't have a sexist bone in his body. Hmm. It's it just really something. And, and there were times where that, you know, it, that really stood out in you know, over those years, as you might well imagine. So, yeah, no, Dolores is really something. My mother met her a few times and had her at her house and stuff, and she was pretty fond of her, too. They're age mates. <laughs> so, Maybe we could try to get her on the show. Yeah. Your, uh, your documentary shows how collective action combats racism, bigotry, and greed. Are there any other sources of pain in this world other than racism, bigotry, and greed maybe my comedy but i can't think of uh, racism bigotry and greed that pretty much those are the those are the trifecta it yeah. covers a lot of territory a lot of ills emanate from those don't they yeah yeah Amen. yeah yeah Amazing. look this was a lot of fun thank you for thank for you having me. thank you Rob. and i appreciate what you guys are all about it's thank really you. good please come Keep back it. right on professor Professor Mike Steinel. Yes, sir. I I have a uh, request. Uh, hang on a second. I'm going to change my screen. Hang on a second. I I um I need some help, David. I need some help. Hang on a second. Where is? Where it? are you, Professor Mike Steinel? I'm here. I'm here. I'm here. Hang on a second. Okay. Can you see it now? I can't see you. Wait. 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 Okay. There you are. Okay. Very exciting. Can you see my screen? Wow. The cover to the Saving cover. Charlie Parker. Wow. Yeah, that's the novel. The novel. Now, tell me something. Here's, I need it, an honest opinion. I haven't approved this yet. I don't think it looks, of course, it's not very big, you know, but if you can pin it or something, a lot of people, half people say, yeah, it's cool. And other people say, oh, it looks like the book is just Charlie Parker. The saving is not very big. Uh, what's your yeah. vote? Well, that, yeah, I could see that. That it could be bigger? The saving could be, yeah, I, I think Isn't so. that a great painting? Yeah. Who did that again? Oh, gosh, I'm going to blank on his name. He's given us the rights to do it. Wow. Oh, I, I'm going to mess up his name. I'm going to uh, maybe I'll, ne next time we talk, I'll, I'll have that. Uh, figured out okay saving but, charlie um, parker is your new novel you are the God. most prolific human being on the planet how's your godfather knowledge uh, well i'll try have you seen all the i godfather? can do is have you yeah seen, many times many times how many times i've seen the godfather easily 500 times godfather God, you ca that cannot be true no it's true 
well, how can you do that? How, at a certain point after 20, isn't it a waste of time? I once met Eleanor Coppola. I did a radio show with her Ooh. in San Francisco. And I said, can you give your husband a message? She says, yeah. I said, tell him the Godfather does not hold up after the 500th viewing. <laughs> you start and, to see the cracks? Yeah, she says, it's not after 500. And she didn't laugh. <laughs> she did not laugh at all. Uh, she didn't. No, she didn't. She, uh, I was kind of. Didn't she get it? No. Apparently, I'm not it, the only one who's seen who's the movie. seen it 500 times. 500 times. <laughs> uh, I've read the book three times. Well, I, see, I haven't read the book at all. But um, it is. Is, it, it, is the book good? It's the Third Testament. There's, it's America's Third Testament. There's the Old Testament, the New Testament, and Godfather. That's how people learn business. You know, he didn't really want to make the movie. He thought it was a kind of a pulp, you know, a, a pulp fiction sort of pot boiler, you know. And uh, he really wanted to make uh, The Black Stallion. That was, he was more, that's a beautiful movie. We just watched that recently. Did you know okay, Fredo is gay? No, that's not true. Yeah. He was married. Ah, but if you read the sequels, Fredo. Oh, in the book? Well, the sequel to The Godfather. You're Fredo. not the actor. No, no, no. no. Fredo uh, would go to hotels that, with male prostitutes. That would, that would make, that would make, that could be workable. Yeah. What's the name of the sequel? Fredo Godfather is gay. Two. Fredo is gay. <laughs> Fredo is gay. <laughs> Dan Frankenberger in the newsroom. It's time to play Stump the Humps. And this show, this portion of the David Feldman show is sponsored by Saving Charlie Parker, the new novel by Mike Steinel. When is it available? <laughs> God, I hope soon. I mean, it's everything goes slow, and now I got to approve this, and then I got to do the page page proofs, and then it should be out. But the, what I'm most excited about is the audio book with the music. And I, what I sent you tonight was we mixed uh, four of the tunes last week that are going to be in the audio book. Oh, I have to turtle. Find. I sent you turtle. I have to find that so I'll you can play that. that later after I tank on the quiz. David, yeah. I'm surprised you don't know uh, as much about publishing as i would think because he, he's about to have the cover approved but after that he has to write the book yeah <laughs> i wish all I right have, dan have, let's put some money let's do it in let's, the kitty let's put some money in the kitty <laughs> what's wrong with that cat cats That's have cat. they have barbed members their 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 members are barbed so it's very painful when cats there's a joke somewhere there but i'm the, sure it's a barbed <laughs> penis okay who goes first uh the guest mike steinel i have 10 questions i don't know if you want to do just five let's or, do all let's, 10 let's, let's godfather here, here, here we go like march 15 is this true or false march Multiple 15th choice. excuse me for one They're second up. march 15th is the 50th anniversary of The Godfather, the greatest movie ever made. Ever. 
ever made. Ever made. So these are all multiple choice. Okay. Oh, good, good, good. All of this is good. I have a chance. All right, Professor Steinel, what was the name of the boy that Vito, Vito Corleone raised as one of his own, which later became his lawyer and consigliere? Was it Richard Bright, Abe Vagoda, Tom Hagen, or Henry Hill? That's an easy one. Tom Hagen. Uh, I am going to say Tom Hagen. That is correct. I'm winning two to one. <laughs> Which we're tied up. No. Asshole. <laughs> I cheat. Okay. In honor of the Godfather. All right. So, two okay. numbers here. One okay. for you, one, two for me. Yeah. Okay. Second question What does Don Corleone have in his mouth when he dies? An apple? An orange? Tomato, wait, 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 wait. Got to share all the things. Multiple choice. Apple, orange, tomato, or D's nuts. <laughs> <laughs> David, David, you, you stepped on D's nuts. You stepped on D's nuts. <laughs> it was too good. D's nuts. An orange, I, orange peel, to orange, be exact. Yes. Orange peel. He puts it in there to make his grandson laugh, and then he cacks. Right. It's a sweet scene, actually. That is correct. It's two to two. I was, I was wondering. I was wondering that child's reaction is so interesting because I wonder if they didn't tell the, the little actor. He's very small. I think they didn't. I think he was genuinely scared. I think I read that somewhere. Yeah, but he, he, he you know, he's, he's scared, but he's also like, you know, the, grandpa's sleeping, you know. Like a kid, he was so right on as a how a child would in that situation. Do you watch Billions? No, I haven't seen Billions. Oh, they 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 did a parody of that scene <laughs> with the, with uh, Paul Giamatti's father puts some more. He's playing with his baby and he puts. Oh, you're not going to do that, are you? You know, okay. Billions is as great as it is bad. It's fantastically. Oh, that's what you've talked about that. Yeah. Okay. I love billions. They are shameless. All right. So I'm winning four to three. All right. Hey, we're tied up. Oh, God. All right. Mike is first this time. Question number three. What was the name of the man Connie married in The Godfather? Carl Rizzi, Frank Costello, Mario Katana, or David Zajagov? (laughs) <laughs> give me the first names again carlo frank mario and david zajagov it's carlo i agree three to three he was he was not nice to connie he was he, no he wasn't he was not nice to connie and he set sonny up he beat up connie so Sonny would be tricked to drive out there, and on his way, he got killed in the in the causeway, whatever yeah, a causeway man. is. All right, for question booth. four, David is first. Okay. In The Godfather, how did Don Tomasino become wheelchair-bound? Was it a car accident, a gunshot, 
gangrene or his shoes fell off. <laughs> you know, that is a lot of people in wheelchairs. It, it's, it's, because, it's because their shoes. Franklin Delano Roosevelt. That was all that was wrong with him. That was all. All they had to do was find him a pair of shoes that, that weren't <laughs> too tight and he would have been fine. That's why he wore the wheelchair. I, okay. I think he wore the wheelchair. <laughs> I'm going to say Don Tomasino got shot. I'm going to say gangrene. They went to Don Chicho's estate ostensibly to get his blessings for their adventure. They succeeded in killing Don Chicho, but in the midst of their escape, Tomasino was severely wounded by a blast from a Lupara shotgun fired by one of Chicho's bodyguards. And then he got, and then he got gangrene, and then he got gangrene, and lost his, he got gangrene, and he lost his shoes. You know what? He's a winner. I, I'm gonna give, I'm gonna give Professor Mike Stein out. No, you had that. No, no, you had that. And then he got gangrene. I, for, we, we reward funny jokes, so I'm winning six to four. I was gonna say you got to take the point because he gave himself two. Yeah, so okay. it's, it's actually it's tied four to four. Okay. No, no, uh, you, you got, I didn't get nah, that. You get, you get an okay. extra point for being funny. Okay. <laughs> All right. It's uh, question number five and professor Mike is first this time. Oh boy. Who oh plays, boy. oh boy. <laughs> Who plays Hyman Roth in the Godfather part two? Is it Gianni Russo, Lee Strasberg, Richard Conti, or Will Smith? Lee Strasberg, the acting teacher. I'm gonna I'm gonna agree. That is correct. Lee Strasberg. Richard Conte. And, and I think he got beaten up a lot growing up with that name when they called him Dick <laughs> Conte. Dick Conte. That could have you, didn't been... was, you didn't think it was Will Smith? No, I, I was no. that was my second guess. <clears throat> okay. How do you think he got Lee Strasberg to do that? I mean, Lee Strasberg isn't in anything, really. But he teaches acting. I know, he did. And that's the business His he had daughter chosen. was more. It's the business <laughs> he chose. His daughter was, uh, what's her name? Uh, very pretty. Um, Susan Strasberg. Yes, 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 yes. That's it. Thank you. Okay. All right, question number six. David is first. I, I understand. I think he may not have been nice to Marilyn Monroe. But then again, most men weren't. I think he might have bullied Marilyn Monroe at the actor's studio. I've heard that. I've heard that. Yeah. <clears throat> but that is the business. <clears throat> we have <clears throat> chosen. <laughs> Excuse me. It seems to me you blow your nose before the scene starts, right? <laughs> How hard is it? That's Act method. I mean, I mean that's that's such a great scene. Guy teaches acting and he doesn't know to hawk his loogies before they yell action. Yeah, you know what's so cool in that scene is how the <laughs> they're down is so tacky. His house, remember? Well, it's he lived modestly because he was Hyman Roth. Okay, so he didn't want to. Uh, he didn't want to draw attention. Draw attention to himself. Yeah. He was supposedly Meyer Lansky, and supposedly right. Meyer Lansky <clears throat> claimed 
not to have any money. Now, Mario Puzo was actually in the mob, wasn't he? The author. I don't think so. He just wrote it? Yeah, he wrote it. Oh, okay. Was it, did he interview people? You know, I was reading an article in the New York Times. He created the mob. That's the theory. In other words, the mob were all these separate cells, and they didn't know how to behave until the Godfather came out, because there was no internet. There was no real code of conduct yeah. that got spread to the five families. until. <clears throat> the, and then what happened, according to this article I read in the New York Times, all the mobsters watched The Godfather and began behaving like I don't, that. that can't, I don't know Sammy if that Sammy the Bull Gravano true. said that. Sammy the <clears throat> Bull said that once The Godfather came out, we all knew how to act. Method. They all became method actors. Well, that's true. But, you know, in my, in my uh, first book, I bring in, bring in some mobsters from Kansas City, and I did research about the four families in Kansas City, the Corellos, and the there, there was, there's four families, and uh, that was happening in the 30s. You say they didn't know how to, like, make deals together? It's just the dress, you know, mannerisms. Oh, it's the, the style? Those, yeah, and language, a lot of language. Hmm. Know. Interesting. Okay. Uh, yeah. Who's up? It's question number six, and David goes first. And I'm what winning is... six to one. He only has one correct. Hey, David. Right. Come on, man. Okay. If it's six, if it's anything, it's six to five. I'll, I'm not going to take it's the one with six. the gangrene. It's six to six. All right. Okay. Thank you. What is the name of the actor who portrays Vincent in The Godfather Part Three? Is okay. it Alec Baldwin, Andy Garcia? Robert Duvall or Jeffrey Dahmer? <laughs> Jeffrey Dahmer. <laughs> Who's first, David? Jeffrey Dahmer chewed the scenery and the actors. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. All right, I get an extra point there. Right. <laughs> I'm winning now. That's a good one. <clears throat> All right. So I won that. Why, why are we? I won. Is, is, well, that joke. <laughs> All right, what's the question? Who, who's up? It's your turn, Feldman. What it's is the name turn. of the actor who portrays Vincent in The Godfather Part Andy Three? Andy Garcia. I agree. That is correct. Andy Garcia. <laughs> so we're tied in 8 8. This is like question number seven. This is, this is question number seven. This is question number seven. Oh, so we're how'd tied. How would you get to eight? <laughs> it's, I, I'm winning no, eight it, to seven. Okay. <laughs> what character in The Godfather is, no, is known as the Turk? Is it Carlo Rizzi, Virgil Salazzo, Emilio Barzini, or Salvatore Gravano? I heard from Barzini. You don't have the stuff anymore. <laughs> You're dead. <laughs> You're finished, Barzini. Now, I'm going to tell you that the Turk is Salazzo. <laughs> that is the correct answer. It's Salazzo. Okay. It's Salazzo. Okay. Mm. <laughs> mm. 
<laughs> but you're doing, you know, this is like in the Mo Green scene. What? I'm, this is in my Mo, expertise, Professor. In the Mo Green scene, he yeah. talks about Barzini. He brings up Barzini. I've talked to Barzini. <laughs> you don't have the muscle. He could buy you out tomorrow. You don't yeah. buy me out. I buy you don't you buy out. me out. I buy you out. <laughs> I bring your brother Freddie in here. <laughs> okay. Uh, this would be equivalent to a quiz on jazz, and you would mop the floor with me. I'm I'm holding my own. I'm not. I'm all, I'm holding my own. Well, these are easy. These are pretty easy. You know who holds Dan. his own? Jeffrey Tubin <laughs> could hold his own. <laughs> Another good one. <laughs> that sounds like some a, a, a meal served at Connie's wedding. Could hold his own. Have you tried the could hold could hold his own? It's delicious. <laughs> <laughs> Have it with could a little anisette. Could hold his own. Could hold his own. Could hold... Oh, man. with all the gravy. <laughs> right. All right. Here we go. Class I'm winning one. nine okay. to five. David's first. What is the name of the horse whose severed head finds its way into no, the let me Hollywood see if I can producers? Guess. Before you, Jack Wolf's Okay, I won't read it yet. When uh, Mr. Wolf refuses to cast Johnny Fontaine in his new war film, right? You want to guess before I? Well, then he's going to agree with me. Well, you're first. That's yeah, that's why I'm afraid to say it. So, well, that's tough. Yeah, so give me the choices. <laughs> it is Kazan, Shazam, Khartoum, and Mister Head. Let me see. This is hard. This is hard. Let me see. I don't want him to agree with me, so. I want to pretend I don't know the answer. So he... Hmm. Can I have those again, please? Sure. Kazan, Shazam, Khartoum, and Mr. Head. Well, I, uh, Kazan, that would be the director who named names <clears throat> to destroy people's lives. So it wouldn't be Kazan. I'm going to go with... I guess it's Khartoum. I guess I'm going to, I really don't know. I'm going to just say Khartoum. It's a wild, I don't know, maybe Khartoum. <laughs> I'm trying to read your face. I'm going to go with the first one. You want Kazan? Kazan, yes. You should go with Khartoum. I'm right. <laughs> the answer is Khartoum. Like the <laughs> but that's like two, like the... Like the Saturday morning cartoons or spelled no, Khartoum. I think Khartoum is Ethiopia. I think it's named. I think it's. A, it's weird. It's C. It's K H A R T O U M. I believe Khartoum okay. is in Africa. I want to say <clears throat> Ethiopia. By the way, let me ask you about Jack Waltz. Okay, you're sound asleep. Somebody comes in and puts a horse's head in your bed. The blood starts to flow. The hot blood begins to flow from the horse's head all over your sheets, all over you. Aren't you going to wake up? You're, you're not well, going to hear? You're not going to feel anything? Maybe he had, had a, maybe he had a few drinks, or maybe they, maybe they spiked the drink ahead of time. You well, know, they plan that stuff. Anytime somebody puts a 
the head, a bleeding head. In, in your my, bed, in you usually bed. notice I, you wake I, I up wake right up. away. Yes. That's the thing I like about you. You would be a good, <laughs> good watchman. I feel like I'm like a Maltese. You're a, you're a light sleeper. Somebody yeah. told me that I had a friend once and uh, we were staying someplace. It was on the road. And, and he said, yeah, you, you'd be good to be to put, you know, because I would wake up like, in the, what's that? What's that? He said, yeah, you'd be a good watchman. I can't remember who that was, but <clears throat> I should have I should have been a Maltese just sleeping on a on a king's chest waiting for somebody to come in and a Maltese. Yeah, that's what they that's their purpose. Like in a, life. yeah, like a, somebody at the mall who teases people. Yeah, like <laughs> a Tiffany. Maltese. Remember Tiffany? <laughs> no, I don't she remember would play Tiffany. Malls. <laughs> I like her posters on my walls when I was a teenager. I love Tiffany. That's my age. Did you go to a mall to see her perform? No, I never did. She and was at, time, I, I think. I Tiff don't know who we're talking about. Tiffany who? Tiffany. I don't. Her, you her guys big, are too young. Her big hit was um, a remake of the Beatles song, Saw Her Standing There. She did Saw Him Standing There. It was back you in know the 90s. what? I, I, I was asleep during that era. <laughs> I missed that one. Well, you're a big Rick Springfield fan. Haven't you gone oh. on the cruises with Rick Springfield? <laughs> oh, yeah, we're tight. Me and him, just like that. Jesse's girl. <laughs> I like Jesse's girl. Yeah. I like Rick there's, Springfield. There's a documentary about Rick Springfield that I saw like 20 years ago. And <laughs> and it's like, I think, I think he worships Satan. I think. Oh, ouch. I think that watching that would be like uh, eating a Vaseline sandwich, a Vaseline sandwich. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Be mm. a little tough to chew. You know how down. I like my Vaseline sandwiches? Uh, I'm not about to hear it. <laughs> I, I order them without the Vaseline. That's how I order them. <laughs> oh, <laughs> it's a little tip. Are you going to tell us about your your class reunion joke? Ever? Uh, Did you do it in I'll email it It's such, it's really offensive. <laughs> it, it's really offensive. I talked well, to my son. After this game, probably no one's watching I anyway. <laughs> I talked to my son and he's, he just, anyway. He said, he, don't do it. No, he, he makes me come up with really bad taste jokes. <laughs> so, all right. I'm winning 40 to three. All right. More questions left. Here comes How many nine. questions left? Two. Two. These are like potato chips. Yeah, you just can't. You got to have more. No. Uh, they give Who's me diarrhea. Who's up first? This is giving me diarrhea from the Elastra. <laughs> Professor Steinel is first this time. Okay. How did Apollonia die? Was it from a gunshot, a car bomb, she drowned in a lake, or she choked on a Sicilian brajol? <laughs> car bomb. <laughs> <laughs> car bomb. I got a snort. Uh, car bomb. <laughs> it is car bomb. That is correct. All yes. right. You know what day she that happened? No. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Friday, Saturday, <laughs> Sunday. <laughs> uh, wow. Steinel takes the lead. It's forty to two now. <laughs> Last question. Uh, last question. 
David's first. Okay. In, in The Godfather Part 2, what does Vito Corleone receive as payment from his neighbor for hiding a bundle of handguns? Is it a cannoli, a new suit, a carpet, or a handy? Because <laughs> the handy for the handgun. I get it. Yeah. Uh, first. I, hmm, that's a tough one. Uh, I don't know. Can I have them again, please? Sure. <laughs> a cannoli, a new suit, a carpet, and a handy. I, I'm just going to, you know what? I have no idea. I guess I'll just go with carpet. I will agree. Carpet is correct. <laughs> uh, here's the thing. You knew, you knew it, didn't you? Clemenza. Bruno Kirby, Bruno Kirby as Clemenza, gives him a carpet. But he's got to go and steal it with, with Clemenza. That's not a gift. <laughs> a gift is, hey, here's a carpet. Not, hey, come steal a carpet with me. And they almost killed a cop. Remember, they were going to kill the cop who, who knew somebody, Right. I don't know that. I don't know that detail. It sounds familiar. Number two, I didn't watch as much as the, the other one. As, as Number one. two is a, a masterpiece. It is. It, in some way, I think that uh, it is. Number yeah. two is, <laughs> you know, I Do try it. to defend. Do it, man. <laughs> I try. Excuse me. I'm sorry. I, sometimes when I talk, I listen and I start yawning. <laughs> <laughs> Number three, I tried to defend three, and it, and it, the you know how bad Godfather three is. George Hamilton's the best part of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> That's how bad Godfather three is. He's it underrated. Is, He's huh? underrated. He's he underrated, is underrated. You're absolutely right. <clears throat> George Hamilton. Yeah, yeah. He's he's a good actor. Was a good actor. He's a still, good yeah, but he's friendly. With, he's friendly with uh, Marcos's wife, Ferdinand Marcos. What's her name? Oh my goodness! What, what is Imelda. What? Imelda? Imelda Marcos. Imelda. Does he try on her shoes? <laughs> you know who Herb Kane was? He sure. Yeah, I I, I I spent the summer of seventy four in San Francisco, and we would read Herb Kane every day. Herb Kane in the Examiner, and he would quote comedians in San Francisco, and it was a big yeah. thing to get mentioned in Herb Kane's column. I bet. And my first <clears throat> mention in Herb Kane's column was David Feldman said at the Holy City Zoo, "I found out why Imelda Marcos has so many shoes. She's a centipede." <laughs> 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 that was a, one of my first jokes that got into. How her. would he pick those up? Would he go hang at the? At the I, I don't know. You'd find out, and it would be like, and it, it felt great. It really did. It was oh, like yeah. you pick up That's the Chronicle. If, if somebody would call, yeah, was it the her, Chronicle or the Examiner? The Chronicle. Chronicle. Yes. Yeah. Okay. That was you know when we had newspapers. That was a big thing. Boy, that was a great summer. You know, we took a band out the there. Summer of what? Seventy four. 74 right and we took a band out there i had a band and we were going to get we there was a guy in marin county who was going to be our manager 
and he was going to line up some stuff. He was trying to get a record deal. We went over to Fantasy Records over in in uh, Oakland and met with people and dropped off tapes. And I, I would just get on the bus and get transfers, and I would have our little demo tapes, and I'd go into bar after bar see, after bar. See, if we had anima- see, this should be animated, like Professor Mike Steinel in the seventies with the long hair. <laughs> oh yeah, man, you know? I was a hippie. Yeah, and we would busk. We would we would we got low on money, so we would go down to uh, Fisherman's Wharf and put out the guitar case, and we would play until we had enough money in the thing to have a drink, and we'd go down and have a drink, and uh, then we'd go to a strip bar. I remember that's the first time I ever went to a strip bar, and not the last. What, but what's anyway. a strip bar? Like you get steaks there? <laughs> yeah, New York strips. Oh, okay. <clears throat> But it was it was great, and you know it was. Uh, Do you know that I've never been to a, a strip joint, a gentleman's club? Never, never been. been to a gentleman's club. Whorehouses, but never a strip joint. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good, David. I'm glad. I don't. I don't. Your shelter. I just go right. I don't believe in foreplay. I just <laughs> go right. <clears throat> Are we gonna hey, well, let me, Tim. You want to want to play my song? Yeah, I have to uh, hang on. Hang on. Uh, that was fun, Dan. Great job, yeah. Dan. Great That's job, a good one. man. There's I, plenty of questions. We could do another 10 Thursday if you want. Oh, yeah. yeah right, get, get somebody who knows more than me. Yeah, I mean, I'm a bit make of a, a, they, I'm a Make bully. them a little harder. Yeah, I'll try. What but, you could do is like, like a Sicilian brujol. Make num. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> like a Sicilian brujol. Oh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> make a... Um, some of them true or false, maybe. You like know. Khartoum, if it were earlier in the show, I would have remembered Khartoum. So the, the multiple choice made it a lot easier for me. Like, I would have been stumped. I, I really? Yeah, I couldn't have come up with Khartoum. <clears throat> I couldn't have come up with anything, but the multiple choice helped a lot. Turtle it's, easier to, it's easier to throw jokes into multiple choice. Yes, that's right. That's right. You, those are good. Those Dan are good. Dan is funny. Dan is. He's a very, funny man. He's a funny man. I know. He's a funny man. Funny how? Funny ha ha. <laughs> funny ha ha. We're gonna play funny. this song. <laughs> yeah. So this this is called Turtle, and it's in the book. One of the things. It's a time travel book. Saving Charlie Parker. Jazz retired jazz professor falls down the stairs in his house. Hits his head and uh, loses consciousness and wakes up in 1953 next to Charlie Parker and he hangs out. He goes back seven other times, but after the first way to, th- that he goes back, he can't he can't get back unless he starts to do he starts to do oxycontin, so he can uh, he overdoses on oxycontin, so he loses consciousness and then that's how he's trans that's how he does trans temporal travel, uh, and eventually he gets he has an issue with but but. He runs out. He, got, and he, he gets to addicted go. to time travel. Both, yeah, both. <laughs> but he goes to he goes to, he gets uh, oxy illegally from uh, this connection. His name is Turtle. Ah. ah, interesting. And Charlie Parker had a little problem. Yeah, his connection was Moose the Mooch, hmm. a guy that uh, in a wheelchair. He used to uh, he had a he hung out on on uh, Sunset Boulevard. And uh, sold drugs out of his wheelchair. That's and, true. Oh yeah, 
And then he, he at one point, Charlie Parker uh, gave signed a document giving Moose one half of all his future royalties. They got it. His lawyers got it, you know, uh, overturned. But he was going to give away half of his future earnings to his so he could have a fix. You know, he was. Uh, hey, he Dan, was, he was addicted. Dan. Yes, sir. Why was Moose the Mooch in a wheelchair? Um, he couldn't find his shoes. He couldn't find his <laughs> shoes. <laughs> his shoes fell off. That's, that's why what? That's why what's her name had so many shoes. She was afraid to end up in a wheelchair. Uh-huh. A son of yeah. That's, <laughs> the, that's the funniest thing I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> so. It's a jerky boys ripoff. Oh, really? Oh, it is. Yeah, I, I brought my shoes, so I have them. Yeah, but that's, <laughs> no, but that's like the wheelchair joke is yours. Yeah. Yeah, no, you came up with that. Okay. Mr. Rosenberg, all right, honey doll, I'll bring my shoes. <laughs> my name is Saul. <laughs> Saul Rosenberg. That's right. Still holds up. All right, let's play the song. Turtle. Let's play Turtle, new music from... Professor Mike Steinell's new book on tape, Saving Charlie Parker.
Wow, Mike, Professor Mike Steinel. Why don't you tell us the music? Hey, David, can I can who, I tell who, who was on, on that track? Yeah, I heard. Did I hear Rosanna Eckert? Yeah, she's she didn't sing a solo on that one. She'll have a lot to do. But on But I did on hear something. Yeah. Who's on that? Chris McGuire on tenor sax, great Dallas saxophone player, one of my favorites. Carl Hillman on bass, the great Pat Coyle on piano. He came in from uh, Nashville. He lives in Nashville, but he's an old friend, and he's he's on in my band. And uh, <clears throat> let me see, uh, Steve Barnes, the great Steve Barnes on drums, and myself, and Rosanna Eckert. Yeah, you that can hear her doing weird. a little filling. And you wrote that. Yeah, that's Turtle. I like that. I like that one a lot. How long does it take? That's Let's hear it again. Can we play one more time? Well, <laughs> sure, man. You can do it. Yeah. I'll probably uh, go have a glass of wine. This is like, that's amazing. I, I, that's an old, that's been around a while. I haven't didn't find a place to use it, you know. Um, that's in uh, just in case you're keeping score. That's in 10-4. So like it goes one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. That's why it kinda has a and then it goes into four four and that's when it kinda locks in. But uh yeah, you're welcome to play it again if you'd like. I thought I would bring it in before it gets on a CD and we can't play it. Remember that problem we have with yeah. my CDs? I'll, yeah. I'll get dinged. What's No, uh... this one won't because it's not it's not it's not um, it's not commercially it's orchard music is the licensing thing it hasn't been licensed yet so we're just a, this is a freebie a little pr premiere <clears throat> a little uh, preview let's preview let's hear it again okay <laughs>
Professor, Do you like it? Professor Mike Steinell is an author, a jazz musician, and a genius, an absolute genius. His books include, well, well his, his album, the uh, album is titled Song and Dance, the Mike Steinell Quintet, featuring Rosanna Eckert. It's published, uh, it's on the Origin Records label, and he's published many books about jazz because he is a jazz professor the highly acclaimed essential elements for jazz ensemble volumes one and two building a jazz vocabulary his latest is running the changes those are the books he's written about jazz go to mikesteinell.com to find out more the lake house an audio version of his book the lake house is on youtube get that and you are you know you're just amazing just my wife got me this for christmas i'm a little embarrassed by it but i put it up <laughs> can you see it genius at work yeah <laughs> yeah i put it on the stairs so they don't come up when i'm doing my stuff uh my uh fourth wife bought me a, a yellow what are those called uh, I, uh yeah i mean i don't know I was going to say, you put it up when there's something on the floor you don't want to. Yeah, caution. Step in. Wet yeah. floor because I'm <laughs> drunk. Thank you, Professor Mike Steinell. My pleasure, Dave. It's great. Great show today. I heard most of it, I caught it. I didn't catch your because opening, you. but I did catch a lot of the other because guests, and, and it was terrific. Hey, let's ask Dave and PA what he's cooking there. That looks delicious. That looks like a. Like a he's, peach he's making a sunflower. Are you making a peach cobbler? A sunflower? What is that? <laughs> yeah, just, just try to call oh, the sunflower. Oh, I see it now. Oh, that's beautiful. That is beautiful. Thank you. Hey, Thank let's you. plug your uh, bed and breakfast. Yeah, it's uh, Bertie's Country Cottage. You can get there by tinyurl.com uh, or .cc. Bertie's, B-E-R-T-I-E-S, Country Cottage. Or it's an Airbnb, so you can find it there in uh, Millerton, Pennsylvania. It's kind of muddy right now, but uh, yeah. Birdie's Country, Country Cottage. Yep. And it's in what city in Pennsylvania? Uh, Millerton, North Central. If you picture uh, the Finger Lakes. Watch um, it. Watch it. The largest Finger Lake. The hey, big hey, middle we have one kids, is we have kids listening. Yeah. <laughs> The uh, the big one that points down. I'm just just inside of PA. Uh, I would say, the end of May, you couldn't find a better place to be. Yes, than up here. It stays nice and cool in the summer. When it gets to be hot town summer in the city, come on up here for weekend. And sometimes the nights are in the fifties during the summer. That sounds great. That sounds great. Yeah. Thank you, Dave and PA. Thank you. You're the best, and thank you. Professor Mike Steinell. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. And that's it. That's our show. I want to thank all our guests, but I have no idea. I can't read. Dan, are you here? Yeah, you want to try to do the run through? It'll be amazing if you do this. I can't. Let, let me just see. Uh, let me. I'm looking it up. Uh, so. 
Let's see. While you're doing while you're doing that, we just uh, got a super chat from yeah. Tommy Kelly. He says, "Love that." Please don't read this on the air. Okay, thank you. Well, we're doing a pledge episode today, so thank you. We have a a staff. People are. Everybody said to me, "Boy, this is a great show." The reason it's a great show is because of the guests, and I will mention them shortly. The reason it's a great show is because of our virtual studio audience that shows up and keeps me on my toes in the chat room. And Dan Frankenberger, the Invisible Ninja, Andy Brown, Sarah Bush, Professor Jonathan Bick, Grace Jackson, and Hannah Feldman. I left somebody out, didn't I? Joe in Norway. I left out Joe in Norway. There'd be no, off enough, there'd be no office enough. hours without Joe in Norway. That's right. But is he asleep? No, I see he's he's up. Should we try to remember who was on the show? Yep. Mickey Huff, author of Project Censored's State of the Free Press 2022 by the book over at projectcensored.org. Jason Miles, I'm reading this, Dan. Jason Miles and Pascal Roberts, host of This Is Revolution, Howie Klein, and Matt West, candidate for U.S. House of Representatives in Oregon 6. Paul Prescott, he's a candidate for Pennsylvania State Senate, District 8. The brilliant Lee Camp, go to leecamp.com. Rabbi Michael Pollack from March on Harrisburg, that's in Pennsylvania, go to M-O-H-A- I'm sorry, mohpa.org. That's mohpa.org. Peter B. Collins, go to peterbcollins.com. And his guest, Trevor Aronson, contributing writer for The Intercept. For more about Trevor, go to trevoraronson.com. Professor Marianne Cummings, follow her on Twitter at RazorGirl. Girl is spelled G-R-R-L. And Rob Everts and Professor Mike Steinell, MikeSteinell.com. And what was Rob, uh, Rob Everts' uh, email, uh, website? I forgot. While you're doing that, here's some courage. Look at this. How do you like that? Uh, wow. You're not allowed to protest the war in Russia, but that didn't stop a woman who works over at Russian television from interrupting a live broadcast of the news and screams, stop the war. They're lying to you here. The woman's name is Marina Avicinikova. She worked for Channel One, that state-run Russian television. And she stormed State One's broadcast, and she has uh, disappeared. Disappeared. We don't know where she is. So, courage. That's real courage. Right, Dan? Yeah, that's a unsettling story. 
Yeah. Um, the site that Robert Evans was uh, Everts was promoting was the Fred Ross Project.org. All right. Thank you. Speaking of courage, President Zelensky of, Ur of Ukraine asked Russian troops to surrender in a video address that he posted early Tuesday morning. He said, on behalf of the Ukrainian people, I give you a chance. If you surrender to our forces, we will treat you the way people are supposed to be treated as people decently. That's interesting. And President Joe Biden is reportedly considering flying to Europe to convene a special meeting of NATO next week. What's the rush? Why? Why would he have to do that? Thank you all for listening. This is a pledge episode. Please go to davidfeldmanshow.com and donate money to help grow this show. We're, get, we're just getting better and better. Thank you so much. I'm David Feldman reminding you to stay strong. I don't have it, Dan. Hang on. Here we go. I'm David Feldman reminding you to stay strong and protect the weak. I'm right now for the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics and comments too. To tell a dirty joke, he knows quite a few. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a human man with an animal right. Some days he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. So get your ears on right, buckled in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. Yes, it's time right now for the David Feldman Show. Get your ears on right, buckle in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming away. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way.